Hard is the good button to push. Hit the record button. Okay. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinell, who will be with us later on today to talk about the new Doc Severinsen doc, which I hope all of you watched on American Masters. I'm not a big fan of the PBS, but sometimes they knock it out of the park. And if you want 90 minutes of undiluted joy, 90 minutes of undiluted joy, watch the Doc Severinsen doc on the PBS. Welcome to the mop-up for April 5th, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage in Manhattan where the temperature is 65 degrees and sunny. And I got my first jab yesterday. I got my, I got my jab yesterday. It was Pfizer. Could not get one in Manhattan. Could not get one in all of New York City. You, you go on the website. They say there are three appointments available right now. Hurry, hurry. There's a man already in your hallway. He's standing in front of your door with a needle. You just need to fill out these 2,000 simple questions online. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And then, you know, you fill them out. Are you a teacher? Do you have cystic acne? Was your mother born before you were? Are you allergic to non-allergenic artificial soy? And then after you've answered all the questions, they want to know what race I am. And I keep trying to click white. I'm being serious about this. And then the, the race question over at Walgreens disappears, and I have to start all over again. But this time they want to know my gender. And, and I keep clicking somewhat assuredly that I'm male. And I'm not making this up. They reject it. 
And I'm figuring, okay, they're Walgreens. They know something I don't know. So I click female. They reject that. There's no box for other. So I refresh. And suddenly that question has disappeared. They no longer want to know what my gender is. I'm not making this up. And of course, there are no appointments available. There are no appointments left in New York City. Seriously, we have a lot of idiots in America, right-wing idiots, and if you want them to get the vaccine, don't make it so hard to fill out the questionnaire. You're really stretching it thinking these right-wing troglodytes can even work the internet. Do you really think they want to tell the government their birth date and then provide all their private health information? Just give us the shot. You, you, you were already granted legal liability, Pfizer, Walgreens, Moderna, whomever. Just They can't sue you. Just give everyone the vaccine because the right wing isn't going to give the Centers for Disease Control their personal information. They don't want the government to know what year they were born. Just give every just give everybody the shot. Not everything has to be about collecting data. You know, I'm a big government lefty, but even I get a little suspicious wondering why before I get vaccinated, the CDC needs to know if my left nut is hairier than my right nut. Let's just flatten the curve and give everybody the shot. And meanwhile, I live in Manhattan and I couldn't get the shot in New York City. Could not get the shot in New York City. But Friday night, I figured, wait, I pretend to be an intellectual, certainly someone like me who has spent his entire life pretending to be smarter than he really is. Certainly I can, can outsmart the system. Easter Sunday is coming up. Nobody's getting a shot on Easter Sunday, especially where right-wing Republicans live. They're all religious anti-vaxxers. Nobody is getting a shot on Easter Sunday. And uh, sometimes I, I marvel at just how close I am to being in the neighborhood of brilliant adjacent. I, this is true. I looked at the electoral map of New York State and I found the closest county to New York City that went for Trump. And I found one. It's in Delaware County, New York. Maybe the state of Delaware went for Biden, but not the county of Delaware. This is Trump country. The, the only road going there is Highway 2 because that's as high as they can count. The, uh, this place is so anti-Muslim, their area code is 9-11. You want me to continue? You, you, <laughs> you want to you, you talk racist? Delaware County refers to pizza as soul food. That's how racist they are. They even think Italians are African-American. They call lasagna soul food. It's a very racist place, Delaware County. They went for Trump big time. And sure enough, the Walgreens there is wide open on Eastern, Easter Sunday. Nobody's getting a shot in Delaware County, New York on Easter Sunday. 
Yes, their arms are sore, but that's just from all the zig heiling. It's Trump country. So I, I, I made an appointment in Delaware County at Walgreens. Of course, up there it's called Build That Walgreens. I'm not going to name the city. It's in Delaware County, but I'm not going to name the city because the people at the Walgreens up there were very sweet, even though it was the filthiest men's room I've seen all year. Okay, in lockdown, I don't get to be in too many restrooms, but no soap in a Walgreens. I came out of the men's room and told the druggist, as long as you got the needles out, you might want to throw in a tetanus shot. This uh, was a filthy restroom in Delaware County, and this ended up the most expensive vaccine shot ever administered. Nobody went to the lengths I had to go to get vaccinated. All because I had to rent a car on Easter Sunday because this is Manhattan Enterprise. That's where I rented from. They're, they're not open on Easter Sunday. There are no rental car companies open on Easter Sunday in Manhattan, the city that never sleeps doesn't rent cars on Easter Sunday because New York City is such a tiny market. And with only 9 million people living here, what are the odds that someone in New York City might want to rent a car on Easter Sunday? I mean, who wants to leave New York City at the first blush of spring? That's when the baby mice are at their cutest. Who would feed the freshly hatched cockroaches? Of course, there's no car rental open on Easter Sunday in Manhattan. I mean, who drives on Easter Sunday? Who visits anyone on Easter Sunday? And if you wanted to visit someone on Easter Sunday, why would you need a car? Why would you need to rent a car? This is New York City. This is New York City. This is Manhattan. Everyone owns a car in New York City. That's one of the reasons we all live in Manhattan, because... It's such a great place to own a car. We New Yorkers can't wait to take out the Roadster and let it rip, racing down First Avenue, 10, sometimes, dare I admit this, 15 miles an hour, top down with a bus exhaust blowing through what's left of my hair. New York, it's a car owner's town. That's why everyone owns a car, at least one car. So, of course, there wouldn't be any car rental companies wanting to do business on Easter Sunday. And, of course, it only follows, this being Manhattan, that all the car rental companies close at noon on Saturday. Because nobody needs to rent a car in Manhattan on a Saturday. Which means in order to rent a car for a Sunday excursion, to visit the vaccine bunny, I had to rent the car for two and a half days. I only needed it for eight hours on Sunday. No can do. It has to be more than two days. I can only rent it on Saturday, and I can only return it on Monday. I request a compact, which is what they call economy-sized, economy size because it costs the the entire economy of Costa Rica 
just for the liability insurance. I show up on Saturday before noon. Somehow, there are no compacts, no economy-sized cars. I did everything I was supposed to do, but no compacts. All they have is a 2020 Nissan NV Passenger. That's what it's called. And Nissan NV Passenger. This is the kind of minivan used to transport geriatric prisoners with special health needs. This this thing, it's gigantic. Essentially, they are renting me Mount St. Helens. And because it has a V8, it puts out more exhaust than Mount St. Helens' last eruption. They rented me a car with a V8, a van with a V8 engine in Manhattan. It goes from zero to three miles per hour in five seconds. Who needs a V8 in Manhattan? Now, I, some of you know, I do a radio show with a gentleman who invented the consumer movement, as well as the Environmental Protection Agency. If he knew that I agreed to take this car, if he knew that I succumbed, he would never talk to me again. And I'm ashamed to tell you that I wanted the vaccine so much, I, uh, I rented it. I took it. I'm ashamed that to rent this monstrosity for two and a half days, I ended up paying the manufactured suggested retail price for an, Ab- for an Abrams tank with the floor mat. And of course, you cannot park it on the streets of Manhattan because there are no parking spots in Manhattan that are six blocks long. This thing, I I must have looked like a child behind the wheel of this thing. And, And then I had to pay for parking. And you can only imagine what it costs to park this Oscar Mayer, Chris Christie mobile for two nights in Manhattan, plus the gas mileage. Uh, For those of you who play the stock market, I filled up at Shell. Invest accordingly. You might want to buy stock in Shell. All this money for me to drive 150 miles into Trump country to get my shot. I drove there the entire way with the heater on and the right rear window down because in order to work the computerized climate control One needs a Ph.D. in thermodynamics. I stopped at a gas station. Nobody could figure out how to raise the right window. And it only took six hours to figure out that in order to gain access to the gas cap, you simply needed to recite the entire epic of Gilgamesh in Sumerian into a conch shell. Between the tolls, the parking garage, tipping the guy at the parking garage, and of course the liability insurance. You need liability insurance just in case you take your eyes off the road and accidentally flatten the town of Hohokus. All in, after the tolls, the scone from Starbucks, this thing cost me roughly half the entire budget of Operation Warp Speed. I've said this once, I'll say it again. In America, we have first world problems on a third world income. In America, we have first world problems 
on a third world income. I couldn't afford this. I don't know how people live. And uh, maybe if I didn't get the shot, <laughs> I wouldn't have to live, but I wanted my shot. And nothing makes you want a vaccine more than driving in New York State. You get behind the wheel of a car in Manhattan and you are immediately reminded that only a fool would trust someone else to exercise the necessary caution needed not to kill someone else. You get behind the wheel of a car in New York, you know you need a vaccine because people are assholes. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for solidarity, but not solidarity with everybody because everybody is an asshole. One of the things that occurred to me on my pleasant drive is it's easy to love your fellow human being when you're in lockdown because you don't actually have to deal with your fellow human being. But once you get out there and you see who you're sharing the road with, uh, well, by the time I got there, my tank wasn't big enough. By the time I actually arrived at Walgreens, I wanted something bigger with a, with a machine gun turret. But I did get home safely, and it's worth it. I got my shot, and as I fell asleep last night, I knew that I was now immune from COVID. And, and like a good American, I did my part to keep the virus from spreading. And that's worth all the frustration and the money to know that I'm not part of the problem anymore. And as, a, as my eyes started to drift off, I got a, a notification from Walgreens and I figured they were thanking me for being a good American and were probably offering me a thank you, maybe a discount on one day old marshmallow peeps. But no, uh, turns out I need a second shot and it's scheduled for May 3rd. And so it continues. This thing, this nightmare that's called life continues. It never ends. It never ends. Welcome to the show. We have a great one. Dan Frankenberger, you're in the newsroom, correct? Has uh, Pete Dominic shown up? Uh, I haven't checked the list. I think we start with Pete Dominic. Have you gotten the vaccine? Uh, we we just scheduled it uh, a couple days ago, so I'll be going on the twenty third. Like a fool, I'm driving up there thinking this is it. <laughs> I find out no, this is this is half of it. This is uh, yeah. we had a great. Uh, you want to turn your uh, video on? We had a great uh, office hours. There you are, you pretentious douchebag with your beret and your Mersham and your, right. your, your scarf. Great office hours and hours and a great COVID town squares. Yes, it went well. Yeah. And uh, it's our second to last. Henry is going off to Germany. So he thinks. So he thinks. I've put some calls into Homeland Security. We're trying to get him on the no-fly list. Maybe we could have Joe in Norway be the driver that picks him up at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. Hey, I want to show you something before we welcome uh, our guest. And I hope he's on time. We have a uh, a listener 
who's been sketching us. And he drew some pictures of all of us, but I can't find them. All right. Anything in Community Billboard? Yes, sir, there is. What do we have so far? Or or you want to wait? No, I'm good to go right now. We got five minutes to kill. So, okay. Um, And I did send you an email a few minutes ago with a few pictures if you want to grab them while I'm going on here. Okay. The, um, a couple of days ago, I got a message from Karen Emerson. Yes. uh, One of our listeners and a a very good singer. She's like outstanding. Um, We've heard some of her son's music before. He's a fiddle player. So her son, Tyler, just joined a new band and he's doing his first gig with a new band uh, coming up here soon on a Facebook live stream. So if you go on Facebook and search for the storytellers streaming again for the first time, the ballad of Bob Stain and other stories, mm-hmm. you'll, uh, you'll stumble upon, uh, their show that's coming up. And, uh, I'm going to check it out. The, I know Tyler's fiddling is amazing. That's on April 11th. And he did some stuff PM. with the COVID town squares, I believe, didn't he? Correct. Yep, we've heard. Not the COVID tensors, the COVID players. COVID players, COVID players. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, I have jotted down here that the singular form of ravioli is raviolo. I didn't know that. Did you know that? No. If you if you order raviolo, it's it's like huge. It takes up half your plate, but it's one. Hmm. Okay. Oh, I'm looking at some stuff that you sent me. Yep. Oh, you know. Uh, Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm downloading your stuff. Okay. It's wow. um, As always, I bring up Tom and Barb Weber and their concerts that they do uh, live streams on Facebook for a half hour every Tuesday and every other Saturday night. And their shows since Barb's been back from their surgery has, have been outstanding. Um, also, you can check out Tom's artwork at TomWeberArt.com. And that's some of the, the images that David's pulling up right now. Um, the first one. Hang on, hang on, give me a second. This is unfortunately a, uh, well, it's not a, I was going to say we're a one-man band, but we're not. We're just actually disorganized, I think. That's the the problem. All right. Both of your assistants called in sick today. Uh, Of me. They call in sick of me. (laughs) Uh, You are, well, let me show this. That was good. (laughs) Let's do this instead, because it's the only thing I can find. Do you mind? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, and then we'll do the rest of Community Billboard after I load up. This is Brent Nury, and he doodles in the Zoom room and draws pictures. Can you see this? I see a black screen with Brent Nury's name. Right. Let me make sure I'm doing this relatively. Okay. That's a picture he drew of me. That's fantastic. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Look how handsome. Yeah. And he, he captured the unrealistic hair plug so realistically this is harvey jk let's get radical he's got the bookshelf (laughs) roll a harvey jk is on the show to our listeners you can't see this i'm doing this for the zoom room but it's so great and and i love how casual it's done on on uh loose leaf paper there's dr oedipus hershenfeld in your head that's doctor that's ethan hershenfeld isn't that great he looks very relaxed. And he's dreaming. He's describing a dream and it involves me laughing hysterically at him. There's a picture of me as the Inquisitor. There's Dim, this is Jim Merle, Dim Pearl Feckless, anti pragmatism. 
There's uh, John Ross. There's Irving Berlin Steinel. There's <laughs> David Feldman. Fuck Harvard. This is all great. If you come to YouTube and look at this, it's really beautiful art. This is where we promote your YouTube. You got to search for yeah. David Feldman on YouTube yeah. and subscribe because then you can see all these lovely works of art. Yeah. Trumpy Dumpty. And this is uh, Trump taking a dump on the American flag. All right. It's great stuff. You have to subscribe to our I YouTube. I drew a picture of you. I drew a picture of you three or four years ago and put it on Facebook. Do you remember that where your, your pants were half down and you were uh, getting about to get relations with a woman? I'll just send it to you. You'll remember when, when you see it. Do you draw? No, it's fucking terrible. But it's oh, funny. then send it. I like <laughs> okay. bad art. I don't know if you... But that's good art. Uh, Tom Weber does some great art. Yeah. And, and Brent Norian. We'll show more. I need to get uh, organized a little better. But here's somebody. You'll come back later once I... Let me load that into the program so I can show the pictures that you have planned. Okay? Very good. Good. Yes, sir. All right. Well, it's been a while since he's been here. He's a great friend of the show. It's always good to see Pete Dominic, the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic. Welcome back to the show, Pete Dominic. You're, you're, you're talking. Oh, you're muted. You know what? You were talking and I thought you were teasing me. By no, there you go. I'm not it's great to be on your program. I'm one of my favorite people to talk to. I wouldn't tease you, sir. I don't know how to do that. I, honestly, you look really good. I haven't seen I you feel, in a while. I'm feeling good. Things are going well for for myself, my family. You know, every morning I wake up and I check in. I have a little check in. The my health, the health of my core humans, and if if everybody's good, the baseline health. That's that's where I'm at. And then I write in my gratefulness journal. All right. I don't go that far, but I have one. I swear to you, I woke up this morning, get my first cup of coffee. I swear to you. And I said, who's out to get me today? Who's going <laughs> to give me, who is trying to destroy me? And I, I no. start running the, I, I'm no. not making this up. Huh. I'm not making this up. Have I, you tried I, to unpack that? That's interesting. How long have, do you do you do that every morning? Is that your morning routine, or is that just today was an exception because you felt felt especially, I don't know, vulnerable, targeted? I, I find myself waking up every morning and asking who's out to get me, and my shrink huh. told me the reason I do that is everybody's out to get you. Oh well, that is. <laughs> he goes. Sounds like everybody is trying. I've been. Why would anybody be out to get you, sir? I mean, what have you done to deserve any getting? I think that there just seems to be some, a series of minor inconveniences that when you pile them all together mm. on a daily basis, they're like living in Syria. Well, I think that is hyperbolic. And I say that to the children who have lost limbs and to the fact that you still have all of yours. But yet I, I think there are enough nuisances in life, nonstop gnats and mosquitoes, that when you pile them all up in one day, I think you can have more peace of mind in war torn. I, I shouldn't say that, but, you know. Um, it's it's a life of privilege from which you speak, it seems, or a point of privilege from which you speak. I don't know. I mean, 
I, I get back to who would be out to get you. I mean, when was the last time, for example, you left? Left what? The room. I can't. Who I'm doing you, a podcast. Who are you hurting? Who are you? Who are you doing anything to that would want revenge or that would be out to get you? Okay. I, I, okay. So I wake up this morning. I have my first cup of coffee, and I get a copyright infringement notice. I don't want to go into too many details. Somebody who does my show asked yeah. if they could take the excerpts from the show and use it. I go, I don't care. Go ahead. Well, this person went off and made something using my show. And now I am being contacted because I am my show now. I'm literally an infringement of somebody else's copyright because I'm doing my show, because they've taken pieces of the show. Right. Now, how would that make you feel, sir? Well, I've had, I I had- You're gonna tell me that's not worse than living in Syria? You know what, you make a good point. I think that, I think there's a boy walking around Syria with one leg saying, I wish someone would accuse me of copyright infringement. I wish then everything would be made whole again. I think at least in Syria, it's honest. People are trying to kill you in Syria and you know who your enemy is. This is a friend. This is a friend. Because, you know, it's always people don't I'll never when I when I learned that in, in, in the case I'm using black people appreciate honest racism. Please call me the N word. Don't act like you're not racist. Don't beat around the bush. Same thing for Jewish folks like you. I mean, just give it to me straight. I don't want to be guessing. I don't want to be I don't want I don't like subtleties. I don't like passive aggression. Just give it to me straight. So we both know where we stand. I know you're a racist. I worked out the hallway cool thank you yes jackie robinson said that jackie robinson's wife said that jackie and she decided that they were more comfortable with Mm. southern racists than they were with northern liberals yep that's complete makes complete sense as long as you're you're overt and you're honest about the way you feel about certain groups of people, then then you know where people stand. And it's always nice to know where people stand, especially if they don't like your people. You want to know that so you can stand somewhere else if need be. You know, I got I almost beat a, a man silly the other day at a deli. Hang on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I he, love you. I love you. Go ahead. Know. You beat you almost beat a man. Silly. I came close to beating him silly. Are you my, sure you're not Jewish? Uh No. Because all Jewish men say that. I came this close. Yeah, this close to beating him. I do do have that. that We share that quality. But (laughs) I was at a deli and a man walked in and he started talking to the manager, just shooting the shit. And apparently he didn't have a mask on because a woman said to him, sir, could you please put your mask on? Mm -hmm. And he said, mind your own business. Hmm. Now, I was waiting there doing just that, minding my own business. And I wouldn't have said anything and haven't said anything to people in public not wearing masks. I'm not the mask police. I wear mine. You don't want to wear your mask. I think you're an asshole, but I'm not going to say something. But if someone else does, I am on their side. And in, and so when he said that to her, Feldman, I turned it on. 
Yeah. That was it. The fuse was lit because I, I think I had an added altercation about masks with someone in person the entire time. Generally speaking, where I live, where I go, which is not too many places, people are wearing their masks, following the rules. So I just let this guy have it first with kind of a comedy reproach, if you will, where I just said, listen, man, we're all... We're all wearing masks. He's like, don't tell me what to do. I was like, no one's telling you what to do about wearing a mask any more than you are wearing a shirt and you're wearing a shirt and we're happy you're wearing a shirt because you don't look like you look good without a shirt. And then when I said that to him, he came for me. He came really? Right me, got right in my face. He goes, he goes, you want to fucking go right now? And the reason I went harder at him now is because I, I sized him up. If this were a kid in his 20s or 30s, big dude, you know, look like he he's going to kick the shit out of me. I'm not saying much here, but this guy was older than me and much fatter than I am in good shape. He had a big belly hanging over and he gets in my face. He's like, you want to go right now? And I go, please punch me. There's 30 cameras on us right now. And I will wait for you outside the jail to drive you to court. And you know what? I'll drive your pickup truck because I'll be owning it. Please punch me now dude spin on a heel and walked out to that deli and i felt like a hero i walk out get in the car where my daughter is waiting i tell her what happened and she says there's no way i i missed that that i really missed that yes you missed dad being a hero that i am I <laughs> no am no that was a pussy move a pussy move pussy move which one uh you I, listen as a as a lefty as a man of peace Mm-hmm. I salute your wisdom. I think what you did is you protected. It's, it's a good move. That, that is a way to resolve conflict by maintaining his masculine dignity. You let a toxic male leave with his pride intact. Well, because he didn't want to get sued. That was very smart. But you're still a pussy. Why? Because you were calculating how to get out of a fight. You didn't throw down. That was like, but that you were, you were, that's something I would do. That's, that's not alpha male. It sounds like you're using the wrong words because if I'm a pussy, I'm the toughest guy in a room. You, we have to stop misusing pussy. Pussy is strong. Pussy passes babies. Pussy doesn't cry when they get the flu. And, and dicks and balls are very fragile. Just tap them. All right. I can't. I know. I can't say pussy anymore. Well, you can say it. No, it's wrong. I get, it's want. politically. I, no, it I, you're right. I stand corrected makes because I'm a pussy. <laughs> there isn't anything good. We haven't come up. It's politically incorrect to say, but we haven't come up with a word that does what pussy does. And we really need to find one because I'm I, I would like to use it more. Yeah. You're a weak coward uh, does not do it. And that's what you're accusing me of. But I am I am about conflict resolution in the end. A and B, I do not like to get hit in the face. But but if you're going to you want to throw you're going to talk, you talk the talk. I said, go ahead, hit me. Ah, That that is you were doing a Gandhi thing. That's what (laughs) Gandhi would do. I'm like Gandhi. I want no, 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 no. I want to see you body fat percentage. I. I want to see you. You do look good. I'm feeling good. You look, look good. good. But I want to see you being like the alpha male who can't control it, who's trying to control his temper. But you're a rageaholic who slips and, well, and you I, imbibe in a punch now I, and then. And you didn't do it. I if, didn't. But, but, the, but, but I will say that to some extent, 
you've got the bar a little too high because I, I couldn't control my temper. Most people would want to say something, but wouldn't say something. At least I said something. And that is what the Asian community is asking us to do right now, David. Boy, now, wait a second. Now I have to feel bad that I've offended. Let's get back to you not throwing a punch. No, it's the idea that when you are in public and there's a an, an altercation, somebody is beaten anywhere from being actually beaten on the subway to being verbally harassed at the deli. And what do you do? Who are you in that person? And most people don't do anything because most people are cowards who are afraid that the guy's got a gun or he's crazy and it's not worth it. It's not worth it to them to stand up for a stranger. And I don't agree with that. The standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And I won't accept that standard, but it does not mean I need to knock a man out okay how do you wish it really went down what would you have liked to have said to your daughter as you got into that car i the only thing i wanted was for my daughter to have seen that see dad stand up for somebody and yet not take it too far and bloody the old man it wasn't that old i mean but i would have bloodied him i was ready i was ready to go but what would you prefer your daughter saw because she, I want her to see what type of person I am, and then she can decide, given my role modeling, what kind of person she wants to be. She doesn't have to be like me, but she knows that that's a choice of behavior, and at least that's the behavior that her father chooses. That's who I am. That's my brand. Stand up. You don't have to stand down. You don't have to throw down, but you have to do something to fight injustice and apathy. Did you ever see the YouTube video? This is one of the original YouTube Uh, videos. It's of a helicopter traffic reporter covering a pimp in LA who is harassing one of his women. And there's a gentleman across the street who is telling him to stop. And the pimp says, you want a piece of me? You want a piece of me? And he walks across the street to confront the gentleman. And it's just the, (laughs) the, the pimp throws a punch and the guy does one kick. And the pimp just, boom, just face plants. I've watched that a thousand times. It is the, it is so delicious. That's what you want your I, daughter to remember you doing. I, I No, I, that's not true. But I do love those videos. My favorite is when Buzz Aldrin was accused by a conspiracy theorist of not actually landing on the moon. And he ends up punching the guy in the face. Uh, not quite the same, but he was accused of not. La- if I landed on the moon and you said I didn't, I, I absolutely think I had the right to punch you in the face. But other, but in this case, over a mask, you know, I wasn't going to beat this dummy up. But I, but I was ready to. I was ready to if need be. You know, I had another situation like that on an airplane when a man went crazy. And I, I, I and others uh, pinned, had to pin him down. This was shortly after 9-11. And nobody else in the airplane stood up but me and one other guy. And that's the kind, that's the kind of guy I am. And the other kind of guy I am is the guy who brags about his virtues. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's going on? Why do you look so healthy and happy and fit? What's going what? on? You broke up for a second. Why do I look what? I, well, part of, see, now you say this isn't as bad as Syria, but at least, at least, as I understand, Spectrum does not provide Internet service or fail to provide Internet service in Syria. The uh, way it fails to provide. You're, you're breaking up so much. You're breaking up so much. Uh, and I blame your connection that it sounds like you're talking about your own Internet service. I'm talking about Spectrum. No, no, I use uh, Verizon. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Anyway, why do you why do you look so happy and content? Or is this just a plan to make me feel bad? No, there is a lot of good stuff going on in my life. I think uh, my my podcast is doing well, and 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 I'm I'm better than I ever expected. I think, and my marriage is going really well. My daughters are are both doing well coming out of uh, the COVID situation. And yesterday we went to Hershey Park and rode roller coasters. I don't need so to hear that. Don't talk about your sex life. I don't need to just go. I did have sex today as well. What what is Hershey Park? Uh, Hershey Park is an amusement park in central Pennsylvania known for its roller coasters in Hershey, uh, Pennsylvania. Where, How do you get um, there? You take the, do you take the Hershey Highway? I had a lot of those jokes. I'm sure you did. And I would I, I would take the Hershey Highway to get to that ro- those roller coasters. That's how much fun they are. I would do whatever it takes. I think he I was would, a bad guy, Hershey. I think he was a bad guy. Was he a bad I think so. I'm, I'm, I, he was a, he was an interesting guy where he was a billionaire for you know making confectionaries and he never had kids. David Feldman, what kind of billionaire doesn't? Because his wife, you know, they had trouble having kids. It's so, so odd because does, having chocolate is the easiest way to get kids. <laughs> that is odd that a man with all that chocolate in his pocket could not get kids. Could not. So we told, we told friends that we went to Hershey Park and she said, when we were younger, we went there as well. But sadly, the man who took us was the guy who owned the hobby shop who also molested us. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Everybody. It, 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 <laughs> the, the, the assumptions that strangers are the danger and not hobby shop owners, coaches and priests is bewildering. Yeah. So you went to Hershey Highway. Uh, Hershey, what is it? Hershey, Hershey Park. Yeah. Hershey, Hershey, Hershey Park. Park. Yep. And and so, you know, no, things are, I do. Things are going pretty well. I, spring brings it out the best in me How, as well. Oh, 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 but come on. You didn't want to kill yourself at Hershey Park? No, I love it. I did my college internship at Epcot Center. Amusement Park. We internacio now. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Merci. (laughs) Amusement Park. I had a French roommate and a Norwegian roommate who turned out to be a white supremacist. Such a nice guy, too. Mm. But they, uh, some of his Norwegian uh, friends came over and started dropping the N-word and showing uh, pictures of of pulling crucifix up with ropes. I was like, what's happening? And I kicked them all out. But anyway, I did my uh, college internship at Epcot Center. And... Being in amusement parks is 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 the happiest place because it's where a man I'm going to be uh, sexist takes his family uh, after saving a bunch of money and really enjoys watching them be happy and yeah. and so most people there are, are really happy because they saved money to come to this place and so there's a a positive energy at amusement parks that I like. Did you know it's in Orlando, right? Uh, Epcot Center at uh, Disney World, yes. And did you know I'm not making this up, Orlando? has the highest number of uh, porn downloads in America. I'm not making that up. You can look it up. Is that because people, so many people go to hotels and that's the, the most popular place to whack it? It's because the father works all year to save up, to take his family to Epcot, to Disney World. And he says, you know what, honey, I'm exhausted. You guys go ahead. I'll catch up with you in an hour. That's well, why. the one thing the one thing you know you're not going to be able to do when you take your kids to a, a vacation, most vacations, but especially if you're trying to save any money, is have sex or masturbate because 
you know, in our case, it's two queen beds, uh. two teenagers. Like, where am I masturbating and why? And I'm certainly not having sex with my wife. Uh, but you just know that going into your vacation, you get it out of your system before and after. Let me just say something about that. There's nothing good. Do we freeze? We're, my internet. My Are we internet. still here? Yeah, my internet. Am I alive? Yeah, my internet. You froze. Uh, you know what? Uh, there we go. There is nothing. I'd rather stay home than have yeah. to take my kids on a vacation and share a hotel room with them. Do you know the strangest thing? And I don't mean to say this to be insulting to anybody who I, I have I have never and maybe this says everything about me being needy or something. I have never been annoyed. I mean, for moments, but not for longer than that by my kids. I want to be around them as much as possible. Always have from infants to toddlers to now teens, adolescents. I love to be with them, love to be in the room with them. Rarely do I ever want to break from my kids. I, I, I don't Even in a think. hotel room. I am love to be with them in a hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're, they're fun. I, I like to entertain them, but it's not healthy. How many kids? Two, 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 two teenage girls. Yeah. Two teenage girls. Yep. And you and your wife in a hotel room. Yes. Inappropriate. (laughs) Why? Because it's it's way too intimate. It is. HBO should do a documentary on you. Kirby Dick should do a follow-up to the Woody Allen doc. It's just inappropriate. I've been there, and I and I went. This is not good. There's, there's granted nothing. they weren't my family. It was somebody else's. <laughs> but still, no, there's nothing. We are very open. We're very, you know. I don't know about other stand-up comedians, and I, I think I maybe I get away with it because of that, or maybe not. But but you know, I constantly make jokes. Uh, about sex and sexuality with my daughters always have. I, uh, we talk about their bodies, my body. It's, I mean, my, my daughter said, I said to her, I've got, you and I have the same eyes. And she said, no, we don't. If you had my eyes, you'd be attractive. Like, <laughs> hilarious. Like, there's nothing we could say sexually. My daughter will, you know, say anything, periods, almost everything. She's not going to tell me when they necessarily, when they hook up, but they might tell me when they hook up with boys just to make me uncomfortable, which again is fine because I'll tell them I had sex with mom yesterday to make them uncomfortable. It's, we laugh. We laugh a lot. We don't, we have a lot of problems. My, my, my daughters bicker at each other and stuff, but we mostly it's about how much laughter occurred in the day. That's how I rate the day, any day, how much laughter. And we laugh a lot, a lot for sure. Now I'm going to be honest with you. This, this is the God's honest truth. Ricky, who runs weekly marks on our show is bringing a guest on for Thursday's taping, a woman who a professor who wrote a book, and I'm getting the title wrong, but it's essentially was, you know, sex is better under socialism, right? Okay. And Ricky is bringing in Professor Ann Lee and my daughter. Great. Okay. <clears throat> so I said to my daughter, uh, uh, I said, I, you know, this is, you're doing the show. Do, it, it, do you really want to talk about sex 
with your father. She goes, I have no problem talking. And uh, I went, uh-huh, okay. And so I was said that I go for, you know, I, I went for a walk to. Uh, Do people know your daughter's seven? <laughs> so I thought about this. And I thought that, you know, I want grandkids, but I, I thought, you know, I thought, you know, there, it's like, I want a grandkid. It's it's like, you know, a hot dog. I don't want to know how you make the hot dog. Just hand me the grandkid. And then I thought, well, what, you know, it's always funny for a father not to want to think about his daughter having sex. And I thought, what is that about? And I'm being serious here. And I thought, I would want my daughter. God, this is uncomfortable talking. I would want somebody to make love to yeah. my daughter and be vulnerable with my daughter. Uh, but uh, the thought of, and, and it's, and, and my being on the show Thursday, my saying, I don't want you having sex is not funny because it reveals something about what I think sex is. That, that, you know, that sex should be a beautiful thing and it's two people making, literally making love. Uh, but um, as it's still hard to picture, isn't it hard? Yeah, I think I think that that's fine to, 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 to imagine the actual act of sex and to think about your daughter in the throes of ecstasy, which you're doing right now. And I make that makes you uncomfortable. It makes me aroused because <laughs> she's not my daughter. And I've never seen a picture of your daughter, but I have a picture in my head. And all right, she's all right. a young black and Asian girl. But Thank no, you. I. I think that that's I think that that's fine. But I also think the idea like, can we please, please take the shame away, the shame with sex, especially for women and girls, you know, like they have to take the walk of shame. And, and men are like, we're peacocks. And when we have sex, we go brag about it. But when, no, I don't I don't want my daughters to feel any shame for any consensual sex that they are excited to have been engaged in that they didn't get an STD or an unwanted pregnancy in, you know, but somebody that they chose to be with, I, I the, the, all of the stigma to it. I'm, I've done my best to remove that for my daughters, at least from my point of view for their entire lives. My daughter asked me, uh, we had our first talk about sex when she was eight. You're wow. I, I could not talk to my kids about sex. She asked me. She asked really? me. Of course. And this idea that, that when your kids ask you about sex, that you have to beat her on the bush or lie to them. I find it shameful and I'm embarrassed for those parents that aren't uh, mature enough or equipped enough or intelligent or educated enough to realize, you know, the really the best thing is to be honest, be honest. And when I had that conversation with her, I took it slow. That's a terrible choice of words, but I, you know, I explained it as, as gradually as I could and checking in with her. And I said, you want to know more? And she says, no, that's enough. When I got the hard, the penis gets hard. She said, that's enough. And I said, fine. 
that's fine because she's got enough to think about. She's going to work with that. And then we would come back to it whenever she wanted. But at least she would know as opposed to what I believed, which is that, you know, pregnancy automatically occurs when two people uh, get married. That's what I believed at first. No one told me. That's silly. Then I thought because the only orifice I knew was the anus. So I thought anal sex was the thing. The man put his penis in a woman's butt. And that's how she got pregnant. Again, that's embarrassing for a nine-year-old to find out he's wrong about on the bus in front of his friends. It really is embarrassing. Who wants to put their kid through that? Be honest with your kids so that they don't learn it from a school bus. Yeah, yeah. I asked my father about sex, and he said, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Well, that's a funny response. I like that. No, I'm just, he didn't say it. I just... most parents, I think parents dodge, they dodge the question. And I have taken it head on, you know, even like my daughters and I talked about hand jobs the other day. I said, listen, if you find How old yourself, are they? They're 13 and 16. I said, if you find yourself I'm so, wanting I'm, to I, I'm so glad I have, a, job, I'm so glad I have a vasectomy and I'm done with all this stuff. I mean, I, I, you cut out. You're so glad you have a, a vasectomy, and I'm, I, I never have to talk to a child about this stuff. This is way beyond. It's Feldman break. Yeah, it, for everybody. I just want to say, I hope the CEO of Spectrum, uh, who who controls my internet, <laughs> I, I, I hope you are paralyzed from the eyebrows down with a permanent itch that you cannot scratch. You bastard! You son of <laughs> we a bitch. only heard that you cannot scratch, but the the chat is hilarious. This is the best episode because of how little you can hear Feldo. Uh, no, I just want to finish my my point about. I don't want to leave uh, your audience or you on the. So you were talking to your daughters you about yourself. If you find yourself in a position where you want to offer a hand job, lubricant, anything at least water, but soap of any kind, it'll be over quicker and, and, and you'll be appreciated more. No, no dry hand jobs. You don't want that. Now, if you don't like the guy, or if you want to prolong it or something, fine, but I'm telling you just any lubricant, please. And we joked about that. And we had fun with it, but it was also, it was also a truth that they learned from their old man. Hmm. You're a better man than I am. Can you hear that? Yeah, that's that should be the name of our new podcast. You're a better man than I am. I could not. I I tried to talk to my son when he I, I tried to because my father did talk to me. He, he explained the birds and the bees. Uh, it was very good. He said, "Son, uh, if you <laughs> this is from my act. I don't even know if I could do this anymore. Go ahead, come on." He said, son, I said, this is how my father explained the birds. and <laughs> He goes, uh, this is how he explained the birds and the bees to me. He said, son, if you call the police, we'll both go to prison. <laughs> That's what, I don't know what that meant, but, it, it, but people didn't like it, so I kept doing it. Uh, all right, this is uh, interesting. I, I could not talk to my child about the birds and the bees. And why is it the birds and the bees? It should be the birds and the birds and the bees and the bees. You don't want the the, the species intermingling. Well, we should probably talk about more with our kids about the birds and the bees because they take nature for granted so much. And since the, the bees dying off, will will be they'll, they'll wish they had learned earlier. Uh, we are seeing birds dying off because there's too many cats. How about that? But mm-hmm. when people talk about the birds and bees because they don't want to say sex because everybody adults are afraid to talk 
about sex with their kids. And that is something I find so preposterous and ridiculous and cowardly, uh, immature and, uh, you know, what's a, uh, you know, it's religious people. I mean, it's, it's religion that does all of that. And I detest it. Right. So let's talk about sex anytime with our kids and you'll be, have a better relationship with them. I promise. Pete Dominic is the host of stand up with Pete Dominic. It's one of the best podcasts out there. And this it's great to see you and I'm glad you're doing well. It's good. It's to great to be you. back. Happy spring to you. Uh, and my people I don't celebrate spring. It. My people do not celebrate spring and I'm offended by that. Didn't your people kill spring? Yes, we did. Myron Spring. <laughs> well, I'm excited. You've got Mark Breslin coming up. Um, I'm going to uh, enjoy listening to that. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you All so right. much. Let us now go to Toronto, where the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, is standing by. Hello, Mark Breslin. Hello, David. How are you? Miserable. Good for you. I mean, I'm glad, glad to see you. I'm glad to see you, but I'm miserable. Well, I'm sorry you're miserable. Maybe we could get into it, why you're miserable. Um, but I, I, it's Easter. I just spent a lovely Easter weekend with my family, and I found some something out about Easter, for instance, that I didn't know hmm. this weekend. What? I found out that just prior to Jesus' crucifixion, he actually had a mani-pedi. <laughs> That's right. He had his nails done. Yeah. <laughs> he had his nails done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, the, uh, so you are, I'm not violating a trust. You, you have married a person not of our tribe. No, um, I, I wanted to make sure I didn't get, uh, you know, that nobody in my family got Tay-Sachs. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, that was the main reason. So my my I, family uh, carries Tay-Sachs Fifth Avenue. Oh, Tay-Sachs Fifth Avenue is great. Um, David, you're lagging a bit. I know, I know. Uh, okay. I, I don't know what, you know what I'm going to do? Let me do this. I'm going to play, yeah. let me take a break. Okay. And check, uh, <laughs> let me go put my fist through a wall. And I, let me let me do this. Let, let's come back in three minutes and let me adjust something and see if we can't. Uh, Fine fix this because it's uh it's unacceptable uh my advice is if you have spectrum find another internet provider uh-huh that is my advice fu spectrum it's time right now for the david feldman show he's talking politics a comedy too He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to He's just a lefty From way back He's a union man With an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad And he feels like fighting It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.
It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right and buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome back to Drop Dead Spectrum. That's <laughs> the name of our new show. Let's see if I I tried something. We'll see if that works. So, am I still lagging? No, um, tiny bit, hardly at all. Okay, uh, we may not. We may have to cancel t- if it gets this bad. I, m- I may have to cancel the show. And no, it's it's not that bad. It really isn't. Okay. I'd let you know. Okay, we were having problems. So anyway, we were talking about Easter and yes. talking about uh, the tribe and and Jesus's Manny Petty. And you had a good Easter. I had a good Easter. Um, you know, everything's in complete lockdown now here in Ontario. It is now the tightest place in all of North. America. It has the strongest lockdown rules of anywhere. But those rules are completely arbitrary. Isn't it interesting? You can't open um, a restaurant and put 10 people in who are socially distanced and they're wearing masks and everything is being cleaned. And yet they open the malls up. They open the malls up so that thousands of people can wander through coughing on you, rubbing up against you. Ugh. Um, so it's completely arbitrary and it's frustrating as hell for everybody. Obviously, I have no comedy clubs open in the entire country right now. Jesus. Jesus. That's tough. And That's what tough. about the vaccine rollout? Vaccine rollout is completely incompetent. Um, I got my, and I have big news. Yeah. I got my shot today. I got my Pfizer shot. I was waiting around for the Rolls Royce. Uh, I was not going to take, no, I was not going to take the, the Plymouth. So, uh, which is the AstraZeneca and I wait because I could have done that a month ago, but I wanted to wait for the good one and I got the good one today. And I, once you got there, it was very well organized. It was in um, the hospital. I did it through the hospital, um, because I'm a patient, a diabetic patient there. And that's what put me sort of a bit of ahead of the line, but it's amazing how many people are not taking the advantage of taking these shots, even with the limited vaccine that we have. The mayor of Toronto actually had to go on TV and ask people who were eligible to go down and make an appointment. Amazing. It's amazing. amazing. And remember that this has never been politicized in the way that it was in the United States. It's just people being, I don't know, what, lazy? Mistrustful? Maybe. Some people think that there, you know, there's going to be, um, you know, a side effect. And I can tell you right now I'm having a side effect. It, frankly, it gives you an enormous priapism. And, um, <laughs> it, and I'm only hoping it'll go down um, because I think they put the needle in the wrong place. Uh, but, um, but, yeah, I do feel actually a bit weary. Well, right now, now. hang on for one second, because I got the Pfizer yesterday. Yes. Did and, you really? I, and I got a priapism that won't go down. Uh-huh. And th- I'm wondering, since Pfizer makes Viagra. There's the connection. They probably <laughs> added a little juice. They have a, sh- they have a shaker uh, <laughs> of, uh, of Viagra. And what they do is they take the shaker and they put a little bit in each dose. Which, <laughs> uh, you know, it's to distract you from the fact that you just had a big shot in the arm. But there was no pain. 
whatsoever. It was, you know, needles have changed since I was a kid when, you know, you were a kid and they wanted to give you a, an injection. There was this huge needle that came out with a bore that was about as, you know, big as a turkey baster. But now it's a tiny little bore. It's a tiny needle that goes in it's out. You don't even notice it. Yeah. I, I said, tie me off and do it between my toes. She didn't yeah. laugh. Yeah. Yeah. I do it under my tongue. Which is the last <laughs> That's the last resort of junkies, man. I'll tell you. Is that true? Lenny. Lenny taught me. Yeah. Lenny taught me to do that. Lenny. Yeah. yeah Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> but she was, she was a meth head. <laughs> How else do you think she could talk to Adolf? <laughs> She probably was a meth. They were all on she meth. Was, she was probably a meth. They all were. Uh, the Nazis were really into meth. Which I'm not making this up. The Blitzkrieg, they say it's impossible for them to have moved that quickly, that fast, without the entire uh, Wehrmacht on methamphetamines. They were, yes, they were given methamphetamines, and I'm not sure that isn't also true of our side as well. Not, I don't know. That could be. Maybe it's not. I'll tell you who's anyway. not. I'll tell you who's not on methamphetamines. Spectrum. Spectrum. No, my Spectrum cable is on. on they're no, on phenobarbital. On yeah, we don't get we don't get Spectrum here. It's it's not a company that's here. It should be called on the Spectrum instead of Spectrum. <laughs> this is the worst internet. Do not. This is the this is the great thing about not having any corporate sponsors. F U Spectrum. Do not get your internet from Spectrum. This show is an infomercial for not using Spectrum. Thank you. Would you say that you hated Spectrum? You can't hear me. Mm. I yeah, I hate it. Spectrum. They're my internet provider. Yeah, well, you're not pronouncing it right. It's Speculum. There's oh. a whole difference between <laughs> that and Spectrum. But okay, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> uh, spectrum stinks like a discarded speculum. Speculum. A, yeah. There you go. There's their, hey, there's their ad. <laughs> I have a speculum, by the way. My friend, when he was in medical school, gave, yeah. me, <laughs> gave me a speculum. You know what's really bad? Ask a mouth using a speculum. That's really <laughs> disgusting. So what we were talking, we were talking about COVID and uh, Easter and uh, you were asking me questions about my blended family, I guess. Yeah, you blend your family. I blend them. I have a uh, I, I, I got it on Amazon. It was eighty nine ninety nine. It blends them lovely. It's, it's really nice. I like a good smoothie in the morning. <laughs> but um no, no, we, we, you know, everybody asks me this question because we have a kid. How are you bringing up your child? What's going on with your child? Are you going to bring him up Jewish? Are you bringing him up Christian? Well, neither of us are particularly religious. Um, and I'm, if anything, a cultural Jew. And um, so we're happy to just tell them all. We tell them all these stories and then Bible stories and then add at the end. If it's true, <laughs> no matter what it is, and my wife, we were having dinner. My wife told him the story about um, Jesus and going into the uh, on the cross and going into the cave and having the rock in front of him. And then he shows up uh, three days later and he's alive again. If it's true, and I did the same thing with Passover. I said, you know, we escaped as slaves from Egypt. We got to the Red Sea um, and then um, the seas parted to allow the Jews to go through. If it's true, <laughs> so we just 
something if it's true and telling them all the stories. You know, when I was a kid, I never questioned religion. I did not grow up in a particularly religious household, but I did go to Hebrew school five days a week after school, uh, two, to, two hours a day. Uh, but, so I did that. But the word God was never mentioned in my house. Um, the word carpeting was. Godwin <laughs> was mentioned. Godwin was mentioned a lot, actually. But uh, the word God was never, ever uh, mentioned in the house. Although I have to tell you, um, you know, old habits die hard, I guess, with families. I could say shit or fuck and as a kid in the house, and they wouldn't like it at all. But if I said Jesus, I was sent up to my room without dinner. That was the word you couldn't say. So, um, but we weren't we weren't particularly religious. We were sort of culturally Jewish, so it isn't that much of a leap um, for me to now just sort of sort of tell my son about this stuff and let him come to his own conclusions. I did not uh, become what I'll call a free thinker. I won't call it atheism. I'll call it a free thinker. Till I was about sixteen, I kind of accepted everything and accepted all the traditions. Went through my bar mitzvah, loved my bar mitzvah but then just sort of lost interest in it all and then started to question everything. When I was about 16, I started questioning everything. Five days a week. Yeah, five days a week. And we had teachers who were, uh, they were all Holocaust survivors. And, you know, um, you would say to them, uh, well, I don't understand why you why you why you want me to be quiet uh, during this uh, during this class. Come on. I'm just and, and then they would get mad. And they'd roll up their sleeve and go, well, why? Why? Because of this. Because of this. So. And. I used to get in trouble constantly in Hebrew school for causing trouble, which is ironic because in regular school, I was an absolute teacher's pet. Mm-hmm. But here I was not because I did not respect these teachers. They were also physically violent. Yes, mine were too. I'm sorry, true? what? Did you know that? They were my, my, I used to get beaten by the rabbis too. Yeah, this was their thing. Um, I, the um, My teacher, Mrs. Wise, oh God, Wise, she was awful. Um, she had a ruler, and the ruler, if you remember in those days, the ruler had a tiny little strip Edge. of metal yep. in the ruler, yep. and she would hit you with the metal side, and I would bleed. I'd go home certain that my parents would, you know, sue the, the school or something, but they never, ever thought of questioning that authority, ever. My fa- I used to come up, first of all, I deserved it. I, I deserved to be beaten by the rabbis. And I would come home, and my father, I'd say, uh, <laughs> Rabbi Geltzeler, uh punched me in the stomach. And my father said, Jeez. good, somebody has to. That's what he... Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't get that. I just, all I got was, if they're in charge, they must be right. Right. Which, is a, which, of course, you know, set me up for the exact opposite belief in my life, which is, if they're in charge, they must be wrong. Is right. kind of a now. So, what, what would in my life. what would you have preferred? Uh, getting molested by a rabbi or getting punched by a rabbi? Well, if I were Irish, I would like both. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know a lot of Irish Jews. Hang on, hang on. Let, 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 what my the birds? It's like you, it's like you just punched me, and I'm seeing. The birds spinning around. Hang on. Okay. All right. What? So uh, 
finish your thought now, please. Well, I, no, I, I made an Irish joke, you see. Yes. Um, but which would I have preferred? Uh, probably being punched. Those yes. robots were really unattractive. <laughs> I mean, you know, if I were a Catholic kid and some of those priests, hey, they were, they looked okay. They looked like guys. But, this, but those rabbis with, it's, with their beards full of carbs, I mean, they disgusting. You know, they would talk and little pieces of food would fly out. Meanwhile, my very good friends at the time all belonged to this very posh reform synagogue mm-hmm. where the um, rabbi would have uh, the sermon uh, in 1968 would be the lyrics of Bob Dylan. <laughs> you know? And uh, I, I loved it. I, 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 would, I would go there any day, except now, weirdly, it's become frummy, too frummy. Even the reform synagogues now, they're wearing, you know, skull caps and they're right. wearing the lacem and everything. So, you know, but I but in the 60s, reform Judaism was like the it was like the Calvin Klein of of religion. Mm-hmm. Everything was in beautifully muted tones. Right, right, right. They wanted to make it appealing. They wanted to make Judaism appealing to the, the kids. They didn't want to burden them with the Holocaust. You can't. Make you, you, it can't only be the 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 darkness. You have to show them how much fun it is to did, be Jewish. Did you? Well, you know the Holocaust can be fun. It depends what side you're on. <laughs> but did you? Did your family directly lose any lives in the Holocaust? Yes. Yes. Mine did not. We all ran from pogroms. From 40 years, 50 years before, 60 years before. Did you say lose family or money? Both. Well, you know, it's funny because I was going to go to Switzerland a little while ago to visit my grandmother's teeth. (laughs) I didn't have the key to that safety deposit box. It was owned by a guy named Gunter, who I could not find. You know, I went to Orthodox Hebrew school three days uh, a week, and I went until uh, throughout, like my senior, like I had, I was done my senior year in high school. I was pumping gas. I already got early acceptance. I was off to college, but I still went to Hebrew school because I, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I, I, the, I was You're incur- like getting touched in the stomach, evidently. It was uh, like crossfire. It was fun. It was they. You would you well, could challenge them, and they would laugh and then punch you. Oh, well, <laughs> when I was thirteen, that was the deal. Uh, when I, I had my bar mitzvah, and I did it really well, and I was finished, and I wouldn't have to go anymore. So, um, but I made a lot of good friends in Hebrew school at that time. I had more friends coming out of Hebrew school when I was like eight to 13 than I did in regular school. So that was of some value. And I still, I still can't believe how much I I retained. I'm of all my friends. We, if we have a Seder or something, I'm the only one who can actually do the prayers in, you know, the original Hebrew or Aramaic with the tune. And I, I can do quite a bit. I've, I'm quite surprised at how much I remember. 
Right. I can read Hebrew. I, I don't understand the, but I don't, you're reading, but yeah. I don't know what I'm reading, but I can, I can read Hebrew. Can you do it with the dots or do you need, or without the dots? Uh, I can do, if I know, I can do a prayer without the, the dots. I need the dots. Oh, yeah, I need the it, dots. Yeah. Because I, I'm blind and I, I need Braille. <laughs> so, um, that's why. Without the dots is showing off. I, I, it I is find. kind of, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you're bragging. Now, you realize there's an enormous number of people who are listening to this right now who have no clue what we're talking about. Right. Just yeah. Say. Yeah. So maybe we should get onto a topic that's more universal. Yeah. I, all right, let's talk about hating Jews then. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> That's, a, that's that's universal. But I don't understand. There's a lot of stuff about anti-Semitism. People talk about anti-Semitism all the time. But what people never talk about is philo-Semitism, pro-Semitism. There are actually people out there, and I've met many. My wife is one of them. They love Jews. They can't get enough Jews in their life. They think Jews are the coolest. Um, it, it isn't so true now because Israel has kind of put a bit of a pall on all of that. But I remember certainly in the 60s and the 70s, even into the 80s, sort of, um, people loved Jews. There were so many people. Oh, well, there was a girl in my um, there was a girl in my uh, in my college, my first year of college, who was the waspiest girl ever. You can't imagine a wasp miracle. Oh, she really liked Jews. She liked Jews so much that Shlomo Karlbach, do you remember Shlomo Karlbach? The, is, he's like a Yiddish folk singer. <laughs> he would go around to people and have the full beard and everything. And he, he, could sell, he could sell out. He was sort of like a Theodore Bikel, but like mm-hmm. a little more modern. She ran away with him. Hmm. She got away with him. So there are there are definitely people who really dig the Jews. Um, they're just kind of quiet these days. I think Himmler dug, oh, he dug holes for the Jews. I think. That's right. Thank yeah. you. Yes, yeah. you're right. Yes. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah. Uh, it's not supposed to be easy to be Jewish, right? That's the whole point. It is. I think it's the point. Um, there's a kind of Adam Sandler Jewishness, which is kind of easy. You know, I mean, if you, you listen to the Hanukkah song or you watch, listen, watch Eight Crazy Nights, which I watched with my son this year, um, it's kind of a suburban, um, you know, mall-oriented Judaism, which is easy to swallow, easy to take, doesn't demand much, doesn't really press the Holocaust. Look, don't you think it's interesting that Seth Rogen, who I admire, did that pickle movie? Did you see it? I, it looked interesting. The time travel. Oh, you haven't seen it. It's a time but travel. Um, yeah, uh, sort of. It's about a guy, and he he falls uh, an old school Jew from the like eighteen uh, nineties. He falls into a vat of pickle brine. They close the factory, and because he's brine, he wakes up. Uh, you know, a hundred years later, and then he tracks down his um, grandson, also played by Seth Rogen. But what I found amazing about it was in this entire movie. The Holocaust is never even mentioned. Really? Never even alluded to. Which is odd because in terms of getting yourself into a pickle, that was what? What? I said, it's a comedy. And, and, you know, (laughs) you go for all the funny beats. But I thought it was very weird. Israel is never mentioned. And the Holocaust is never mentioned. And here's this religious Jew who wants to know what has happened to the Jews in all in all this time that I've been really know, in animation. And it's never mentioned. You should watch. You should look at the. You should watch the movie. 
By the way, speaking of watching things, I saw something really interesting on Netflix that just came out called The Serpent. It's eight, it's eight parts. Um, it could have been done in six, but it's eight parts. Well, they cut it down to six, but, but because it's a serpent, it grew back. Right. Well, eight. it was eight, six, but for you, six. <laughs> um, it's about a serial killer in uh, the 70s. Um, who preyed on backpackers and hippies in Nepal, Afghanistan. And I knew about this story because the Amuen, the Amuens, the Amuensis, uh, his lover, was Quebecois. So mm-hmm. it got a lot of play. That story got a lot of play here. It took forever to find him, to charge him. He's now rotting in a jail in Kathmandu. But it's, I would recommend it. It's, uh, it's a really interesting series. Now, I have, and I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to be cute. I am having trouble reading. Ah, see? Are you reading? Well, off and on. You know, I finished that that Cliff Nesteroff book. I've got the Mort Saul book right here, right on my table, waiting to find a time to get to it. Um, It's very hard with COVID to concentrate, I find. So, um to follow through on our series of jokes. So I am going to camp. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was laughing. So you're going to camp to help with what? To concentrate. Oh, to learn um, how to concentrate, I see. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to a concentration camp. I see. So um, uh, Howie Mandel's old joke, still funny, but all that shouting and screaming, who can concentrate? <laughs> anyway. Um, well, wait a second, Howie Mandel? Did that joke, but very early in his career, he certainly didn't do it on his HBO specials. But it was a great joke. Interesting. But he would have done that in 1978. Right. That joke. Anyway. You um, think he would like a concentration camp because it's all about showers. <laughs> he is, for those of you who know how he has, is a yeah, chronic, he has. he's a chronic hand washer. And right. I apologize uh, for that joke. I can't take it back. I should want me to do one that's worse. <laughs> no, please don't. Because I could. No, you know what? Uh, I made a pro. You know, I, I'm people okay. who complain. There are going to be some people who complain, and you're right. You're absolutely right. I shouldn't uh, do those jokes. All right. So let's move on. Well, uh, but we were talking about something else that led to that. Uh, uh, reading. I've been having trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and you're reading and now I'm finding myself playing chess, doing crossword puzzles and uh, writing emails to people and not sending them, which is healthy. Ooh, that's weird. Yeah. I've been writing angry emails and I have this new policy. Wait a day before smart I smart hit... policy. Yep. Not a fun policy. No, I know. But I've learned it's a smart policy. Wait a day. There should be an email company called Wait a Day. And no matter what you press to send it, they'll still hold it for a day. Hold it for and a day. Write it. it. Well, isn't that there's there's um there's a platform like that. Snapchat, right? Snapchat, your stuff goes up and it's gone in a day. But I need the stuff that I write to people. Should never be seen. Should never be seen. Well, then you should work in Canadian show business. <laughs> No problem there. Wow. 
Wow. Oh, my God. My mother and sister love you. They think you are. They they tell you next time your wife. I know she loves you, but yes, if, if she rolls her eyes. Yes, tell her, does. tell her Mrs. Feldman. I could yes. be having Kugel with Mrs. Feldman in New Jersey right now. And you know what she'll say? Yeah. Yeah. That's your demographic. <laughs> <laughs> My mother thinks you're sexy and funny. Uh, and, well. and she keeps asking if you're married and only because she can't remember. No. Uh, right. Yeah, you are. We have two minutes. Let's do that. And then we're going to do Howie Klein. Let's go back. Finish your thought. And then we'll. Uh... Well, I didn't have one. Oh, um, okay. I only had a joke. But what was my thought going to be? What was your thought going to be? By the way, I'm yeah, really I'm good at dinner because I do this show. Yes. I if I I don't go out to dinner that much. But when I see friends, if I'm at a party because I do this show, it's it's I can keep track of the thread of a conversation going back 20 minutes because of doing this show for so long now. Yeah, that's valuable. I saw, is it true? It said show 1,228 or something, or did you just start counting at 1,000? Uh, no, it's uh, episode, tw it's season 12, episode ah. 28. So it's like a hotel room. There aren't 4,000 rooms. It's 40th floor, like zero uh, first first room. Got it. I, I understand. I, I don't know. There might be. I, I don't. If, if you figure we we do yeah, well, 50, figure fifty shows a year. Right. So what's five hundred times twelve? Is it fifty times twelve? It's twelve years you've been doing this. Yeah. Okay. So fifty times twelve is six hundred. So you've done six hundred shows. No. Much more no. than that. Yeah. No, because it's well. If you've done a show, a show a week, two shows, a fifty week. weeks, fifty shows in a year. A hundred, right? No, it's a hundred. It's a hundred. It's about a hundred and four shows a year. Okay, let's round it up to a hundred because it makes it easier. So you've done twelve hundred shows. Congratulations. Let me do this. Thank you. Let me call Howie, and hopefully he'll he'll be on. Hopefully my phone will be. And I think we fixed the. The, 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 the lag, the lag's not happening. It's fine. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, you know, what happens is the people from Spectrum listen to the show and they said, oh, boy, if Feldman's listeners boycott. Here we go. OK, we can wrap it up now. Uh, Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks. It's the largest comedy chain in North America. Not today. Not well, if not the world. And. Comedy will be back. I know comedy will be back. Well, the clubs in New York are open now with 33% capacity, right? I Nobody's calling me. Yeah, that's what I heard. Oh. That's what I read. Okay. They, they shouldn't be. Well, this is... Time they only had 33% capacity anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mark Breslin, I love you. Thank you. Great. So great. So great. So great. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Yes, sir. I can't wait. Thanks for doing my show. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let us now go to Los Angeles, where Howie Klein, the founder and treasurer of the Blue America, is standing by. Hello, Howie. 
Blue America Pack, you mean. It is such a pleasure to come on after uh, this guy who was j- just on. He always makes me laugh. He's uh, even even though I'm only listening for a minute or two on the phone. Uh, he always sounds great. I always like you know feel a little bit uh, on some level uplifted from him. I'm telling you, when when COVID is over, the three of us are going to have dinner. You, me, and Mark Breslin. And then I'm then I'll bring, uh, you know, somebody who can sit and listen. We will have the greatest time. I'm telling you. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. Do we have to go up to Toronto? Uh, Mark is usually in Los Angeles, so we can go to that. Oh, vegan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I happen to love Toronto. So, I mean, I like Montreal more, but I love Toronto, too. But uh, better in L.A. Yes. First question. Have you gotten the vaccine yet? No. Next week. Uh, as I, as I told you, uh, I couldn't get it right because of uh, uh, right. Uh, my treatments. Yeah. So my doctor finally figured out a way to do it. And uh, she has me scheduled for next week. OK. Before we talk about the infrastructure bill and whatever else is on your mind, I'm just curious. Did you go to Hebrew school? And if so, how many times a week? And were you bar mitzvahed? And was it Reformed Orthodox or what? So interesting. My father, uh, who was an atheist, really didn't want me to get bar mitzvahed. He, he, he was against it. And what he said was that if I forewent the bar mitzvah, he would take me and my mother and sisters on a trip to Europe. I had never, at that point, I had never been out of the country. And I said, no, I want to be bar mitzvahed. And I said that, that was like the last time that I, I think I ever exhibited <clears throat> such poor judgment based on uh, conformity. Because all my friends were being bar mitzvahed, and I thought because they were, I had to as well. So yes, I did. I went to Hebrew school only to learn the, uh, the, the bar mitzvah uh, ritual. Uh, you know, so you had to learn some Hebrew, and you had to learn how to sing the, uh, I don't know, is it the Haftorah or something like mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So, yes. So I, I went for a short time. Now, interestingly enough, right after the Bar Mitzvah, so after I was turned 13, it was Bar Mitzvah, and then I was a man, um, there was a little shul uh, on the way, we used to, me and my friend Stewie Cohen used to walk to school. And on the way to school, there was a little shul. And they, one day we're passing it, and they said, and, you know, some guy comes out, and he says, are, are you Jewish? And we both said, yeah. He said, have you been bar mitzvahed? And we both said, yes, we have been. And he said, would you like to make $10? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in those days, $10 was really a lot of money. Uh-huh. In fact, it was $10 for the both of us, not not $10 each. Right. Uh, and, and doing what? And he said, just be in here. You know, we need, we need, uh, you know, minion. 10 minion and we don't have 10 people. Would you do it? And we said, sure. You know, $10. Hey, that's like big time. So, um, so we did. And then we did it every day. So we were the two richest people <laughs> in our class. <laughs> it's called a, a minion because you can make a million dollars. Uh... <laughs> we did. <laughs> we made, we made, uh, hundreds. You know, but uh, I don't know if that answered all of your questions. But uh, there are uh, very aggressive Orthodox Jews. But we we were definitely it was a reformed temple. Right. There's some Orthodox Jews near Gracie Mansion. I always go for. I try to go for a walk 
outside Gracie, near towards Gracie Mansion and then back. That's the mayor's residence. And there are proselytizing Jews. And then there are they proselytize for you to return to the religion. So every day I'm walking and somebody with the, you know, the whatever on the, the fur wheel on his head and the beard. Excuse me. Are you, <laughs> are you watching the third uh, uh, the third season of Schnitzel now? No, I haven't had time. You told me. Oh, to- my God. You'll just love it. It's so funny. And so and really, you know what? I like uh, Schnitzel better than I did. I mean, the character better than I did. I like all the characters better than I did in the second season. I like them now. I'm going to binge them. So every time Sorry? they stop me and they go, excuse me, are you Jewish? And I go, thank you so much. What? What? No, it's just such a compliment that you don't know that I'm Jewish, that I could. That I oh, look like, <laughs> nobody's ever asked me that before. That I, uh, You you want to lay to fill? And I go, no, thank you. Thank you. Uh, but thank you. For Do they asking. understand that you're being, uh, you know, uh, insulting? I, I'm not being insulting. I'm being trying to be f- remind them that Jews are funny. They see this is a sect that seems to have forgotten that you're supposed to be funny. It's a funny religion, not. Uh, but anyway, let's continue. And Do you think they have any idea what you meant, what you mean when you say that? Or is it like talking to a brick wall? It's like not only is it talking like to a brick wall, I actually put a prayer card into it. That's OK. okay. Let's talk about. Uh, boycotts and Georgia. Oh, you want to talk about? You don't want to talk about Gates? Oh, uh, you know what? I'm not, oh, no, I'm let's go to, to Gates. Either one or both. Let's talk about Gates. I got a lot of compliments from people who said they loved my title, "The Gates of Hell." Uh, but I've been writing about Gates for I used the many, same many title. years. I did the same title. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, uh, it's an obvious title. Yeah. Um, what did you do it on? I, I named the show The Gates of Hell. Oh, uh, okay. Is that many years ago? No, it was like it was right after. Uh, but I didn't take it from you, I promise you. Okay. Well, mine was yesterday, so I didn't take it from you. Okay. Then but you could have way, it if you wanted. I had it. So uh, <laughs> the thing about Gates is, is, and me is that I've been writing about him for for very 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 long time for you know uh, years and years and years and today a very good friend of mine who I, I assumed reads my my blog said did anybody know that he lived in the house where the Truman Show was was filmed and I'm thinking she doesn't read my blog I've been I've been I've, I've written I've been writing about this for, for a dozen years <laughs> well whatever I still love her. In any, in any case, um, he, you know, now I want to make sure that, that you and, and everybody who listens to you is aware of two things about his son. You're, you're aware of his son, right? The adopted son? The after- yes. Well, he's not really adopted and he was not really fostered. He's just he's just some boy that uh, he was stripping and, and then decided to call it his call it him his son. Why calling him his helper, but then he decided publicly, but then he decided to call him his son. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on for one second. I'm hanging. Okay. So there was this adult child that he wanted to take care of because... He was 16, but you, you can call him an adult child if you want. How old? 16. 
he's old. He's older now. He's now he's nineteen. He might he might be turning twenty at any time now. But the last uh, you know they keep him out of out of sight. But the last uh, known age was nineteen. Matt Gates. It was around a year ago. Nestor is his name. We should refer to him by his name. Congressman Matt Gates. You're talking about. Yes. Yeah, so Gates. Gates had this kid living with him, a nice-looking young man who he referred to as uh, several times as a local student and a helper and uh, a, uh, what did he call him, a a house page also. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not not Congress. Mm -hmm. And and Gates, but I'll get back to it. I'll I'll continue this, this story, but I'll go back and explain how I know Gates is bisexual or or perverted, polymorph. Perverted, I, I, I mean it the same way that, um, non-judgmentally, the same way that um, uh, it was explained by uh, Freud. It's not, it's, not, it's not to say that perverted is bad. It's just different from the norm. And, and, uh, and I've known for many years and written for many years that um, Gates is a polymorphous pervert. In, in the classical sense, that was defined by uh, Sigmund Freud. So, in other words, he never grew up. He just he, he's he's in, he's not an adult. He, in, in, in psychologically, he's he's uh, still uh, under the age of five, in, in in certain sense. In a certain sense, as he said, uh, he's not a monk. But anyway, so I have the back. title. I have your next title, Matt Gates, G A Y T Z. I like that. Thank you. I'll, I'll use that. Okay. Okay. Uh, I do write an article or two about him every week, so, you know, why not? Uh, so, so Gates, uh, you know, in fact, the first time that this story started to break, the first thing he said, he volunteered out of nowhere. No, no one asked him. He said, uh, when they accused him of having sex with a 17-year-old, he didn't say I didn't have a sex. I didn't have a sex. I didn't have sex with a seventeen-year-old. He said it was a woman. <laughs> That's all he that was, So the first instinct was not even to deny it. The first instinct was to say I'm not gay, which he he did say several times uh, as well. He, I mean that that he says he's not gay in a way that convinces everyone who is gay that he's gay, or at least bisexual, or you know like. Is a sliding term, right? And and yeah. and we should point out that if this kid is underage, that's not that's not gay. That's child abuse, right? Right. Which is what which is you're right, and that is really what I think. He is, he's he, he's a pedophile. He's maybe a bisexual pedophile, but primarily a pedophile who likes people significantly younger than him. And it doesn't matter if it's a male or a female, he just likes young people. Like, and and that, I, that's a pedophile, right? Isn't that what that means? I think so, yes. Okay. So that's his thing. Uh, and, you know, if, you know, this story get, gets more sort of filled in every day. Uh, and, uh, you know, now I'm hearing that the Republicans have actually decided that, you know, because at first they, uh, they, McCarthy came out and said, well, if he's found guilty, we'll kick him off his committees, which was, that's a shocking thing to say because it's insane. The, the only thing to say is if he's, if he's indicted, we'll kick him off his committees. Now they've gone further. They said if he's indicted, they will demand he resign from Congress. So beyond kicking him off his committees. So they got such bad feedback 
for, and, and I, I assume inside information that they're, they, they want him out. I mean, they really want this guy uh, gone. You know, several Republicans went running to the, uh, to the prosecutor and said, he's showing me naked pictures of a girl in a hoop. <laughs> right, right. So this was Bill Barr's Justice Department that started yes, this. Yes, Right. That's right. And he, but he's a Trump loyalist. So it's he, not, it's not he as... He is very close to Trump. Uh, you, you, pro, you, you recall the early pictures of him. Uh, you know, the, the famous one was when he was trying to get AOC to date him. Uh, right after she was elected, he was like, you know, trying trying to go out with her, and she was having none of it. And there were a lot of pictures of him floating around at that time. And he, you know, he, he his head was so huge, in, in, you know, in the, in the in the sense of like, you know, big jowls, and he was, you know, very 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 overweight. He was a really overweight guy. And uh, and then Trump said to him, "You you think you're going to represent me on TV?" And, you know, he said, yeah, I'd like to. And he said, well, okay, I, I'd like you to as well, but you can lose 100 pounds first. Can you do that? And now he's felt. Well, not for long. Uh, so. I don't know if you do that well in, in, in prison, do they? I guess it's a lot of calories that you get in prison. What 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 is going on? Because I always expected, it, it, this is really early, you know, that's the first hundred days of the Biden administration, and we're seeing the a cleaning of the the house, literally. But it's not coming from Trump yet. It's coming from the actual Justice Department. What happens when Trump and Putin starts cleaning house? Aren't they going to start going after all the disloyal Republicans? Aren't we going to start getting more of? Yeah, well, Trump is already going after disloyal Republicans in a big in a big way. I mean, he is absolutely determined to end the political careers of uh, Cheney, for example, and uh, Murkowski is another example, and Adam Kinzinger is another example. I mean, he's you know he's putting effort into recruiting candidates and uh, supporting them in a way that they're going to win. In fact, I just saw a poll. That came out. I think it's a private poll, but someone sent it to me from Alaska, showing that um, whatever her name is, uh, this woman named Chewbacca, is going to beat or is, is beating and leading um, the. They have a general primary there, so it, so it's it's a top two thing. It doesn't differentiate by party, so it's just like California, except the four top people all get in all get into the uh, runoffs and number one by quite by quite far is this uh, Chewbacca woman who's a, who's a very very far right Trumpist uh, neo-fascist and uh, Lisa Murkowski is the Republican in that race and she's coming barely coming in second to a Democrat hmm. what what can we expect I mean I'm, you've given us You've provided us over the years. Uh, I'm not fishing for gossip, but oh, I love gossip. Yeah, let's do it. And you've been you've Fish. been correct. Uh, the, the stuff about Gates, I, I didn't know. Uh, uh, I, I, I do remember him. He didn't so, read my blog. I've been literally. It's hard to. It's hard to miss. I've just been writing about it for years and years the about Gates. About the kid. I mean, I didn't get it. I, I mean, I, I wrote about his son a lot. Yes, but, uh, yes. But, and before that, he had a roommate 
in college who auto-asphyxiated, erotic auto-asphyxiated, whatever it is, and he was accused of um, maybe killing the guy or maybe being part of, maybe, there was, maybe it was an innocent mistake, but they moved the body to the other side of the state so that it wouldn't be uh, associated with him. And if in, in any other state it would have been investigated, but his father was the president of the Florida State Senate at the, at the time and extremely rich, and he, he shut down the investigation. So it was never really investigated. Hopefully they'll investigate it now. I mean, there's right. a dead body. Right, right. I didn't make the connection when I read, when, when he talked about this kid and he said, my family... And for some reason, I thought Gates was married because he he talked. He, about, you know, he's now that this is coming out, he has a so-called fiance, right? As Republicans tend to do. I mean, I, I, who is it? Was it Hall, not Hawley? Oh, that one from Arkansas, uh, Tom Cotton. When it started coming out about him, he met he you know his campaign manager uh, persuaded his secretary to marry him. So he's also uh, Tom Cotton. You know, Tom Cotton is gay as well. Yeah. Tom Cotton, the, the senator from, from the senator from Arkansas. Yes. Well, he went to Harvard. You know, they all, aren't they all gay up there? Uh, Ask any Republican. Tom Cotton, a Republican. Yes. Is a is uh, wow. Is now a, is now a married man, and 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 I presumably. Uh, isn't sneaking off to uh, rest stops on the highway, but I don't know. Maybe he is. So you're saying Tom Cotton is a fan of the movie Polyester. That was I am saying that he was an extra in Polyester. <laughs> <laughs> he, played, he played Esther. <laughs> wow. So as long as he remains loyal to Trump, that won't come... That won't come out, right? I don't know that Trump knows about Tom Cotton. I don't know that he reads down with tyranny. But I, I think that there are, I mean, the one that I'm positive that Trump does know about, unquestionably knows about, is Lindsey Graham. That's the one that everybody knows about. Right. So, so you know, like everyone was, was asking, for example, when this whole thing came out about his, uh, about um, Gates' son, Everyone, you know, the big joke was around is when, when is Lindsey Graham going to introduce us to his son? <laughs> and the, and they are now pushing. The, the reason this is more than just gossip is the Republicans are clinging to the uh, culture wars on transgender yes. bathrooms and defunding. Ramping them up big time now. I'm sorry, what? They're ramping them up big time now. Not too smart. Is it? Well, uh, no, I don't think so. They do. They think it's going to help them to consolidate uh, the the, uh, the Trump base, which is what they want to do. They're they're afraid that the people who voted for Trump might not turn out for them just the way they didn't turn out for them in uh, in 2018. So that so that's what they're nervous about. So they they've decided to embrace uh, you know Trump Trumpishness. Right. So that's well, I think like a bunch of dicks now. Uh, what are you cooking? I mean, Matt voted against the gay equality bill. How do you, how do you, you know, I don't know what he does with Nestor, but how does he do whatever he does with Nestor? How does he do it and then vote against the gay equality bill? How horrible is that? Right. You, you got to give Matt Gates credit. He was the only congressperson 
who voted against this new law that bans uh, sex trafficking. Right? Well, there was like a, yeah, he at least was honest about that. Yeah, he was the only person in Congress who voted against a, a bill. That's right. Not one Republican and not one Democrat, just Matt Gates. So and that is shock, shocking. You could, and a lot of his, um, a lot of his colleagues remarked on that. Right. Because they knew before we did what was going on. I mean, the ones he was running around. And, I mean, he's basically, you know, operating as a pimp. He's offering these, uh, you know, these young women. I don't know if others of them were underage. They might have been. But he's offering them to his colleagues and colleagues who were very offended by it in some cases. Wow. So- but, you know, some of people, some of these, you know, really crazy right wing people happen to really believe and some of them don't believe. Some of them are full of shit. And they don't believe in in, uh, in Christianity at all. It's not part of their thing. They, they they don't care about it. But some of them do. And, and you know, Alan Grayson told me that at the core of everything that Louis Gohmert does is his very very deep belief in in his version of um, of Christianity. Right. Obviously, an insane version of Christianity. But Alan said Alan got to know him. And he said he's a, he is absolutely sincere. There's no bullshit. And, you know, and Alan knew that lots of them were bullshit. But not, uh, not Louis Gohmert. Now, a- Alan Grayson. One more thing before we move on to Alan. Yes. Uh, I just want to mention, which was um, Ro Khanna wrote a bill uh, to get us out of the, I, I think it was specifically, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think it was specifically to get the U.S. to stop being involved in any way with the war in Yemen. I think that was, the, I mean, I know he did write a bill about that, and I think that's the bill I'm referring to when I say he co-sponsored it with uh, Matt Gates. So he got to know Gates. Gates had some input into the writing of the bill, although basically it was a bill that was written by, um, by Roe and Roe's staff. But, uh, but but it wasn't just a passive uh, uh, collaboration. Uh, Gates, according to Roe, Gates did uh, participate in it. And then I asked Roe if he would introduce me to Gates, and he said, sure. And he did. And Gates refused, <laughs> refused to talk to me, even though uh, even though Roe vouched for me and said I, I you know I wouldn't I wouldn't be a jerk to him. But <laughs> Gates refused. To wait. So. There's nothing anybody can do. This is years ago, by the way. He can't get pardoned. He's going to prison, right? Well, yeah. Well, the thing is, he doesn't want to be kicked out of uh, Congress. He knows it's it's just a matter of time. But being a member of Congress is a gigantic bargaining chip. I'm sorry, a, a, a gigantic bargaining chip when you plead. So he will he will do a plea bargain eventually, and the from what I'm hearing, he just wants to not serve time. He, you know, he, he'd like them to give him a year suspended sentence. They say that it's a twenty year uh, it's a twenty year uh, penalty, and there's no way around it that it, it's mandated. But he he's thinking, or his lawyers are thinking, that if he holds on to his congressional seat. That that's a big enough chip for him to, for, to keep him out of prison. That's why I'm sure he was so upset when um, it was leaked today that the Republican House leadership is now saying if he's indicted, he, we're going to call for his uh, resignation from Congress. Because if he resigns from Congress, he has nothing. He has nothing to offer. It, it's the ones who you know, the ones who are still in Congress. 
they get, they they wind up not getting sentenced, or they get very you know they get very very weak sentences. Look, they don't serve a lot of time. I, I wanted to ask you about Georgia in our limited time, but very quickly, we've talked about accelerationism on this show. That if things get so bad, the American people will wake up and go. Finally, you know, yes, I'm wrong about the Republicans, but you warned that no, what happens is. The, everybody's going to abandon the Republican Party and we're just going to be left with these crazed ideologues, which seems to be the case there. It feels like there's a like a major crack up in the Republican Party reminiscent of what was it, 2005, 2006, when Pelosi got the gavel back. There were a lot of there was the page scandal. Are are we about to see just enough of a crack up for Pelosi to keep the gavel for 2022? Um, I don't know if it's going to... I think she has a good chance... Well, she's leaving. But I think that the Democrats have a good chance of keeping the majority. Uh, you know, I know that that's counterintuitive and counterhistorical, but uh, I do believe it, it, it's very possible. Uh, there are a lot of factors that go, go in there. One of them is, again... If you want to talk about uh, historical, the Republican, the Trump voters did not come out uh, in 2018. They came out in 2016 to vote for Trump, and then many of them voted for Republicans down ballot. And then they didn't come out in 2018, and then in 2020 they were back again and came out and they voted down ballot as well. Are they going to come out in 2022? So that's a, that's a valid question. There is a partisan realignment. The Republicans seem to think they can. Uh, make up for losses in the in, in the middle class suburbs by winning over uh, working class people, and to some extent they have done that. But are they at the end of that rope or the, at the beginning of it? And that is what it's going to determine who uh, is in the majority in twenty twenty two. Very quickly, I was going to ask you about the infant. We don't have enough time. Uh, I wish you could come back Thursday, but very quickly. Coca-Cola, speaking of crack-ups, the way the Republican legislature in Georgia has responded to Delta, Coca-Cola, uh, coming out against the they voter call, you know suppression. What they call it? Go ahead. Do you know what they call Coca-Cola now? What? Woca-Cola. Woca-Cola. That's not bad. Thank you. Yeah. Woca-Cola. This is an example of the Republicans turning on big business, which means big business is going to find an even bigger home in the Democratic Party. This is going to make the Democrats worse, isn't it? Yes. There you go. That was easy, huh? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's it, you know it's been going on for quite some time. The you know the Chamber of Commerce, which used to be strictly a Republican operation, is no longer that. <laughs> they have a lot of uh, very nice things to say about uh, Biden and other conservative Democrats. Now keep in mind, uh, these kind of business groups are not they're not supporting Pramila Jayapal and Ro Khanna. They're supporting Biden. And uh, Josh Gottheimer and and other uh, and uh, Blue Dogs and New Dems and they, you know in terms of progressives, no way they don't you know you don't see the Chamber of Commerce saying yes we're for AOC and Ilhan Omar that that ain't happening right <laughs> right 
I love you, Howie. You know, I needed this so badly. This Matt Gates story and Tom Cotton. God bless you. We love you. I love you, Howie. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Howie Klein, I can't wait till everybody gets their shots and we can go to Los Angeles with Mark Breslin. Howie Klein. Well, mine is a, a, a week from Thursday. Good, good. Howie Klein, founder, treasurer of the Blue America Pack. Folks, if you don't read Down with Tyranny and you just listen to this 30 minutes and you're still not going to Down with Tyranny every day, what the hell are you waiting for? Thank you, Howie. Thank you. Talk to you next week. Thank you so much. I just want to remind everybody that they're listening to The David Feldman Show. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, we do it via Zoom. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit attend a live taping. We do office hours. We do office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m., If you would like to attend office hours, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit attend office hours. We'll send you a link. It's a bit of a gated community. We don't uh, allow toxicity. You have to be kind to everybody and we'll send you a link. And if you can't behave, we will uh, keep you out of there. But uh, let us now go. Are you there, Henry Huckamacki? Indeed, I am. Hello, David. Hello. Very quickly, before you introduce our guests, great job on COVID Town Squares. That was one of the best. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, We had a good amount of people there, a lot of engagement, uh, several interesting topics, dispelled some myths, covered the latest on the vaccines. It was was a good time, and uh, we had a lot of fun. Yes, and I just want you to know, I'm asking uh, our other guests to turn on their video, but uh, I got my vaccine yesterday. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what one did you get, David? The the Pfizer. Ah, I got the Pfizer. So it's about uh, five weeks until you're relatively well protected at this point. With just one jab. Five weeks from now, you'll have had the second one plus two weeks after the second one. Great. Well, take it away, Henry. Huckamacki, you have some special guests. I do. First, we have returning to the show for, I think, the third time, maybe the fourth. We have my friend, Kayvon Shafi, who needs no further introduction for the listeners of the audience. Uh, They're quite familiar with Kayvon at this point. But also joining us for the first time is journalist and Kayvon's co-host of Greatest Sin podcast, Seamus Malefkas. Seamus, why don't you say your last name? Because I mess it up every time I try to say it. Sure, sure, sure. Um, my name is Seamus Malikavsley, and I know, I understand I'm being asked to start my video. I like just like to say my webcam has been broken for two years. Okay. But, yeah. No problem. No problem. So, guys, it's nice to have you both on the show. I, I've listened to Greatest Sin episode two now, which... Um, just as episode one was great listeners. If you haven't subscribed to the greatest sin podcast yet, and you're interested in Iran, you certainly do need to subscribe to that. But before we talk about some of the podcast related things, why don't we look at some upcoming uh, events for Iran? So coming up in June, uh, June 18th, Iran is going to be having their next presidential elections. 
Hassan, uh, Hassan Rouhani is terming out. He's not able to run for re-election. And uh, to my understanding, he's not particularly popular at the moment right now anyway. So even if he was eligible to run, that might not go super well for him. But before you talk about who, who, what kind of the dynamic of, the, uh, of Iran right now is in terms of the way that the political winds are blowing within the country and how you see the election kind of shaping up as we stand right now, it might be useful for you to explain to the listeners how the presidential election process happens in Iran, because it is slightly different than the United States is, uh, particularly with the vetting process of candidates. So uh, one of you, whoever wants to take it, can you explain how, how the uh, presidential election process runs and maybe talk about the election monitoring agency and the guardian council in that process? Um, I wrote recently um, a couple articles about this, so I can take it if uh, yeah, one. That, yeah, I, yeah, sure. I, that was I, I had seen your article, so I, I was hoping that you would pick that up. Yeah, yeah. This is Seamus's wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, the Iranian presidential election system works in a different way than the American one, in the sense that anti-establishment candidates are forbidden from running. Um, you have to believe in the principles of the Islamic Republic in order to run for president, and. Even that isn't enough. You need to be able to, uh, in a sense, not rock the boat too much. Even former presidents like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and Rafsanjani have been rejected from running uh, a second time when they've tried to. Um, it's a very opaque process, but generally speaking, um, if you're pro-government enough, they will let you run. But then again, that's not a total guarantee. And that leads to a very uh, narrow um, political spectrum of candidates from which you can choose from, but that's not to say that it is not competitive. It's very competitive um, because within that spectrum of people that you can vote for, there are distinct policies that can take the country in a very different direction from the previous administration. Um, there are two general competing wins that seem to be propping up in that recent economic downturn caused one by the crippling sanctions by America, um, the failure of the JCPOA, and additionally economic mismanagement um, by the current administration has created a lot of um, anti-establishment type thinking, not necessarily anti-Islamic Republic, um, because it's been polled that Iranians trust in their own government, which is at its lowest point in years is still something like 30 to 40% higher than Americans in their own government. Um, But it's resulted in a lot of backing toward people like Ahmadinejad again, who has completely revitalized popularity, but Ahmadinejad is 99% sure he's not going to be able to run. And what it seems to be is that the government is coalescing around wanting a conservative to run and to win. And those that's going to be the spectrum that a lot of analysts are saying is going to be uh, what's what's going to be favored in that respect. So you, you mentioned Ahmadinejad, and it's an interesting point that, as you said, he's almost certain to not be vetted and allowed to run for the election. But he is quite popular at the moment, even though he left office with pretty diabolical approval ratings, it must be said. But I had been looking at some of the approval or the uh, the polling data in terms of 
opinion polls for who people would vote for in this upcoming election. And back in October, there was some polls that came out that showed Akhmedinejad with almost a four times uh, advantage over the second highest polling potential candidate. Uh, he was at something like 37%, and the second leading candidate was at about 10 uh, And then now it's interesting. We had uh, another poll come out in February that showed Ahmadinejad in, in second place, just about just over half of what was in first place. Uh, but the first place individual is Ibrahim Raisi, who for uh, almost a year at this point has been publicly declaring that he's not running for president. Uh, at all. Not only is he not going to be vetted for president, he's not running, uh, yet he has almost double the support of the second leading candidate. So, uh, Kayvon, maybe I can turn to you now. Can you make sense of this whole situation? Why is Akhmedinejad popular right now? And I will put a pitch out for his Twitter page because it's it's great. Um, so I think Seamus is going to have to chime in here. I, you know, I, I think we have to take a lot of these uh, polls with a grain of salt, of course. Uh, they're quite small. Shame- I'll mention they're, they're very small polls. They only have about a thousand people in them. Right. So, and Seamus can probably talk about their methodological reliability. Um, but Ahmadinejad, even when I lived in Iran uh, in 2005, when he first ran, uh, he was quite popular um, across the political spectrum because he he describes himself as a populist. And at that time, he was running against both reformist candidates and some of whom might might run again uh, in this presidential election, though it remains to be seen whether they'll get approved. And also Rafsanjani, the former president of Iran. And the election went into a second round and, and he defeated Rafsanjani allegedly pretty, uh, pretty convincingly. Um, you know, is he popular today with uh, with average Iranians? I'm not. I'm not sure whether I can answer that one way or the other. Um, he is someone who has this, uh, uh, you know, larger than life personality, um, and is you know is kind of perceived popularly uh, as 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 a bit of a. Um, goofball uh, of sorts, um, in particular on, on Twitter, um, he's kind of a character who, you know, who, who tweets in solidarity with Black Lives Matter movement and, uh, and, and interacts um, with, uh, with, with just about anyone, <laughs> including uh, one of the, the hosts of uh, Trap or Trap House podcast. Um, I, you know, so in terms of his uh, his his actual popularity, I mean, I think he's a very polarizing figure, especially given what happened in two thousand nine in Iran. Uh, but he is uh, someone who who. Uh, kind of fell out of favor at some point during his second term with the administration and has kind of tried to rebrand himself as uh, as an oppositional figure. So it's not at all implausible that he's popular among some segments of Iranian society. But Raisi is also uh, um, someone who um, has uh, has 
has appealed to uh, lower income working class people. He was the opposition candidate in the last election, and um, he he you know he lost, but not by a wide margin. And uh, one of the things that you have to also like bear in mind about Amer- Iranian politics, uh, of course, elections in Iran, presidential elections. Uh, really officially start about two or so months before the election, unlike the American election where it just like, you know, unfolds over a period of like multiple years. But um, but people are always kind of talking and whispering about who's going to run. And and in keeping with various Iranian customs, these folks always say, I'm not going to run. I'm going to let this other guy run. And and then come the day of actually signing up uh, for the election, um, a lot of them come out of their, you know, their uh, uh, their their various hiding places and uh, and and they enroll in the election. So, yeah, Raisi is somewhat popular. Ahmadinejad is somewhat popular as well. But as Shavas was pointing out, there's also a vacuum of. Uh, of of reformist uh, um, activism right now in Iran, um, uh, p- partially because uh, the candidates of the reformists oftentimes are rejected by by uh, the vetting councils. Um, so it's not implausible that Ray C will run. It's in fact very likely that he will run. Uh, but if not, someone who is very very ideologically. Um, close to Raisi's worldview will definitely be uh, on the ballot come come June. And just to fill in a gap there, I believe Raisi is the the judiciary minister in Iran, if I'm remembering correctly. And his statements as to why he was not running was to not allow there to be too crowded of a conservative field so that, you know, they could more or less coalesce, which is something that happens in Iran pretty frequently. But as you said, it's all up in the air as to who those few candidates that actually do get vetted are. Seamus, did you have anything that you wanted to add on that, on that topic? I I would add on that um, Raisi's popularity in particular as also Ahmadinejad's popularity and other conservative figures that were previously more unpopular has been because they've spent a lot of time recently going up against the president who, as you mentioned earlier, astronomically unpopular. I mean, we're talking about approval ratings in the single digits. Sometimes Um, when you oppose yourself to Rouhani very publicly, that will result in your approval ratings going up um, very much so. And it's a very observable effect, but it kind of remains to be seen um, how well that will, uh, proceed when the actual election season happens, because uh, a lot of elections have had places where, I mean, someone like Ali Ba, for example, who ran in 2013, started at the top of the polling, but as debates went on, because debates matter in Iran, you know, tanked. Um, the same thing could happen for Ali Ba again, or Raisi again, or if someone was allowed to run, that could happen to him again as well. Is there any other candidates that you know, you think would be interesting candidates that we should be aware of. Of course, as we've been saying, it's really hard to predict ahead of time who's going to be in that final field. But is there anybody that would be of particular interest to either of you if they did end up in that final field of candidates? I would say Javad Zarif, the current foreign minister, if he uh, wanted to run. But as much as Kevon says that a lot of candidates do this whole song and dance where they say that they don't want to run, they want someone else to run. Zarif, more than anyone, I assume, has no interest in running because he seems very dedicated to the foreign service. Um, he's tried to resign a couple of times and has been rejected. Um, 
uh, he I think he's probably the only Rouhani official who has retained any semblance of popularity um, since the tanking of the administration's popularity. He has a lot of uh, affinity with the Iranian public. He's very eloquent, both in English and in Farsi. Um, he's very uh, passionate about what he does. And but that passion comes with the fact that he doesn't particularly seem to like um politicking and being involved with the parliament and doing all these different things, which is instrumental to uh, being president, unfortunately. Kayvon, anything you want to add? No, I think it would be very interesting to see whether Zarif runs. Uh, there has been a lot of speculation. He was tremendously popular uh, in in uh, 2015 uh, when he brokered the deal with uh, the United States alongside John Kerry. And there was a lot of talk back then of, of, of a uh, future Zarif presidency. I, you know, like Seamus was saying, he's, he's, uh, he's signaled um, – both that he might and he might not run. He seems to be more emphatic that he won't, but, uh, but it will be interesting whether, whether that changes because he would be arguably the opposition candidate to any conservative candidate who will emerge um, in, in, uh, you know, in April, May. Um, he served both in the cabinet of Khatami, the reformist president of Iran, and he's now also serving the cabinet of, uh, of Rouhani, the centrist president. So, you know, he's someone who kind of, uh, um, successfully bridges the gap between the centrist and uh, and and the reformists, but but we'll see what happens. So before we turn over to again podcast related things, I want to do one one other brief wrap up on more current events, which is we've been mentioning frequently that the the popularity of the government really has tanked in the past few years, and I want to just dig into a few of the reasons why, and I, I can. Uh, point out one of the more interesting recent events, but I, I'd like you two to talk about perhaps some of the, the deeper seated issues here. One of the things that always struck me as interesting is, is if you looked at the popularity, uh, the approval ratings really of the Iranian government in terms of the, the faith in the government of the populace, it had been continuously going down because of, you know, in, in part because of sanctions but then after Soleimani was killed in the beginning of January last year, the this approval rating of the government soared. But within a week, the government shot themselves back in the foot uh, by shooting down a Ukrainian airliner. That was within a one-week period. So you saw this crazy swing in favorability ratings of the government over the course of a week because it had been plummeting, plummeting, plummeting. And then all of a sudden it shoots back up because... The Iranian people see a foreign power interfering in their domestic affairs, uh, killing perhaps the most loved figure in the country, perhaps, otherwise the second most popular. But then they completely shoot themselves in the foot or shoot known goal or whatever analogy you want to use here. And their popularity absolutely tanks again within a one week period of time, uh, which just goes to show the volatility of the situation at this point where popularity can swing so dramatically, so rapidly. But what are some of the other reasons why the popularity of the government is so low right now? I mean, you can talk about, I mean, there's been polling done on this in that where Iranians across the board identify that sanctions are a massive problem that is 
critical to the situation of the Iranian economy. There is also a belief that economic mismanagement by the government has led to additionally a lot of um, a lot of heart. Um, Ahmadinejad, um, a lot of his administrations were marked by economic plans that were meant to benefit the poor, but they. Uh, ended up having no planning. Um, Rouhani's administration uh, in particular um, had a lot of great plans for um, economic investment that was banking on the JCPOA. And then when the JCPOA failed because of problems that a lot of politicians had brought up that America really could not be trusted in this way long-term, then the economy completely tanked. There were no uh, mechanisms in place to protect against this. Um, one of the highest GDP growth rates in the country's history was replaced by one of the low, by, you know, uh, descending into, into rock bottom. Um, there is a real sense that there is no uh, real consistent coherent path forward for what a lot of politicians are calling a sanctions proof economy because there's a belief that there needs to be some way to resist these kinds of sanctions but nobody really has uh, any plan on how to do it the economic growth rate is very stagnant um, nobody has an idea what's going on and when you have no idea what's going on and all the administration can do is go increasingly right wing to meet uh, opposition opinions and then they respond to criticism by uh, shutting down other opinions or even in some cases shooting protesters, um, your approval rating is going to continue to tank and tank and tank. And there's not an easy way out of that kind of spiral, um, unless, of course, um, America tries to start a war with you and then there are other ways of uh, going about that. Yeah. Kayvon, anything yeah, that you want to add? Right. I mean, Seamus is absolutely right. Rouhani ran as the candidate who would be able to bring the United States to the negotiating table. Um, you know, that was the promise of, of his presidency. So he staked quite a lot on, on a deal between Iran and the U.S. And I think like, almost all of us, um, he did not foresee a Trump presidency, um, you know, a regression into the era of, of, uh, of zero diplomacy, severe crippling sanctions, um, and, and internal economic chaos. Um, and, you know, and, and that gamble, uh, um, didn't, um, uh, uh, come to, fruition in the way that he had hoped uh so you know uh, like I'm, I'm teaching a global justice course right now and oftentimes one of the things that we talk about is like the ways in which domestic and global justice influence each other there's only so much he can do when you know he his administration is fighting the most vicious sanctions uh in the history of sanctions. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, he was someone who promoted himself as the, the candidate of diplomacy. And, and when the sanctions were, were uh, reinstated um, and the economy tanked, uh, people grew frustrated and his approval rating started to dip. Um, so I think people in Iran are very cognizant of what's happening uh, outside the country and why they are in the situation that they are today. But at the same time, you have to feed your family um, at the end of the day. And when the government is doing so very little, um, you know, even with their hands kind of tied to, to rectify that situation, you start getting frustrated. Now, you know, couple that with the fact that 
uh, you know, there were protests that the government responded to extremely violently in 2019. Then there was this shooting of the plane, um, which is not entirely the fault of the government. I mean, you know, the support, the military is kind of its own independent entity, but the government really was in the dark about the whole affair, which reflected how totally incompetent they are when it comes to contain the military. So, you know, you combine all of this stuff uh, and yeah, you're, you're going to get um, some very, very unpopular views about Rouhani. And you also have to bear in mind that this is, this is kind of cyclical to the history of electoral politics in Iran. This happened during uh, the presidency, presidency of Khatami, arguably the most po- popular political figure um, on the left in the history of Iran. Toward the end of his presidency, he was extremely unpopular, not as unpopular as Rouhani, but a lot of, you know, false promises uh, uh, were offered. And uh, and he he left, succeeded by Ahmadinejad. Uh, and it seems like we're kind of back in that era where a centrist candidate with, with close alliances with reformists couldn't deliver on all the things that he promised. Um, and therefore he's leaving with high on approval ratings and a conservative will, will, uh, will take over um, after his, after Rouhani's term is over. So this is not entirely unpredictable or, you know, um, new, but um, it just, it doesn't pretend particularly well for the future of Iran because, um, and Seamus can probably speak to this, but a conservative presidency will not be good for um, improving diplomatic relations between Iran and the U.S. Yeah, I'll I'll be brief about that. I mean, the conservatives in Iran right now are against any and all diplomacy with the United States under the current circumstances, um, unless all sanctions are lifted. And even then, out of that point, there's no real reason to do so if what they're trying to build is something of a war cabinet to be in this constant uh, state of tension with the United States. it's, it's going to be lost for at least four years, maybe eight, um, if the conservatives win. And I think that's what it's heading toward unless something incredible happens. Yeah, and they're also not wrong, right? Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing is that it's, yeah. it's very difficult to counter yeah. the conservative argument that the United States can't be trusted because even people in the Iran opposition at this point, like, it's so obvious. Like, why would Khamenei right. trust the United States to do this? Because, of course, they were going to rip it up. Of course, they were going to ditch it. Yeah, this it, is, it's like, very the first time. Matter. Yeah, I mean, like, Seamus and I are both, like, you know, leftist, um, and we're very critical of the conservatives in Iran. But, like, you know, it's it's hard to watch what Khamenei or the conservatives are saying and be like, oh, yeah, that's idiotic. Why would they do that? Because they're totally within their rights to be like, well, we're very suspicious of the U.S., given that, you know, it took us years to broker this deal with the United States. And then one presidency later and everything goes out the window. Yeah, I think that that's a good a good summary. And we're not going to have enough time to get into some of the other topics that I had planned. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have one of you tell the listeners what the first two episodes of greatest sin podcast were about just briefly what episode one was about what episode two is about. And then the other one of you can talk about what episode three is going to be about um, before we wrap this up. So Uh, who wants, who wants to cover the past episodes? I'll I'll cover the past episodes. Um, (laughs) Episode one was uh, about the constitutional revolution 
of the 1900s, where Iran received its first actual liberal democracy, and how foreign intervention from Russia, from the Russian Empire, and from Britain um, essentially exterminated it, and how additionally they squashed a socialist republic that was being built in Iran's north because of the threat of a, uh, a Soviet uh, uh, invasion of sorts. Um, and in episode two, uh, we talked about the, uh, the Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran, uh, the creation of the, the Pahlavi dynasty, the last uh, monarchical dynasty of Iran, and additionally how the Soviets exploited the separatist movements of the Kurds and the Azerbaijanis, um, gave them briefly uh, full rights to express their language and culture, and then as soon as the Soviets were granted an oil concession, they left them behind to be uh, defeated by the Iranian army. Yeah, so building on all of that in episode three, we're going to talk about um, the first half of the reign of Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, the last king of Iran in his history of 2,500 years of monarchy, and the rise of his greatest political adversary, perhaps, uh, uh, Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh, who would become the, the democratically elected and selected prime minister of Iran during what we now refer to as the 1953 British and CIA-backed coup, um, wherein Mossadegh, who had tried to nationalize the oil industry, was deposed uh by, by the British, by the Americans um, who had engineered uh, a, 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 an uprising against them. And in the aftermath of that, uh, Reza, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the same job, was reinstated. And that would kind of set the scene for ultimately the revolution of 1979, this crisis of legitimacy. Yeah, and I've, I've definitely enjoyed the first two episodes, plus the, the intro episode to each of you. Um, and I really hope that when you get into the period of the 70s that you're going to be talking about the Fedai guerrillas uh, because this is a you know, well, they broke up into several groups, but um, it is a group that I'm quite interested in. And I see that Adnan is in the audience. I'm hoping that we'll have an episode devoted to the Fedai guerrillas uh, in guerrilla history at some point because they were a, a very interesting group in the lead up to the uh, Islamic revolution in 1979. In any case, we're pretty much out of time. Why don't I have you guys pitch how the listeners can find you and your latest work? I see Seamus, you've just hit the 100, uh, paying subscriber mark on your Substack. So congratulations on that. How can the listeners find uh, you on Twitter and, and the work that you're writing? Um, I am on Twitter at, at Seamus underscore Malik, S-E-A-M-U-S underscore M-A-L-E-K. And you can find a link to my Substack in the bio of my Twitter. Um, five bucks a month gets you uh, extensive coverage of the upcoming running presidential election and other Middle Eastern affairs as I write them. And Kayvon? Yes, and uh, you can find me through Seamus's Twitter or alternatively, you can find me uh, as Islam phobia cow. Um, but yeah, I do recommend people subscribe to Seamus' Substack. It's really good. And uh, if they're also interested in listening to our podcast, you can go to greatestsinpod.com and uh, you know look us up on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also contribute uh, um, um, materially to, to support our work. Um, but yeah, we're all we're all we're all we're on all of the, the, the popular sites. Yeah, and I, I 
can't recommend the show enough for anybody that's interested in Iranian history. It's, it's really, it's been great for the first couple episodes and I am looking forward to when episode three comes out. So again, my guests were Seamus Malakaf Lee and Kayvon Shafi. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. David, quick note for you. I saw your note in the email that you sent out in, in regards to the scheduling change, and I might have a couple of conflicts with that. So look for an email from me tonight. I, okay, I, we, we should, and if you have time to, first of all, let me thank both your guests. Please come back as soon as you can. Thank you. Henry, I, wanna, I wanted to talk to you anyway, so if we can schedule some time tomorrow to go over stuff, that would be fantastic. Sure. Sure. Okay. All right. I'll I still email let, you tonight anyway. Okay. Let's set up a time to talk tomorrow. We should mention that Henry Huckamacki has a newsletter that everybody should subscribe to by going to patreon.com forward slash Huck1995. He writes about public health policy, science, and of course, COVID. You, you want to subscribe to this newsletter. Go to patreon.com forward slash Huck. 1995. Follow him on Twitter at Huck1995. And we are planning. And, our, subs- and subscribe to Gorilla History. And Gorilla. A, and of course, with two R's in Gorilla. I, I know some of these apps, even though the dictionary tells you it's correct both ways with either one R or two R, these apps don't figure that out and they'll only let you find us if you type it correctly with G U E R R I L L A. We have Dr. Harriet Fraud, who's about to join us. I polled our Zoom audience. Let me just remind our listeners, if they would like to attend our show via Zoom, join the chat room and ask questions on the show. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit attend a live taping, and I'll send you a link. And if you know how to behave, we'll let you stay. Some people we've had to remove. They violate the terms of service. This is a safe community for everybody. And I polled the chinwaggers in our group here, Henry, and maybe Dr. Harriet Fraud would like to venture a guest. I asked three questions, and I phrased it properly, Henry, because during COVID town squares... I insulted you by telling me you could have worked for Rasmussen polling yes. with the way that you worded questions. But I, yeah. in my defense, as I I did notice that I, had re, that I screwed up. Okay. First question, have you gotten at least one COVID shot? And we'll be asking this throughout the evening. Have you gotten at least one COVID shot? I asked, are you fully vaccinated against COVID? Yes or no. And the third question is, do you plan not to get vaccinated for COVID? I am planning to get vaccinated against COVID or I'm an imbecile. So just very quickly, as the poll is going along, uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud, who is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. We'll talk about your co-hosts in a second. Thank you for joining us. Let's start with number one of the audience members. What percentage of the people in our Zoom room do you think have all uh, have gotten at least one COVID shot? Oh, you have to unmute yourself, doctor. Do I need to do it? 100% is okay. what I would guess. Okay, so uh, let me, you, you broke up. The first question is, have you gotten at least one COVID shot? Yes or no? What percentage of the people in the Zoom room have gotten one shot? You, you said what, Dr. Fraud? 
I said, I bet it was a hundred percent. You have intelligent listeners. Okay. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with 55. 59% of the people in the zoom room have gotten their first shot. Okay. Number two, are you fully vaccinated against COVID? Yes or no? Dr. Fraud, what, what percent? The fully vaccinated is about 20%. Henry? Yeah. I'm going to say that your, your cohort is going to be a little bit younger uh, than keep going. Than yes. cohort. So I'm going to say 12%. Four, uh, 14%. I'm pretty close, David. Yeah, 14. 14% are fully vaccinated. Uh, okay. And finally, do you plan not to get vaccinated? For COVID, I am planning to get vaccinated against COVID, or I am an imbecile. What percentage of our <laughs> my audience? Uh, I, I I would assume it was would be much higher. I I have a big imbecilic demo mm-hmm. that I appeal to. What percentage of my audiences are imbeciles? Ten percent. You think ten percent of my audience are imbeciles? Yeah. That- Henry, yes. now I, I think that if you if you actually ask the people like in person, are you going to get vaccinated or not? The answer would be like ninety nine point nine percent that are going to get vaccinated. But I think that there's probably a few screwballs in the audience who are going to say I'm an imbecile just for the sake of saying I'm an imbecile. So I'm going to go with six percent. Seven percent of our studio audience are imbeciles. And I say one generation of imbeciles is enough. I believe Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great Oliver Wendell Holmes, in maintaining the legality of eugenics, said one generation of imbeciles is enough. All right. Hey, before we go, Henry, you, you want to comment on that? And No, I was just going to thank you for letting me on the show, David. Oh, thank you for... We'll talk tomorrow and we're going to... Fi- now, Dr. Fraud... This young man, who we all love, is going back to Germany. Indeed. Yep, I'm hoping beginning of June-ish You're is what I'll be. going back to Germany? Yeah, I got my first vaccine uh, middle of last week. And yeah, I'll, I should be fully vaccinated and immune. So two two weeks after my second vaccination by the beginning of June. So I'm looking for a cheap flight to uh, Hamburg at some point Are around that. Am I? Ge- no, I, I just do grad school there. I see. Good. Yeah, yeah it's free. Good idea. <laughs> Get out of here while I can. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. While the going is good and the yeah. air is not quite fully crumbled. Right. Good idea. Quick question before you go, Henry. If you're an undocumented American, can you get vaccinated or are they making it harder for undocumented Americans to get vaccines? That's a good question, David, and I'll have to get back to you on that. I know that I had seen one article. Uh, so, okay, so there's two articles that I've seen recently. One was that in a lot of prisons, they're mandating every prisoner get vaccinated, whether they want to or not. Uh, that would include whether or not the people in the prisons are undocumented or not. So anybody in prison under that under that reporting at least would be vaccinated as opposed to uh, individuals who say are migrant workers for example um, I would say the vast majority are not going to get vaccinated 
because at least up here you sign up through the health department and you have to have a, an address within the two counties that my health department covers. So if you don't have a, a legal address, I don't know how you would go about signing up uh, in an area like this, at least. So I, if you're homeless, most aren't, if you're homeless, there, there is a program now that I just saw. And this is a third article that I had seen within the last two days. Some cities, individual cities are instituting programs where they're going around to home, the homeless populations with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, because it's a one and done vaccine. You don't have to worry about follow up with any of those individuals. And they're going out and mass vaccinating anyone out in these these areas with uh, high amounts of homeless people with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that wants it. So in that case, yeah, I don't think that they would there would be any sign up my from my reading of that. And I really did just skim it. It sounds like they're going out with a boatload of needles uh, full of the Johnson Johnson vaccine and then going up to the people that are you know less fortunate and saying, do you want your COVID vaccine? And if so, they just done. Right. Last question. And I want to ask this to Dr. Fraud first and then to Henry and then we'll say goodbye to Henry. I know you're you're all busy. So I got my Pfizer vaccine yesterday and uh, they asked me a lot of questions. And I'm thinking if I were a right wing libertarian nutball, I wouldn't want the Centers for Disease Control knowing my birthday my address, my health history. Do we do does the CDC need to collect all that data? And if if you really wanted everybody to get vaccinated. Do you have to ask those questions? Don't they already have don't they have qualified immunity? Pfizer and Walgreens, they're not going to get sued by anybody. Can you understand why some right-wingers are not going to get vaccinated if they don't want to divulge that information? I think that they don't want to divulge anything to the state, which they see as their enemy, because they don't want to see capitalism as the enemy. So they blame everything on the government, and therefore they're enemies of the government to the last dot on the I. What do you think, Henry? Yeah, I think that there are going to be some people that are turned out I turned off by the collection of personal data. Mm-hmm. Although really the only way that you would be able to get around it would be using a one dose vaccine and just having a mass vaccination clinic. People come in, they get stuck in the army, say, nice to see you have a good day. But for all of the other vaccines, they're two dose vaccines. You, you can't schedule yeah. and, uh, you know, plan how many vaccines you need on hand for people that are coming in for their second vaccines and the timing of that and how to get a hold of people to give them a reminder on this day you have it. It's unavoidable, but I know that there are going to be people that even though they should know that it's unavoidable, they should know that trying to vaccinate 330 Amer- million Americans, most of whom are going to be getting two dose vaccines. So they're going to have to coordinate this amongst 200 million Americans, 250 million Americans, however many are getting the the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines or Novavax when that one is approved, which should be relatively soon. They should know that it's that it's a necessity for but public do you health, have to ask but it is going to turn off people. Well, I, can, I, I, I thought it. about, you know, I'm of a certain age and they asked me some questions about my health and I thought, 
it's nobody's business what my health is. I don't, you know, if I'm looking for work and we know what bosses are like, and if they find out that you're suffering from this, they're not going to want Why do you have to divulge all this data to get a shot? Well, it, okay, so why you have to say it to get the shot and why you have to give it to anybody in general are two different issues. So why you give it to somebody in general is because it is relevant. Mm-hmm. It's the same reason that your doctors collect a medical history on you. There is patient-doctor confidentiality. They're not allowed to divulge any of that information legally. They're not allowed to divulge any of that information with anybody who is not providing care to you. And this data is exactly the same. If you say, I suffer from rheumatoid arthritis, they can't tell your employer that. It's illegal for them to do so. The same way that your doctor can't go to your employer and say, hey, David Feldman has rheumatoid arthritis. You should probably make sure he's not stacking boxes on the Amazon warehouses because he's not going to be able to do but that. Police are also not allowed to shoot unarmed black men. Sure. That's what I, I'm just saying that legally, this is this is right. the reason for it. As to why they're collecting it for the vaccinations, there are legitimate reasons medically because there are conditions that are going to reduce the likelihood of the efficacy to be as high. So any autoimmune diseases... Um, where individuals are on immunosuppressant drugs, the efficacy of the vaccine is going to be dramatically lowered by those immunosuppressant drugs because you're not getting that kind of immune response to the vaccine that you should be getting. So it's useful for people to know that information. If you have allergies to any of the components of the vaccines and you filled out the form, you saw how many chemicals were listed on it. It's useful to know if the people are allergic to these things if you're going to be shooting them up with it, because if they are, they're going to have an allergic reaction, which is a bad thing. So, again, I know I I know that you don't want to divulge this information, but for medically necessary things, it is medically necessary. And then at that point, you just have to hope that they're going to follow the law and not divulge that information to anybody. And if it does come out that they have broken that law, the people have to hold the government officials to account because that is a lack of government oversight at that point. Great. We're eating into Dr. Fraud's time. Thank you, Henry. Yep. We'll talk tomorrow. Dr. Harriet Fraud sure. has uh, one you, of the yeah. reasons I, I um, uh, ate into your time is I can't imagine you wanting to do the show tonight after what you've been through. You have gone through a traumatic And we're not all the way through. And moving is just terrible. And we moved very quickly. So it was more terrible. But whatever, it's an oasis, this show, from the trivia and really boredom of moving boxes and unpacking. So it's a lovely opportunity. Thank you. Thanks. So do you mind? I'm not going to ask you for privacy reasons, but the the move, I, I said to you last week, they say that moving is up I, there with death. With, yeah, it's second only to losing, losing divorce or losing a loved one. Why? Why is it? Because we... It's literally dislocating because when you have a home, and of course, if you're homeless, you don't have a home. You have a lot of bags and you have to know what they are and what's in them. You have a sense of place in the world. This is my place. This is where I sleep. This is where my clothing is. You have a sense of order in your world. And if you're moving, you have no order in your world. You can't find things. They're in boxes. It took me three days to find my underpants. I mean, ridiculous. 
you're completely dislocated and it's a frightening experience to be out of control of your ordinary surroundings, the little things people can control. Right. And I remember the kids at Tompkins Square Park, the homeless kids that are there in the summer, nobody would dare touch their knapsack. That's what they have. That's what they know they have in the order that they have it. And if you take away the sense of mastery one has at one's surroundings, it's really, um, it's overwhelming to lose the mastery of where your things are and where you are in your physical world. So in terms of materialism, uh, one of the, one of my son came back from Germany three years ago to visit me and he showed, he's been, he's read capital one, two, you know, and he shows up with a knapsack and he says, everything I own is in this bag. And I said, good for you. Let's see if you can stay that way. And, uh, materialism and wanting to surround yourself with stuff, uh, we advise, I advise my kids against stuff because it's the cliche, it owns you. But we do have nesting instincts as human beings. We, we do want a safe, we want a cave, and mm-hmm. we want to be protected from the elements. And we want to know where our ring of stones is that cooks the meat for dinner. You want to know where the pots are that hold the grain you've collected. You want to have that little sense of mastery over your own little domain. And to have, whether that domain is your knapsack or your apartment, if it's shaken and you don't know where anything is, it's a literally and figuratively dislocating experience where you don't belong anywhere. So you've had time to reflect on this country and how it treats Refugees, homeless. Mm-hmm. That's right. Not not a proud record. No, a terrible record. And our country is a country of all immigrants, except the Native Americans who are treated the worst. And they came they through the Bering Strait. They're immigrants as well. They came yeah, from Russia. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. They were yeah. here when the pilgrims got here and they were shot. So, you know. So looking at... This country, which we don't like to admit it, but we're an empire. Mm-hmm. We are a declining empire. And one of the things that are Americans are feeling terrible about, even if they may know, not realize that this is in part the origin, is they're part of a, a country going down. They're part of a, a declining empire. And... In the 1950s, after all the other advanced economies were demolished, we were kings of the world. All opportunities were open. Everybody could get a job. Might not be the job of your dreams, but you could get a job. And people could live. And now that's not true. And now, in this pandemic, 60% of Americans faced unemployment at some point. And what has, I want to talk first about what happened. Well, what happened 
to show we are declining empire is throughout this period, our economy grew at the most two or three percent. China's grew six to nine percent. In the pandemic, 60 percent of Americans suffered unemployment at some period. And that means that they weren't getting any income. And so they had to use up whatever little savings they have. And we have to remember, before the pandemic, 40% of Americans didn't have $400 in the worst emergency. So it's not like people have a lot of savings. So they had to sell what they had, borrow, move in with other people, were traumatized. Mm-hmm. And that's some people stayed unemployed the whole time. Other people only shortly. But it's a dislocating and traumatizing and financially punitive experience. China doesn't have that kind of problem. Also, the pandemic showed the entire world. It showed them even better than the fact that we haven't cleanly won any war since World War II. In the pandemic, they don't have coronavirus anymore. Wuhan's citizens can march around, dance, and do whatever they can because they have conquered that for their population, which is over four times more than our population. They are exporting their Sinovirus all over the world and helping the Africans with it. Americans are holding on to whatever vaccines they have, and we have the most deaths in the whole world per population, which is criminal. And so our the view of America at the top of the world is tumbling. And I think what it's meant for Americans is this sense of the doors of opportunity are closing on your fingers. And unless you're connected, you're going to be having a hard time And so the whole myth that sustained us, if you're male and you work hard, you'll be able to make a life and you'll be able to support a family. And after that, if you have two people working, you'll be able to have a decent life, a decent middle-class life. Now, if you have two people working full-time and they are looking for a place to live, there is and they both get minimum wage, there is neither a city or a state or a county where they could afford a two-bedroom apartment. Amazing. Two Amazing. full-time, so they're working very hard. Maybe they're essential workers at minimum wage. They cannot ever have a two-bedroom apartment, and we're not talking about houses here. So that this, the American dream is no longer attainable. And what it means... And that's not the American dream. The American dream isn't just getting by. No, that's the not the dream. Prosperity was each generation, as long as they were white and in families headed by males, each generation could do better than the last. That's not true. They're doing worse. 60% of older people, people over 60, 60 and 60, are helping their children financially because their children aren't doing so well, because their children aren't doing as well as they did. And so that, that's another sign of people at loss because the American dream is dead. You have to be connected to have a real push ahead in life. And 
That was not the American dream. The American dream was you can do it if you really try, and in parentheses, and you're white and male, but no, nonetheless, or if you're associated with a white male, if you're a white woman who's supported by a white man. I'm old enough to remember it was a compliment to be called, pardon the expression, a self-made man. They didn't say self-made women, but a self-made man. My father was a self-made man. I mean, obviously he got where he was on the shoulders of others, the GI Bill and World War II, you know, that kind of stuff. But he took pride in the fact that nobody helped me. He knew that people helped him. It's I worked hard. I advanced myself economically and socially. Well, that party is overwhelmingly over. Yeah. And so the American mythology of hard work will advance you, that's over. And American dominance in the world is over. We still have military dominance in terms of weapons production, but we have lost every war since World War II, except Korea and Vietnam, where it was a draw. We didn't win. And so that we are defeated. In Afghanistan, where we've been for 20 years, the Taliban has won. They have more control than they did when we started. And so that people's dream is over, the dream of white women to be supported by their husband's family wages, that's over. And people are terrified and dislocated. And what it means is that politically, the right wing says, no, bring back white supremacy bring back male supremacy so that women can be protected by men and they'll cash in their secondary gender status for primary race status. And men, white men, can support families and be in charge and have a little business that isn't taken over by Walmart or Home Depot or Best Buy or anything else where their little restaurant isn't going to be now McDonald's or Wendy's or Burger King. They want to bring that back. They can't, and Trump has promised it. Just get rid of those pesky refugees and uppity women and black and brown people, and you'll you'll be king again. Are you seeing any shift with Biden as president? Yes, I think people are more hopeful because he's not terrible. And I live in New York City, which would have been destroyed had Trump continued. And so people are more hopeful. I think, in fact, they're a little more hopeful than they deserve to be because he's not FDR. He's not hiring 15 million people or 30 million people, which would be the equivalent of what FDR hired at good paying jobs. But he is much better than Trump and much more progressive And so people have more hope, but also they have more hope because the left is burgeoning. It's not united and it needs to be, but Black Lives Matter is all over. Before George Floyd, people were much less aware of the murder rate against blacks of white policemen and black policemen shooting black men and black women. There's a whole different awareness. There's a different awareness of sex abuse, because it's everywhere reported, even though it was routine. 
there are things that people that are changing and people are aware that they're changing race and gender things are changing faster than class awareness unfortunately but nonetheless the left is growing by leaps and bounds so that's an effect of the declining empire and the demand that we stop trying to police everyone else while we're failing and we stop spending a trillion dollars a year on weapons is growing because we need that china has never invaded anybody they've saved a lot of money by doing that well tibet yes but tibet was part of china and it wasn't like the kind of invasion of the us in iraq and afghanistan and so on and vietnam you know the they are not expending, they're expending a lot of resources on their military, but not like we are. There's yeah. 130 bases around the world that are known, aside from those that are unknown CIA posts. Right, right. But they, they have not expended their money that way. Right. And they are the ascendant economy, and they are the, they are the ascendant power. And that's an enormously important thing. Americans who want more educated workers are investing money in universities in Brazil, in China, in India, because they want, they don't, they've given up. They've thrown American workers on the slag heap. And that's a sign of a declining empire when the people who, who lead, which are the huge capitalists of the United States, letting it die right right and so that i think the psychological effects of either militancy and protest from the right extreme or the left medium and extreme are huge but also the despair of the population is huge which is why drug use suicide homicide child abuse domestic abuse food disorders, all the other symptoms of inequality, which is getting bigger and bigger. That's another symptom of a society going down. During the pandemic, 60%, as I said, experienced unemployment and therefore a cut in their standard of living. Whereas the top of our society, what is it, 661 billionaires? added a, a trillion dollars to their wealth, making the inequality even greater, which is another symptom of a country that can't survive. Right. And so I think in the air is a kind of despair at the dissolution of the American empire. And I should mention that the two great powers that emerged after World War II were the Soviet Union and the United States. The Soviet Union imploded out of its own corruption. And I think we're next. And I think Or we've already We're imploded. already starting to implode. I think, well, to Although be. they haven't been unseated, you know, our government hasn't been unseated and replaced yet. We we have to wrap it up. Uh, I think you're doing amazing considering going through the move <laughs> and uh I look forward to talking to you next week when Thanks. things are uh, a little more settled. Sure.
We're very I grateful. To that too. Thank, Thank you. you. Dr. Harriet Fraud, capitalism you. hits home and it's not just in your head. Who are the co-hosts? Just so we capitalism can. hits home co-host Juliana Forlano and it's not just in your head co-host Max Golding. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank, so, you. thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much. I want to remind you all that you're listening to The David Feldman Show. We do office hours every Friday at 8 p.m. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com to sign up. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience to attend a live taping of this program, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit attend a live taping. While you're over there, please sign up for my newsletter. All the guests on this show write amazing things. They produce amazing things. And our newsletter is a clearinghouse for the articles and the people who are talked about and appear on this show, including Professor David Schmidt. He is uh, the the, uh, author of... These, uh, well, I was going to mention natural-born celebrities, serial killers in American culture, but I should let Professor Adnan Hussein talk to us about this exciting guest. Hello, Professor Adnan Hussein. Please unmute Hi, yourself. David. Hi, David. Good to be with you. And I'm really delighted that uh, Dr. David Schmidt could join us. Um, he is, as you said, the author of uh, a book, Natural Born Celebrities, Serial Killers in American Culture. But he, his work uh, crosses all kinds of genres of crime and horror fiction. Um, he co-authored a book, a Zombie Talk, Culture, History, Politics. He's the editor of a collection called Violence in American Popular Culture. Um, he's co-editor of Globalization and the State in Contemporary Crime Fiction, and he's edited a crime fiction reader, Craft and Criticism. So uh, we're really lucky that he's joining us today. I should uh, mention thanks. I should mention that I subscribe to the Great Courses. Oh yes, and uh, he has the Secrets of Great Fiction, I believe. What what is it? It's a mystery and suspense fiction. Yes, yeah. everybody should subscribe to the great courses uh it is if you can try MOOCs, uh but they're not as good as the great courses the, the great courses turned me into a connoisseur of <laughs> professors they, they it's a tight they do a tight 30 minutes on each lecture anyway go ahead professor adnan hussein well it's terrific thanks welcome uh david Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, oh, well, <clears throat> it's our pleasure. Well, you know, I was thinking a couple of weeks ago that I really wanted to talk to you because after what seemed to be, at least in terms of media coverage, something of uh, a hi- hiatus, if not absolute abeyance, at least it was, you know, some infrequency to the phenomenon of the mass shooting. And then, of course, as you know, on March 16th, three Atlanta area spas were attacked, a shooter killed, six Asian women, eight victims in total were dead, and that immediately in the week that followed, there were seven other mass shootings in the sense that if we think of four excluding the killer or more uh, uh, victims uh, who were wounded or shot, uh, if not dead, and then 
that week was capped by uh, 10 killed in a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And the number for the week after that doubled uh, from seven to 14. And one way that this has been portrayed is that, well, you know, it's a return to normal. <laughs> and so I wondered what your thoughts uh, were about what kind of a normal could it possibly be? And what's the meaning of um, mass killings in, a, in, a, in American society and popular culture? Okay, well, um, this is a, I mean, obviously really good questions, really complicated questions. So let me try to, you know, take it a piece at a time and feel free to, you know, interrupt me at any point you want. I do think um, at so, on some level there is, uh, it does seem to make sense to say that we're returning to what passes for normality in American culture now that mass shootings are on an uptick again. And ironically, given that everything associated with last year's pandemic was <clears throat> horrible news, the fact that um, it was also accompanied by um, a seeming kind of pause in mass shootings is in itself an, an interesting and suggestive fact. And I think that um, it says a lot about the contemporary state of American culture that we now return into a period of so-called normality when mass shootings just become an everyday accepted part of the landscape. On the other hand, I would say that what we're seeing here is partly um, a kind of shift in media attention hmm. that to some extent is not always correlated with the kinds of violence that are taking place at any given time. I mean, let me give you an example. People may remember that back in the 90s, there was a vogue in American popular culture um, for gang violence, mm -hmm. whether it was in films like, you know, Boys in the Hood or Colors, along with the rise of gangster rap, um, gang violence was mediagenic um, for a period of years. And then the media's attention, as it does, shifted elsewhere. Gang violence didn't go away. It didn't stop mm -hmm. happening. There were still people killing each other on the streets of the major cities, but um, the media has this sort of rather short attention span, and so it had decided to turn its attention to something else. And I think that there's a similar thing going on with regard to the amount of attention the media is given to um, mass shootings at the moment. I mean, we may want to say that in some ways, now that the numbers of people getting vaccinated is going up in the United States, the pandemic is becoming slightly less newsworthy. And so the media is looking <clears throat> for other things to uh, write about. And one of the most reliable things you can say about the media's interest in violence is that old journalistic adage of, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, we're back to that again. Mm -hmm. But the, and the other thing I would say about it is that, weirdly, this is news about which there's nothing to report. And what I mean by that is that there's nothing novel here. As horrific as these events are, they have a level of normality to them 
um, that makes media coverage of them strongly sort of ritualistic. And I think many people felt this over the past couple of weeks, that here we go again. Mm-hmm. We're going to get exactly the same debates being conducted on exactly the same terms, and nothing ever seems to change. And I think the impact of that over time has been that more and more Americans just accept that mass shootings are an everyday aspect of contemporary American life, which is a terrible um, fact in and of itself. And in this last, um, in the Colorado shooting in particular, I remember reading a media account when one of the people that was in the supermarket when the shooting started said something to the effect of, I felt like this day was always going to come sooner or later. And that really kind of chilled me to the bone. And if it doesn't chill everyone else to the bone, I think there's something badly wrong. In other words, they felt as if it was just inevitable. And, you know, they know that when they hear these sounds and they see people running, it's almost like they're participating in a drill. They know what they have to do. Everyone assumes they're sort of places in the script and here we go again so it's it's depressingly familiar on every level indeed well the the fact that you mentioned that it's become normalized um and the way in which it's become normalized it just reminds me you know i'm in canada so i don't come to the states uh all the time but i happen to be in december 2019 uh, at Syracuse, in Syracuse, mm-hmm. New York, for a soccer tournament of my son. Mm-hmm. And we had to go visit the big mall that was there. Boys wanted to do shoe shopping. And we missed by five minutes a mass shooting that took place right. in, in, in the mall. And it's just something that seems like it could happen anywhere, anytime, yeah. because it's structured somehow. Uh, into the cultural environment. Um, but I wonder, you know, since you study uh, very closely the language and the discourses and the structures, you even mentioned that the media coverage is almost ritualistic. It follows mm-hmm. these patterns. I wanted to ask you if um, differences and shifts in media attention um, portend any larger shift in the culture. And I'm thinking here because you have written about serial killers. Yeah. That if I think about it, I was thinking about, well, mass shootings, this seems to be a phenomenon of the Columbine era forward, right? And it used to be that um, this uh, some kind of, you know, violence, the fascination and the phenomenon of this violence was much more surrounding these lone serial killers. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, you know, do you see a difference somehow both in the phenomenon <clears throat> as part of the larger culture and also the way in which they're talked about. Is there some big shift that has happened in the culture? Yeah, I do think so to some extent. I mean, let me borrow a concept from another discipline. I'm, I'm teaching a class at the moment that's kind of an introduction to television studies. And there's a, a critic by the name of Jason Mattel who writes extensively on television. And one of his concepts is something he calls a genre cycle. And he uses that concept in um, analyzing the history of American television and says that if you take any particular 
particular decade, you can identify what was the dominant genre cycle in that period, whether it be the sitcom or the soap opera or reality TV. Every decade, more or less, or every period has a dominant genre cycle. So I think you can apply that um, concept to what form of violence is most in fashion, so to speak, um, in not just the American media, but it's particularly pronounced in the American media. And back in the 80s and 90s, it was indeed um, the era of the serial killer. And I remember, you know, not long after I moved to this country, uh, watching the um, Academy Awards ceremony, the year that Silence of the Lambs uh, won all of the major categories. And you may remember that the ceremony actually began with the host, Billy Crystal, being wheeled out on stage on a hand truck, mm. wearing a straitjacket and a hockey mask to, to look like Hannibal Lecter. And um, the audience went crazy, you know, and Hannibal Lecter was the, the unofficial guest star of that whole ceremony, that whole evening. Yeah. And I remember sitting there um, watching this and just asking what is probably like the most elementary question any cultural critic can ask, which is, what the hell is going on? Like, what, what is this? And so the work I began at that time was trying to understand how a figure like the serial killer could have become American culture's preeminent deviant. And a lot of the work I did was trying to answer that question. Now, the situation today with regard to the serial killer, I think is very different. They're still around. Obviously, these crimes are still being committed. Um, and the, the figure of the serial killer is still um, alive and well, so to speak, in our popular culture. But it seems to me that he serves a very different role. And today, in 2021, I would define that role as primarily nostalgic. Hmm. As bizarre as it sounds, a lot of serial killer related popular culture today, and this is whether we're talking about Netflix true crime documentaries or the drama series uh, Mindhunter, looks back to the period of the 80s and 90s almost with a kind of fondness yeah. about, you know, this was a the devil we know. This right. is a figure that we're familiar with. And it's not just that time has made this figure less dangerous than it used to be. It's also that we have a fondness for how we used to explain that figure, which was primarily mm-hmm. through a very, very highly individualistic frame yeah. that described these people primarily in psychological terms. Yeah. Now, if you compare that to the mass shooter of today, you still see that same tendency towards this individualistic psychologizing explanation. And the main reason for that, of course, is because many Americans and much of the American media will bend over backwards to avoid suggesting that there is any social dimension to mass shootings. Right. That, it tell, that, you know, that they tell us anything about American culture at large or as a whole. But... <laughs> 
that's obviously wrong. It's yeah, obviously yeah. it's obviously ridiculous. And on one level, I think the media know that it's ridiculous. You can't take someone like Dylan Roof. Yes. You can't take someone like the shooter in Atlanta. You can't take the individual that shot up the Pulse nightclub in Orlando and say that there's no social dimension to those crimes. You can try, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be very convincing. And so I think for that reason, there's a notable absence of um, a kind of similar pop cultural explosion centered around the mass shooter Mm-hmm. that we saw in the age of the serial killer. So well, you're not yeah. you're not going to have a mass shooter equivalent of Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have Billy Crystal dressed up as Dylan Roof coming out in the Academy Awards. It's not right. going to happen. Right. There was something about that earlier figure that made it easier to romanticize, that made it easier to... Um, to see in individualistic terms, whereas the mass shooter has a presents a very, very different proposition and raises too many uncomfortable questions, which is why um, the media discussion of these figures tends to be so very limited and so very selective in its emphasis. Well, I agree completely. That's a, I, I was thinking that there was so much more film and you know novels and series around the figure of the serial killer. I wondered if it was formal. You know, you're, you're pushing me to think about it more in the social, which is probably right. But I was thinking, well, okay, David will have some very interesting literary kind of analysis of, you know, how that individual story and the curious puzzle and the psychologizing that can go with it makes it more possible to portray and represent in dramatic terms. Whereas, you know, the explosion of violence in a mass killing, dramatically speaking, it's very hard to you know, kind of portray and deal with. Um, but maybe it's precisely because there is a, you know, there is a social context that's very hard to um, encounter and confront in the mass killing. Well, um, I see. I don't even think it's necessarily difficult to confront. It's just that as a society, we lack the will to confront mm, it. Mm. It's perfectly easy to confront it. It's perfectly uh, straightforward to address, you know, or at least to talk about the root causes. But as a society, we've decided that we're allergic to doing that and we're just not going to do it. I mean, I, I felt that in some ways, um, if you go back to the shootings at Newtown um, and the primary school, like back in 2012, I think it was, I think that was a moment where at the time, and I feel foolish in thinking this in retrospect. At the time, I thought, finally, this is the moment of reckoning. Mm. This is the moment where, as a society, as a culture, we will decide that we have reached a point where we have to do something decisive. But no. <laughs> it was just regarded as a particularly bad example of a phenomenon that, you know, very often it's presented as if we're powerless to do anything about it or the discussion of these events is framed so narrowly that it actually produces the result of powerlessness. And if I was not of a conspiratorial mind, I would say that this is precisely why the debate is framed in such a narrow way so that we never make any progress towards addressing the root causes. Mm -hmm. And this to me, I mean, this is difficult to explain because on the one hand, um, 
I think obviously we absolutely need to talk about gun control uh, in these situations. And in fact, right in the middle of this rash of shootings, um, we reached, I think it was the 25th anniversary of the Dunblane massacre in Scotland uh, that also involved the shooting of a lot of, um, of uh, school children. Now, the difference in the response is that the firearm laws that were already very restrictive in the UK were tightened even further in the aftermath of Dunblane. And in Interestingly enough, this applies to both the Conservative government at the time and to the Labour government who succeeded them. They both amended the existing Firearms Act. So there was bipartisan political consensus that already strict gun control laws needed to be made even stricter in the aftermath of Dunblane. And guess what? It worked. So we do need to talk about gun control. That is a huge piece of unfinished business. But at the same time, I often feel that by limiting our discussion to gun control, we are making a serious mistake. Because the thing I think one always has to bear in mind when you're talking about explanations for any kind of violence, not just mass shootings, is that you can produce a list of causes as long as you're armed. And if you would ask me which one is the most important one, I would say you're asking the wrong question. It's all of them. We have to take all of the causes in mind and we have to look at how they interrelate each other. So while I'm sympathetic, obviously, to the idea of gun control, the idea that this is the only solution and that this is going to sort of magically solve the problem um, is a serious error. It's one part in a much larger puzzle. And still, until we start to analyze that sort of larger picture, we are condemned to more of these, more of these episodes. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, what you think that larger picture includes. Um, you mentioned Dylan Roof, um, for example. It seems that there has been really an upsurge in um, what we might call, broadly speaking, white supremacist violence. I mean, it's directed, been directed at some different targets. So a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, a synagogue in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, and so on. But um, it seems that there is something like a sub-phenomenon here of ideological or racially motivated violence in, in, in some form. And so I'm wondering what you think about that, um, you know, that uh, kind of source uh, and motivation. And um, also what some of the other um, kind of broader socio-psychological context um, that seems to motivate or cause these. Uh, right. Well, I, I, I would definitely agree with you. I mean, I don't think you can have a productive conversation about these issues without talking about the influence of uh, white supremacy. I don't think you can have a meaningful conversation about these issues without talking about toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can have a meaningful conversation about these issues without talking about the sense of frustrated entitlement that so many of these perpetrators and shooters have, and their feeling that they are that life has not treated them fairly that they are the victim and you know in a way it connects with the previous discussion about the decline of the american dream um because to me it it's 
this gap between the expectations that so many white men in particular in America um, expect life to be because this is what they were told it was going to be like. And then they come face to face with the reality of their lives. And it creates an enormous amount of resentment and tension and anger, that gap between the reality and the ideal. I mean, I used to teach a class on the American dream and I stopped doing it in the end because it got too depressing. Because what I mean by that is that at the end of the semester, a semester that I basically, you know, tried to dedicate to deconstructing the idea of the American dream, students would come up to me and say, Professor Schmidt, I want to thank you so much. Thanks to this class, I believe in the American dream more than ever. I'm like, no, no, that's exactly what I didn't want you to take away from this class. But I, you know, I was young. I was very naive and I expected at that point as a professor, now I know better, that all you had to do was to tell students the truth and the scales would fall from their eyes and they would go, oh, okay, now I get it. And finally I realized they knew the American dream was a lie, but they had to believe in it in order to keep on getting out of bed in the morning. So it's this mechanism of disavowal that even though you know you're not entitled to anything, you still feel that you're entitled. So the rage is there. The sense of entitlement is there. The disappointment, the anger is there, even though on one level, psychically, you know that it's all crap. Now, how do you get to the bottom of that? This is why I think that we can focus on different parts of the picture and we should be but obviously there's no substitute for a root and branch overhaul of the entire social system as it currently exists because if you were to ask me what the fundamental problem is as a marxist i would say it's capitalism mm. and class has to be part of the discussion as well i mean this may seem like a an aside, but just bear with me for a moment. I remember vividly the first time I ever visited the US, it was around Easter of 1989, <clears throat> and I was jet lagged, couldn't sleep at night. So I turned on the TV and I got my first taste of American cable TV. And in England at that time, we had recently acquired a fourth television channel and it was, wow, this is big news. The number of available TV channels just increased by 25%, you know, so we were very excited. Then I came over here for the first time and I've got what, 200 plus channels. So I'm surfing my way through American cable TV in the middle of the night, jet lag, sleepless. And I keep coming back to three channels in particular. Uh, WWF wrestling the Home Shopping Network, and an evangelical Christian channel. And I was just fascinated by these three channels. I kept going back and forth, and the thought that was forming at the back of my mind was, it's all true. And what I meant by that was everything I believed about American culture that I thought was an exaggeration before I arrived here, I now realized it was absolutely true. And this just blew my mind. And of course, what all of these three channels have in common with each other is consumerism, is capitalism. You can buy faith. You can buy whatever shit you want on the home shopping network. You can buy into the myth of celebrity and WWE. And it seems to me that, you know, that 
is where we are now. We are still caught between reality and this dream of what we are or what we think we should be. And until we sort of give up that sense of supremacy and start to look at the world the way it really is, then yes, we really are locked into a situation where these things are going to keep happening. Look, do you mind if I ask you about perception versus the truth, Professor, sure. in terms of how violent America really is? If you don't compare America to other countries, right? that's, you know, I don't want to compare us to any other countries. But right. in terms of the the shaping of our character, yeah. the the number of mass shootings hasn't really increased over right. over the years. Right. The the violent crime rate in last year there's been a blip up, but for the most part, violent crime has been on a 30-year downward spiral yep the, absolutely. The, the the nra which should rot in hell they are correct when they say the the numbers have not changed all that much over over the past couple of decades yeah we see these horrific shootings mm -hmm. which skews our perception mm -hmm. but there isn't this i'm sorry to say this but there's no, not i think i there's I not an epidemic of shootings in America that's any different from what it was 20 years ago. I absolutely agree with you, David. I mean, and I think this is a really important point. But although there have been declines or at the very least, you know, a leveling out of many forms of violent crime, what hasn't changed over time is Americans' perceptions of levels of violence and their belief in how likely it is that they will become a victim of crime. Those beliefs have remained remarkably stable, even in the face of declining crime rates. So there is this disjunction between reality and image that is a really important part of the puzzle to take into consideration. And I would argue that part of the reason that disjunction exists is because of media and popular cultural representations of violent crime. We all know that <coughs> pop culture massively overrepresents the incidence of violent crime. If it bleeds, it leads, doesn't just apply to newspapers or news programs, it also applies to law and order SVU, to criminal minds, to the box office, you know, what have you. So this is why we can have on the one side the statistical evidence and on the other side americans perceptions of how likely it is that they're going to become um, a victim of violent crime and so this is why i often say that life in america is defined by what i call ambient fear this constant sort of low level sense of anxiety that never quite leaves you and that speaking personally I'm only aware of when um, I spend some time outside the country. And after a few days, I become aware of the fact that I feel different and I can't quite put my um, finger on it. And then I realize, oh, I'm relaxed. And it's not just because I'm on vacation or visiting family. It's I, I'm no longer living with that level of ambient fear that has become such an everyday part of my existence that I and don't who even benefits? notice it. So from a Marxist well, perspective, it <clears throat> sure seems like keeping us on edge 
makes us better consumers. The more frightened we are, the more comfort food, the more material possessions we want to protect ourselves from what, in many cases, are imaginary enemies. I I couldn't believe, I, I don't mean to trivialize what happened in Colorado, the shooting. Obviously, you know, every blah, 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 and blah, 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 blah. Uh, It's terrible. But I turned on MSNBC. There were other stories that should have been covered that night, and they would not let that go. CNN would not let that go. And they basically, all they had was one sentence that they rewrote a million times. That's it. Yeah. Over yeah. and over again. Why? Well, what, what is the I thinking mean, behind that? Look at, look at it from this point of view. One of the fallouts of the murder of George Floyd was a, a rethinking which was forced on many media networks about how the police and other members of law enforcement were going to be represented in pop culture. So this I think is that's why, different. I do think that's a, di- that's a different story. But I do think it's connected, and the reason it's connected is because think of these stories and the coverage of recent examples of mass violence. Who played one of the most prominent roles in coverage of the Colorado shootings? The heroic police officer who died in the line of fire. Mm -hmm. Who plays the role, a similar role, in the recent attack on the U.S. Capitol a few days ago? It's the selfless members of law enforcement. You don't need to posit a conspiracy to see what is going on here. These mass shootings are being used as excellent forms of publicity to rebuild the reputation of the police and of other forms of law enforcement in in the wake of all of the police killings. And Um, only about 200, fewer than 200 police officers in America are killed each year in the line mm -hmm. of duty. Most of the time, it's a car accident or a heart attack. <clears throat> Again, blah, 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 blah. Our police, right. blah, blah, blah. They keep us safe, blah, blah, blah. But mm-hmm. it's, it's more dangerous to be a construction worker than it is a police officer. I mean, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm working on a project at the moment that is called Crime Narratives in the Age of Trump. And it's about how crime narratives need to be redesigned or rethought in order to make them politically progressive or politically efficacious. And one of my main recommendations is we've got to get rid of the humanized police officer. I've seen more humanized police officers than I'd ever want to see in my life. I don't need to see any more of them. I understand at this point that they're human beings. I understand at this point that they're doing a very difficult job. I get it. In LA, in LA, I got into it with the police, and one of the officers said to me, you know that every day I leave my house, say goodbye to my family, and I don't know if I'm coming home that night. And I said, oh, you have a mistress? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could be the one thing that police officers have in common with a lot of uh, men of color who also don't know if they're going to come home at night when they leave the house in the morning. You know, I mean, again, the ironic thing is that it's often the people with the least objectively to fear who are the most fearsome. I mean, I live in Buffalo, New York, right? I, I know of people who live in the suburbs, which tend to be very white outside of Buffalo, who, whenever they come into the city, 
have basically a sort of exit withdrawal plan before they even set foot in the city. They know exactly where they're going to park. They know exactly how they're going to get out again afterwards because they regard the city as this incredibly sort of dangerous, i.e. black space that they need to get into and out of as fast as possible. So this is the audience that's lapping up uh, criminal minds and law and order SVU. You know, these are the people who are receptive to the message that we live on a knife edge and that you can be the victim of crime at any given moment. So I think um, this is, I don't know if it's going to change. I think the cancellation of these shows was a good, um, was a good first step. But um, on the other hand, they just recently, very recently rebooted America's Most Wanted. Now, you would have thought that this was a terrible time to do that. But actually, if you think about it a little more, it makes perfect sense. It doesn't have that same kind of association with police as a show like Cops or Live PD. Instead, it enlists the help of the audience to sort of, you know, fight crime. And it does it on a national, federal level rather than local. So, again, you can see the reintroduction, rebooting of a show like America's Most Wanted as a you know, not so subtle attempt to reinforce existing ideas about crime, the dangers of crime, how we all need to be united in the face of that danger and so on. Can you explain the, and then I'll let Professor Hussein, I'm sorry, uh, just one last question. Is this an American phenomenon? The people with the most power are depicted as the most vulnerable. Cops in our media and our soldiers are always depicted as the most vulnerable members of our society. Mm-hmm. Is that an American conceit or do we see that around the world? I think you see it in other places as well. But this is one of those tricky issues where you have to ask yourself, at what point does a difference in degree become a difference in kind? And what I mean by that is that take levels of violent crime between the U.S. and the U.K. Obviously, no one would deny that there's violent crime um, in both places. But is that just a difference in degree? Or does it also lead to a difference in kind in terms of how British people think about violent crime versus how American people think about it? Now, one big difference that I can think of immediately, and it's the most obvious one, is the, the default American response to the problem of violent crime is let's introduce more guns into the situation because we know that's going to improve things, right? Let's arm the teachers. Let's put more police in the schools. And I don't think a lot of Americans realize how insane that sounds to people that live in other countries. And I was on a radio show a few years ago after the riots in Tottenham, London. And, um, you know, I had one caller call in and say, well, you know, if everyone in that riot had been armed, things would have gone very differently. And I felt like saying to him, are you mad? Are you, have you lost, you know, leave of your senses? And he genuinely thought that arming everyone in that situation would have helped. I, I I know you teach pop culture. I don't mm-hmm. know if you ever saw the episode of All in the Family where Archie Bunker makes the argument that the way to prevent hijackings, he, he, he got a chance to respond to an editorial on the local news. And Archie Bunker 
goes on the local news to give a response to an editorial about gun control. And the big laugh line is his suggesting that all those hijackings going on at the time could be solved if every passenger was given a gun. Right. I'll, I'll try to find the episode for you because I think the, the laughter how, of how stupid that idea right. was. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. And now, did, it's, I, now it's yeah. a pub, now it's Republican policy. I mean, it's really interesting. I did teach an episode of um, All in the Family a few weeks ago, and it was Sammy's visit when Sammy Davis Jr. is like a passenger in Archie's taxi. And the students were shocked by this episode. And the reason they're shocked is because they've never heard racism expressed so openly in a sitcom. And they thought it was a terrible idea. Um, I tried to argue that, you know, we know there are Archie bunkers still out there everywhere. And shouldn't we just be honest about that in television rather than pretending that they don't exist? And they were like, no, 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 no. You cannot give people a platform like this. And I was like, Give them a platform. Have you been awake in the last four years? They've already got a platform. What the hell difference would like a 21st century version of Archie Bunker on TV make? But they would thought this was just an awful idea. Norman Lear would agree with them. Norman Lear created All in the Family. And I've seen several interviews with Norman Lear who said yep. they did studies to see how Americans responded to Archie Bunker. And he was really disappointed yeah, to, absolutely. to discover people were laughing with Archie Bunker, absolutely, not absolutely. at him. So and it that's may have, exactly, yeah, that's exactly why my students thought it was a bad idea, because it endorses his bigotry. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's one other thing I wanted to say in relation to this. Um, there was for a while a kind of UK version of uh, America's Most Wanted called Crime Watch. And they um, ran it about four times a year because they had to wait that long to collect to Love Island Crimes to sort of do a show. And at the end of the show, they would still say, now what we've done here is to telescope a lot of crime into a very short period of time. Please don't be concerned. Don't be overwhelmed. And by this point, I'd been living in the US for a number of years and I would be like, why the hell would I be overwhelmed? This is nothing, dude. And there is, I, I got just like a little taste of what happens to you when you live in this country for an extended period of time that you start to take a perverse kind of pride, even in social dysfunction. In other words, that American habit of saying we're number one, we're number one, regardless of what the category is, it can be, you know, sort of like, you know, um, infant mortality rates in Western industrialized nations. And you're still like, we're number one, we're number one. So I, I really do believe that there is a psychologically a perverse kind of pride that our levels of social dysfunction um, are so high that they put us way ahead of anyone else in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, in terms of uh, odd perversities, I'm wondering also about the <clears throat> celebrity component. Uh, that was very important um, for your study of serial killers. Yeah. And it's clearly a part of the phenomenon of mass uh, shootings, of um, people even at this point uh, filming themselves like the... Um, the killer, um, the Christchurch uh, killer, and and so on. So I was wondering also if you have noticed or you have some kind of analysis of how everyone seems invested in our current age um, 
in um, self-celebritizing, you know, in a new way. And whether the dynamic because of social media has changed from the serial killers as celebrities to mm -hmm. uh, how it functions, how it functions today. Well, I think the major difference one has to appreciate in this context is that the, the high point of serial killer celebrity culture, as represented by, you know, the science of the lambs and sort of headline serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy was all pre-internet. Um, and the internet had a massive, profoundly transforming impact on celebrity culture, uh, principally in the sense that you mentioned, Adnan, that now people were able to turn themselves into celebrities in a way that in some ways was an improvement because they were now able to do that on a much smaller and more intimate scale. And one might argue at least temporarily um, on a less industrial scale than had been previously possible. What did not change, however, was this long-term narrative that people tell about the shift from fame to celebrity and what the difference between those two con uh, concepts are, which are often confused with each other. And, you know, very often this story is told as a story of decline and fall, which I'm a little bit critical of or leery about. But the idea basically is that once upon a time, we had this thing called fame that was based on merit, that you had to actually be good at something in order to be famous and be in the public eye. And then over time, for a variety of reasons, that merit-based fame becomes replaced by celebrity that has an increasingly tenuous relationship with merit and is instead defined by visibility. It's no longer the fact that you have to be good at something. You just have to be an expert self-promoter. Maybe that's what you're good at. It's self-promotion, keeping yourself in the public eye. So I think um, you could argue that the serial killer is you know, the pivot point where um, that shift from fame to celebrity um, happens. But the interesting thing about it is that I would argue personally that there are relatively few serial killers who kill in order to become famous. You do get some. For example, um, the BTK killer um, in Wichita, Kansas, Dennis Rader, he is on record as, you know, part of the reason he committed his crimes was because he wanted public attention. He wanted public notoriety to the point where he even wrote a letter to the local newspaper um, in the midst of his killings, complaining about the lack of media coverage and saying, mm -hmm. literally, how many people do I have to kill before I start getting some attention? And that, though, to me, is, is the, the exception that proves the rule. Most serial killers are turned into celebrities by the mass media. That is not a status that, um, that they necessarily seek for themselves. I see in the comments here, the Zodiac killer would be another example of that. Um, so, you know, the question then becomes, you know, why does the media want to turn these figures into celebrities and why do they find such a receptive audience um, for these representations? And I think part of that has to do with the fact that, <clears throat> again, we're talking about a disjunction between reality and the image. And the best example I can give of it is um, the son of Sam, the uh, serial killer in New York City in 76 and 77. Again, 
a self-publicist who wrote to the media frequently and over the course of his crimes, partly because of the name he'd given himself, he quickly became this urban legend who people imagined uh, to be this, you know, larger than life, almost supernatural figure. And when David Berkowitz, this postal worker from Yonkers, gets arrested for those crimes, there's almost a palpable sense of disappointment that comes from the recognition of, wait, this is the son of Sam? I was expecting something different, more photogenic, more mediogenic. Mm-hmm. So reality in this sense is regarded as an inconvenience that could just be quietly set aside. Anything that interferes with the mythologization of this figure um, is to be ignored. Now, if you compare that to the situation of the mass shooter, it goes back to our earlier point about why the presence of the mass shooter is so much smaller in popular culture um, than the serial killer. It's very, very difficult to mythologize someone uh, like Dylan Roof or the uh, Adam Lanzer from the, the Newtown shootings. Um, it was considered, um, how should I put it, inappropriate to be a fan of serial killers, but at the same time, many people undoubtedly were simply by virtue of the fact that, you know, they went to the movies to see the serial killer movie of the week. Um, You're not going to find the mass shooter movie of the week uh, in your cinemas unless, and this is an interesting exception, it's in the form of the vigilante movie. But there it's kind of like mass shooting for the public good, where the shooter acts as a kind of unofficial representative of the community. But you can't spin your typical mass shooter in that way. So there's very few opportunities to mythologize this character type safely, even if you were inclined to do so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that raises a question. Maybe it's a big topic that we won't have uh, time for, but at least some initial thoughts. I was thinking, what about, uh, you know, very often these cases are talked about as senseless violence. And of course, what we've been trying to do in our discussion is give some greater sense to well, what this has meant. One of the exceptions for senseless violence, atavistic violence and so on, is when it's given a political uh, purpose and it's transformed into terrorism or, you know, political violence. Um, and it made me think a little bit also of the parts and passages of uh, Fanon's uh, Wretched of the Earth in the first chapter on violence, where he talks about how the colonized violence turns from, you know, these just sort of petty crimes and, and struggles against one another and is. I don't know, redirected in this transformative way to revolutionary transformation. That's when it's given some rationale politically, Mm -hmm. both in terms of how it's uh, analyzed and also how it's portrayed. It seems like mass killing you can have uh, in popular culture. You can have terrorism as a as a theme. You can have terrorism movies and and, and so on. Um, But I'm wondering what thoughts you had about about that when it's taken out of that individual psychological frame and put into this other frame? Well, I think all you have to do there is to consider the extraordinary amount of resistance there is to framing mass shootings as acts of domestic terrorism and, and what's at stake in using that term. And the immediate history here, of course, has to do with 9-11 and the shift that took place from a 
popular cultural fascination with the serial killer to a post 9-11 fascination with the terrorist. But because of the 9-11 context, Obviously, the terrorist was always thought of as a figure from the outside. Uh, outside the United States, frequently, if not exclusively, a person of color, mm-hmm. frequently, if not exclusively, Muslim. And so because of that, the word terrorism um, became almost exclusively associated with that type of perpetrator. So I think still today, for a lot of people, the common sense definition of terrorism has to do with attacks on America that come from outside. And there is resistance on that level to talking about mass shootings as forms of terrorism. But from a definitional point of view, there should be no objection to this at all, because that's exactly what they are. They are acts whose aim is to terrorize a community. That is their function. That is their purpose. But obviously, the resistance goes deeper than that. And I think the fear is that if we routinely start to um, describe these acts as forms of domestic terrorism, then we can't get around asking the question, who is terrorizing whom? Mm -hmm. And then you identify the isolated perpetrators of these crimes as having points of connection with each other and having points of similarity. And I think that's what many people want to desperately avoid. Um, But we have to... um, look for those kinds of patterns because it's in doing that that we make sense out of this nonsensical term of senseless violence that just turns that term gets me so mad because if violence is anything it, it, it you know it's not senseless it is never senseless it goes back to what we were talking about earlier it's always a question of whether or not we have the political will to make sense of what it is that we're seeing in front of us and that's the challenge to us because i think that it's very very easy to be overwhelmed and to feel this sense of hopelessness especially bearing in mind what we were saying earlier about the apparent inevitability of yet more of these attacks to come but i think one way to sort of fight back against that sense of hopelessness and to resist it is to commit oneself to that job of analysis and say that you know these are not senseless acts of violence they have a context and to remind ourselves of what that context is and to make those connections. And, you know, like I said earlier, if we do that, one of the benefits is that we help make a more coherent case for something like gun control, but we also, I think, help to make a more coherent case for changes across the the whole breadth of our society because that's what we need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as bizarre as it may sound, in my most optimistic moments, I sort of think of each one of these uh, incidents, as tragic and terrible as they are, as an opportunity to advance the conversation a little further and to precisely not give in to that sense of inevitability and hopelessness, but instead to sort of remind ourselves what the long battle is and and what end we're working toward. Well, I can certainly say that Um, you have advanced the conversation much further. I think we can all be very appreciative of that. And in light of that, I am curious, um, 
uh, with your new project of crime fiction in the age of Trump, if you want to elaborate a little bit on what progressive uh, uh, fiction writing can do in that genre um, to ameliorate our popular cultural cultures, um, you know, way of processing and thinking about these issues. Well, one thing I argue for, and, and I do this in the full knowledge that it's very, very difficult to actually make this happen, is that crime narratives need to move from the individual to the structural. Mm -hmm. um, and that is true in every case. We need to stop framing crime narratives around individual perpetrators, individual members of law enforcement, individual detectives. And we need crime narratives that have a better understanding of the structural nature of violence, mm -hmm. whether we're talking about you know, the kind of violence that underpins a capitalist system and its everyday ordinariness, or whether we're talking about the slow violence of environmental destruction, we need crime narratives that incorporate the structural dimensions of violence um, more routinely. Um, the other thing I think we need is complicity. We need many, many more crime narratives that make the audience feel complicit in what they're consuming. Because the sine qua non of like the vast majority of popular culture about violence is that it's dedicated to letting us off the hook. And what I mean by that is that it's trying and succeeding very often in giving us guilt-free enjoyment of violence without ever encouraging us to ask ourselves why we're enjoying this. So I think crime narratives that as counterintuitive as it sounds, actually tries to make its consumer feel uncomfortable. That's a goal that we should be striving toward. Um, and, you know, like I said, um, this goes against the conventional wisdom of how 99.9% .9 of crime narratives currently constructed. So I realize I'm sailing against the wind here, but I sincerely believe that if we were able to move just a little way in that direction of structural crime narratives that make us feel complicit in that violence, we could see big changes. Fantastic. Can I touch on that for a second and, and sure. at the same time plug mystery and suspense and fiction, your uh, mm -hmm. your course over at The Great Courses, which I cannot recommend enough. I want to ask you about messaging, because mm -hmm. our side, the left, I think doesn't do that good a job at messaging as the right does. You You say in your lecture, one of the pull quotes is, Perhaps the ultimate secret to great mystery and suspense fiction is that, in one way or another, it satisfies a deep-seated desire we all have for the world around us to make sense. Mm -hmm. And when I think of the Republicans, and I hate to make it Manichaean, but they do a better job than uh, whatever side we're on does at making sense of the world for voters the voters want things that make sense we're not doing a good job as marxists socialists <laughs> uh, leftists uh, left of centrists we're not making sense of the bernie made sense of the world right. for us but very few people on our end of the political spectrum are making sense of the world to voters. I think that's true, but I, my response to that would be to recognize the fact that 
the main way in which the right, quote unquote, makes things make sense is through fear. And if we can come up with an alternative to fear, which I would call hope, we can have a messaging that's just as effective and actually much more inspirational. And I would recommend to all of the listeners a fantastic book by one of my favorite writers, Raymond Williams, who has a, an essay collection called Resources of Hope. And it's a terrific collection, but I also love what he does with that idea that hope has this kind of radical potential that can bring people together just as effectively. And in fact, I would argue more effectively than fear because it's future oriented and if we can bring people together around this vision of a shared future that we're united in by hope rather than being paralyzed by fear of the present i think that could be a very effective counter message well bill clinton ran saying you can't vote your fears you have to vote your hope you can't mm -hmm. vote your fears you got to vote your hope and mm -hmm. i kept hoping he would do something uh, and he ended up cutting welfare. Shervin Azami is running for California thir California's 30th congressional district. We'll bring him in here a second. I'm going to let you go, and I hope you'll come back. And Professor Hussein, I don't thank I've sent you, I don't thank you enough for being a part of our <laughs> thank David. And, well, David's but you wonderful stuff tonight. But we have a candidate here. Let me just push back on hope versus fear. Why can't the left use, you know, manipulate, do a, a Bernays and manipulate the, the voter and get them to fear the 1% corporations? Why, why can't we do that, Professor? Yes. Oh, um, because I think it's in the long run <laughs> just not effective. And I think that any gains that you get from fear uh, first of all, going to be short term. And secondly, they're going to be negative in terms of their outcomes. They're not going to be positive. I'm all for sort of identifying the enemy, but I don't think that politically there's any capital to be gained from saying this is who you should fear and this is you know the, who we should be um, maligning. Because again, that runs the risk of over-individualizing it. We're in a structure and it's the structure that's the issue. Um, so the 1%, yeah, I mean, if it works from the point of view of a rallying cry, fine, whatever it takes. But for long-term political goals, for long-term coalition building, I don't think that's a productive strategy. Okay, I'd love to come back and discuss this with you. Uh, Professor Hussein, why don't you wrap this up and thank okay, you. Okay, well, uh, David, where can people uh, follow your work? Um, well, if you go to the um, University of Buffalo English Department webpage, um, I have a page there that has um, uh, links to my work, and um, that's probably the easiest way to find me. How can they find you on Twitter? Um, I'm at with David Schmid one I think, is my, is my handle, and uh, I post a lot of stuff there. <laughs> so that would be an a good way to get in touch with me as well. Terrific. Thanks so much. And Thanks I so much, Adnan. I just ask listeners, um, you know, go check out his book um, and follow him on Twitter. And if you're interested in me, uh, listen to the Mudgeless podcast, M-A-J-L-I-S. And um, you can follow me at Adnan A. Hussein, one S-A-I-N. 
and um, join, uh, uh, listen to Guerrilla History, my other podcast, and do join Weekly Marks. We're starting um, the economic and philosophical uh, manuscripts of 1844, the first half of it. Join our discussion Sundays, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please come back. Thank you so much. Let us now go to California's 30th Congressional District, where Shervin Azami is standing by. He is running for the 30th Congressional District. Go to ShervinForTheValley.com and learn how you can help. He's running a different campaign. He's running a campaign by taking your donations, taking your hard work, and then hitting the streets. He's doing it before he's elected. He's showing what government can do. He's out there fighting for the rights of homeless. I want to ask you about Echo Park, what has happened to the homeless. The police rounded up the homeless. They've been, as you've been videotaping, they've been taking people who live in their cars, not only removing them from their cars, the LAPD, but also impounding the cars, compounding the problem of homelessness. They are homeless because they don't have money. They don't have a place to sleep. The one place they have to sleep is now uh, with some tow truck company overcharging them. They can't, they don't have the money for their cars and and the fines every day. My car has been towed every day. It's like a hundred dollars a day, right? You don't get your car back. It's 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 a ridiculous amount, but I I really want to elevate um, some of the comments from Professor Schmidt because I think it really informs our conversation around how to address uh, the needs of our unhoused and to guarantee housing for all is a human right. You know, when we think about everything from from racism to xenophobia those systems are grounded in fear and weaponizing fear in order to achieve a political goal. And coming from a public health background, you know, I I first started working on public health within uh, residential treatment centers where the head psychiatrist of the residential treatment center here in LA, where the head psychiatrist had a zero tolerance policy when it came to drug use. And many of the folks who who live there uh, were mandated to do so as part of their parole. Well, guess what? If you're caught using drugs, you're in violation of your parole, you're going back to prison. And so that perpetuated uh, the pipeline. That's what they do with public housing. Do they do that with public? They do that with public housing here in Manhattan. If anybody in your family, your sobriety, the condition of your eligibility for public housing. Not only Uh, that, if your kid is a drug addict, they remove the entire mm -hmm. family out of public housing. Mm hmm. Good luck. And we have laws in the books here in California, like the Ellis Act, that allow landlords to to evict tenants because they want to be able to sell the property. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is, and I, I really want to elevate what Professor Schmidt said around how fear mongering is not how we actually create a coalition of people trying to achieve an effective change. As he put it so eloquently, because fear mongering is based in a negative emotion, not a positive emotion. And from a public from a public health perspective, let's think about all the ads from the 1980s and 1990s around DARE, where it just tried to instill fear in youth uh, to just not use drugs. I remember that ad, the commercial from the late 80s, uh, where this is your brain on drugs. It's a fried egg, essentially. And the ploy was to try to dissuade kids 
And it did not work because fear-based programming is not effective. What is effective is health promotion and real education and meeting our community where they're at and giving them the tools and the resources to live healthier lives. That's Same policy, day. but look, hang on for one second. That's policy. And well, I it's agree. policy and it's programs, right? And, and the programs. policies inform the way the programs are designed. But I'm so talking about, that? let me ask you about communicating as a, as a candidate, because mm-hmm. it seems to me, Bernie, who is, I think, the most successful left-wing politician since Debs, he ran on fear. I think he animated the electorate by saying, you should be afraid of Obamacare. You should be afraid of our health care system. You should be afraid. I think fear as as a, a political device, as a rhetorical device, can be effective. There are bad people out there who we should be afraid of. And if we're afraid of them, we should peacefully destroy them. I would respectfully disagree and would say that Bernie's tactic was really in educating the entire country around why our system is so corrupt and why we have millions of underinsured or underinsured Americans, why we have such massive food insecurity within low-income communities, primarily low-income communities of color, why we need to save our planet and invest 100% renewable energy infrastructure now, begin that transition now, enact a Green New Deal, and so forth. It's, it's not about taking a position of fear. It's about talking transparently about what the issues are and what the solutions need to look like. I think and you're appealing to Amer- I think you're appealing to America's better angels, and I think those angels have been strangled. I think on climate change, you have to tell people be afraid, be very afraid. There's seven years left on health care. Be afraid. You get sick, you're going to be broke. You should be afraid. And here's who you should be afraid of. Now do something about it. That's what we did. That's how we won World War II. We were trained to be afraid of Hitler and Tojo. That, that's how you get things. Well, we also weaponized fear to say that if we don't immediately invade Iraq, that weapons of mass destruction will destroy the world. Just because uh, fear has like been fear misused, just because fear is misused, hang on, just because fear has been misused by bad actors, it doesn't mean it's not an effective way to move the American people. The American people should be afraid. And you should, and, and, and our side, if we acted on it, I think we could rally more people to the left. People have a lot of things to be terrified of. And everybody from Biden to Pelosi are trying to calm you down and saying, you know, we're going to do this incrementally. I'm not trying to calm anyone down. I know you're not. I'm uh, just saying fear is a- real and they're imminent. But I'm not speaking to why we need to address them from a position of fear. I'm speaking from a position of building community and addressing the real world problems that are not 10 years from now. Climate change is now. Right. What we're trying to mitigate is catastrophic climate change. The wildfires, the natural disasters, the famines, all those issues are here. We cannot deny them anymore. And so it's opening our eyes to what the solutions need to look like and galvanizing all of us to say we can rebuild. Think about the way FDR did it. 
And we all know there were many issues with the New Deal and intentionally leaving behind black and brown Americans. But in terms of the way FDR approached why we need a New Deal, it was investing in America. It created a promise for what we could be as the strongest, wealthiest nation in the world. He mobilized people to action by telling us, to your point, let's appeal to those better angels, what we can achieve when we put our minds together and address our problems transparently through a position of integrity and honesty and recognize that the solutions must be structural, must be comprehensive, cannot be uh, band-aids on bullet wounds or tinkering around the edges. That's not fear, in my opinion. That's positivity. That's saying let's recognize this problem for what it is and not shy away from it and address it head on with the structural solutions that we need. And we know what the solutions look like because from our scientists to our professors uh, to our researchers have told us these are the solutions we need. Okay. And so our job as elected officials is to actually take that word and implement them. All right. I'm not running for office. You know better than I do. Uh, it's not about knowing better. It's about a, it's about perspective. Right. And what I've seen is that when I speak to our constituents here in the Valley about what they care about, yes, there is fear of climate change. Yes, there is fear of what happens if tomorrow I have a, I, you know, I have to, I have somebody diagnosed with cancer or I need a knee replacement or I have congenital heart failure, whatever it may be. Am I suddenly going to go bankrupt? because I can't afford uh, my annual deductible or my monthly premium. You know, those are real concerns and real fears, but we don't have to present the solution from a position of fear. We can mm-hmm. present and talk from a perspective of positivity and recognizing that we have the tools and resources before us. What we lack, what we've always lacked, is political will. Okay, so you've been covering the police. My mind, you can disabuse me of this, you're, you're, you're going out on the streets. You're seeing the LAPD being sadistic. Tell me what the LAPD is, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department, did this week to the homeless in Los Angeles. It was a couple weeks ago, um, but these, these are daily acts of impunity where our police are going in to our unhoused community members encampments to our tents and they're displacing and criminalizing and ticketing our unhoused neighbors with impunity. What happened at Echo Park was it was so incredibly brutal. And to think that those city council members emerged from that moment of brutality and tried to spin what happened as a success. Councilmember Mitchell Farrell, Echo Park is part of his uh, city council district. He presented as a success. Other uh, conservative members of city council did the exact same thing. They totally glossed over the fact that we had over 60 squad cars, over six police helicopters with less than lethal weapons in riot gear, raiding an unhoused encampment in Echo Park, where the community members there, because of the failures of the state, had started taking care of each other. They established their own community garden. They created their own tenants union. They were providing resources to one another, whether it be emotional or physical, and taking care of one another. And the testimonials that we're getting 
from those unhoused neighbors that were displaced is that these cops were ripping out the vegetables they planted in their garden with smiles on their face, laughing as they were doing it. There were photos of the cops taking swan rides on Echo Park Lake after they fenced it off, taking selfies in front of the fence. It cost us nearly a million dollars for three days of those cops being stationed. What could a million dollars, what could you do with a million dollars? Exactly. What could you do with a million dollars? Every hour is roughly 1,400 in helicopter fees. Every hour, it costs us 1,400. So what could you do? What could you do with a million dollars for the home? Precisely. What could you do? Tell me. What's even more infuriating, what's even more infuriating is that the Biden administration in late January authorized FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to provide local governments 100% reimbursement to shelter our unhoused in hotels. And the city of LA has yet to ask for the money. We have over 70,000 chronically vacant hotel rooms here in LA, more than our total unhoused population. And when organizers go up to Mayor Garcetti asking what's going on, why are we housing people? Why aren't you taking advantage of the FEMA funds? Why have you had to even apply for the FEMA funds? The answer is, oh, go find me the vacant hotels. Where are they? So spend a million dollars for me. We, we talk about, def- you just did, you mentioned the hotels, but break it down because when the summer comes, we're going to be talking again about defunding the police. Mm-hmm. And I'm for defunding the police. You just said they spent a million dollars for three days to round up the homeless. You're running for Congress. Spend a million dollars for me. Tell you, tell us how you would spend a million dollars in Los Angeles to uh, help the homeless. Well, the, the fact of the matter is that our budgets reflect priorities. Here in L.A., we have a three billion dollar police budget. Our homelessness budget, in comparison, is four hundred million. Okay, so what does it cost to a million? Break it down. Tell the American. Let me me put it to you this way. Let me put it this way. We have a seven hundred forty billion dollar Pentagon budget. We can eradicate homelessness in America with ten percent of that amount. I agree. But 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 if you go before Mayor Garcetti, and because you just said something that's incredible to me, a million dollars to mm-hmm. rouse the homeless. And that's only from publicly available data. So, okay, the, the so- The likely numbers may barely much higher. That was just an overtime the, pay. But what would you do? It, right, right, okay, so spend the money for Put that money in housing. Put that money in housing. And what does that, that cost? What does that cost? What is permanent supportive housing? What does that cost? That. What does that cost? How do you do that? Well, it caused what it starts on the federal level. One thing we must do is repeal the fair cloth amendments. That's an amendment that came under one of Clinton's uh, austerity laws in 1998 that effectively maintained our public housing quota at the rates they were in 1999. In other words, there has been no new federal funding to build new public housing since 1999, 22 years ago. So the existing public housing that we have is decrepit, it's crumbling, and we're not putting money into revitalizing the existing public housing through green energy infrastructure, and we're not constructing new ones. And at the same time, policies like exclusionary zoning 
which allows cities like LA to basically create neighborhoods where it's only single family homes, not multifamily homes, not permanent supportive housing. All these issues collectively ensure that low-income community members cannot access housing as a human right, and our unhoused neighbors aren't able to get basic resources, basic housing. That's what the impact is. So, so Tom, Tom in Portland. Hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. Tom in Portland, you're saying uh, every room in a 48-room hotel uh, charges $120 per night. Uh, so that seems a little high. I mean, it seems to me that a Motel 6, I've stayed at Motel 6s for $50, $60. You throw in a warm meal. It seems to me you'll probably need four people to monitor everybody there, a nurse. You were talking last week. And, sure. And that, that's an important piece, too, is ensuring that we I'm have sorry, I'm having officer. trouble hearing you. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a really important point, is ensuring wraparound services for unhoused community members, everything from mental health resources to substance use treatment resources to job training programs and so forth. Um, and that does not work when we are criminalizing homelessness. What I truly, and I tweeted about this recently, that we need to enact a new bill of rights for unhoused members and treat them like a protected class. Because criminalization of homelessness is endemic across America and a raging public health crisis here in Los Angeles. It sounds like they're not locking up the homeless. What they're doing is they're impacting. They are are locking up and putting putting them in jails. Arrests are being made. Yes. Arrests are being made. Now, just last week, I was down uh, in an encampment right outside of the office of council member John Lee and his entire council office is within my congressional district. And we were speaking to some of our unhoused neighbors and they were saying how that very morning, this was last Thursday, that morning, there were three or four squad cars that showed up, started randomly choosing which tents they want to go up to to start ticketing people for not having their tents be ADA compliant, uh, for not picking up their trash, whatever, just utilizing any kind of excuse and creating criminals. And then they provide all these tickets, tickets that people cannot pay because they do not have the money. And so by not being able to pay those tickets, they put a warrant out for your arrest and then arrest you. There was another couple living in a tent just a few doors down uh, whose partner was arrested because he had an outstanding warrant for unpaid tickets. That's what creates a system of criminalizing poverty and criminalizing homelessness. So is there a pipeline? You know, we we talk about the African-American school to prison pipeline. Is there a planned pipeline to, to fill our prisons with homeless? Is that what we're seeing in California? What we're seeing is that we are responding to an inherently socioeconomic issue with policing. And that's what we've always done in America. But we are we seeing are, are we seeing people doing we're not seeing people doing time for being homeless. You're not seeing people doing time for being homeless. What what we're seeing is a scenario that I just described. Someone's been ticketed five, six times for not having their tent organized a certain way, not being ADA compliant, 
And those tickets then lead to an outstanding warrant, and then they're arrested for that outstanding warrant. So the issue again goes back to criminalizing poverty. And then all it takes the is all it takes criminals. is pe- all it takes is being accused of passing a twenty dollar counterfeit bill, and then they look up your record and they see, oh, you have all these outstanding warrants yep. for a car that was and impounded. Arrest you with impunity. And they're what? And that's why one of the things that we're trying to do, because um, it's a lot of times too, it could be an out, it could be a a fine you didn't pay two years ago. And so one thing we're trying to do is really help folks make sure they have their own dockets. That way, if a police officer shows up and says, you have all these outstanding warrants um, or these unpaid tickets, they can show them the docket say, where? Where do you see that? Where do you see these unpaid tickets? Arming our community members to be able to defend themselves in situations. While we are working behind the scenes, I as a political candidate, to pass the structural reforms that matter. And as I've shared before in the past, our current representative here, Brad Sherman, is literally the guy who can do something about our housing crisis, not just because he's a U.S. congressperson, but because he chairs the subcommittee on investor protection, entrepreneurship, and capital markets. That subcommittee. Well, what do you say? Jurisdiction- what do you say to the mainstream media, the pro-Biden New York Times, claiming that this two trillion dollar infrastructure bill is going to address? starvation and homelessness in our country. I mean, that's what, when you debate. From the CARES Act of last March to the American Rescue Plan of this March, Congress appropriated over $5 trillion for COVID-19 to be expended over one to two years. The $2.25 trillion infrastructure package, which is roughly half of that amount, would be expended over eight to 10 years. If we think the climate crisis is going to be a smaller crisis than COVID-19, we are in for a very rude awakening. It's going to be a homeless refugee crisis. We're going to have, we already have climate refugees. I will tell you one thing that I'm excited about in the Biden package is that it would eliminate exclusionary zoning. That is a huge, huge win if that were to come to pass. Because as I shared earlier, cities like L.A., the generational impacts of redlining and state-sponsored segregation when it comes to housing, the way we continue uh, to keep the legacy of redlining alive is through exclusionary zoning, creating neighborhoods where you cannot build apartments, you cannot build affordable housing, you can only build single-family uh, single homes that will not actually address our housing crisis. It creates more enclaves for wealthy homeowners. And Brad Sherman, our representative, is disproportionately focused on the needs of homeowners. But here's another part of it too. I was reading an article in Wall Street Journal the other day that now upwards of 20% of available single family homes are not being bought by regular Americans, by middle-class Americans or low-income Americans. They're being bought by big capital. Mm -hmm. They're being bought by pension funds. They're being bought by private equity firms that are flipping those homes and selling them at skyrocketed prices, creating a new housing bubble, a very different housing bubble than the subprime mortgage housing bubble back in the early 2000s, but one that still nonetheless can be devastating down the road. And on top of that, we have a ticking time bomb when it comes to the eviction crisis here across the country as a result of COVID-19. 
the CDC recently extended the eviction moratorium until the end of June. But if we do not come forth with a, a truly structural solution, I guarantee you, when that eviction moratorium is lifted, we're going to have tens of millions of Americans that are going to be completely behind on their rent without the resources to stay current and will be evicted. Right. The way that I is think a crisis it, waiting to happen. Yeah, I, I agree with you that we're it's feudalism. The, the land is now being bought up by a handful of venture capitalists. Bill Gates is the largest owner of mm-hmm. farmland. And what will happen, the way they'll solve the eviction crisis, it'll be the largest transfer of wealth in the history of this country. They're, 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 the rent now. will be we will paid. We already have two people owning more wealth than the bottom 40% of Americans. Right. The wealth, what, the bailout will be, your rent will be paid by the federal government and it will transfer more wealth to five families because they own all that property. That's how that mm-hmm. problem, that ticking time mm-hmm. bomb is, is going to mm-hmm. be solved. Uh, to be continued, Shervin for the Valley, great job as always. Before you go, the story in the press was L.A. rose up and defended the homeless. Is that true? We had so many peaceful protesters, uh, housed and unhoused, who stood in solidarity uh, with our neighbors in Echo Park, and they were brutalized uh, right alongside our unhoused neighbors in Echo Park. And but at the same time, what we're seeing is this growing progressive zeal. People in L.A. are fed up with crony capitalism. They are fed up with lip service. They are fed up with leaders that failed to do their job in actually bailing out working people. They want to see real solutions. They want to see, you know, what you're talking about. They want to see you put your money where your mouth is. Okay. Last what question. I find most egregious is that one thing I want to mention to you. When I mentioned earlier how Mitchell Farrell, the city councilman, who Echo Park is part of his district, touted what happened that that abominable act as a success. He even inflated the numbers of people being housed. When he compared the numbers he shared on TV with the numbers released in the city, guess which ones were actually accurate? The city numbers. And they were much lower than he was saying. Right. We need accountability. We need transparency. Uh, You know that I own a uh, 40,000 square foot mansion in Bel Air, which I worked really hard. I did not know that. Yeah, I, I worked really hard. It was my second marriage. She was, I don't want to get into Arm and Hammer, a lot of money, <laughs> and uh, pools, tennis courts. I worked really hard trying to keep that marriage going just long enough so I could end up with that estate in Bel Air. Uh, you're saying that they've passed laws that will allow low income housing near me in Bel Air? Uh, no, they haven't. Uh, I thought you said that I I thought exclusionary, you talked about. Sorry. So that that is a a provision that is within, uh, Biden's infrastructure package package where if it were to come to pass, yes, it would eliminate exclusionary. So you're telling me that I would have an apartment of low income. I guess you could call them people living near my Bel Air estate. 
I mean, I'm not going to guess as to where they're going to be built, but what I'm saying David, is, you're going to have a bunch of us low income people moving in with you. <laughs> we could probably turn your mansion. I don't know how many square feet it is. We could turn it into it's uh, 600,000 600, square feet in Bel Air that I worked. That would help a lot of people. But yeah, but I worked really hard for that place. Do you know what it was like to be married to this woman to please her? <laughs> and that's all I got after all that hard work. And you're now telling me that I could have low income, quote unquote, people next. But seriously, yeah, there's not going to be low in all seriousness, in all seriousness. In your castle. OK, in all seriousness, there's never going to be low income housing in Bel Air or Beverly Hills. Low income housing in Bel Air is like Bob Evans old place, which just sold for 20 million <laughs> They're not going to allow that. You and think Barbara Streisand and Rob Reiner are going to allow low-income housing in Malibu? Well, I mean, Barbara Streisand said that she really cares about helping people and addressing climate change. And again, look, it's, it's, it's about... Go work for her. Try working for her and find out uh, what a lefty she is. Well, to be continued next week, ShervinForTheValley.com. We love you here. We love you. Thank here. you for having Shervin, me. number four, thevalley.com. Many ways to help this man besides money, but money, money helps. He's running for California's 30th congressional district. Thank you, Shervin. Now let's go to Aurora, Illinois. There's a big election there tomorrow. A huge election. And, and Professor Marianne is- Cummings is running for re-election as a parks commissioner, unopposed, unopposed, because people know better to take her on. And John Lash, who's been on this show, is running for election. Now, what happens? He doesn't win tomorrow, does he? Yeah, he wins tomorrow. Does he need 50% or 50 what no, it, I think the uh, there's some weird laws, but I think if you have four or more candidates for mayor, then you have to have a uh, a primary and then a runoff. But there was only three, so we've been crunching the numbers, and uh, the way I've been we've been looking at this is that John basically needs 44 percent of the vote to win, and he's been polling. He, he has been consistently polling higher than the current incumbent in the early votes. So uh, yeah, he's running against a Republican. He's running against, although this is a nonpartisan race, but everybody knows who, who is who. <clears throat> Richard Irvin is the incumbent mayor and he's a Republican. And the other, the other guy running is one of the aldermen and he's a Republican. As a matter of fact, he just accepted Gene Jeannie Ives endorsement. Now, anybody who lives in Illinois knows who this woman is. She was running against Bruce Rauner in a primary. She, who was our previous Republican billionaire mayor or uh, governor, and she was to the right, way to the right of this guy. And and Judd gladly accepts it. The uh, guy's clueless. But uh, the well, let me ask is, you about that. Let me ask you because yeah. we had uh, Professor Liam O'Mara on the show. Thursday, he ran for Congress in Mm -hmm. Riverside and the issue of race came up and he's sworn off politics. 
the the mayor of Aurora, which, by the way, is the second largest city in Illinois. I don't know what the first largest city is. I, I hear it's windy. That's all I know. And uh, but uh, Aurora is the second largest city in Illinois. Your mayor, Richard C. Irvin, is an African-American who's also a Republican. Lincoln from Illinois, also a Republican. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think it's fair for me to say that if you're gay or African-American or Jewish or Hispanic or a woman or a member of the LGBTQ community, Muslim, that you should be a Republican. I don't think it's fair for me to say that, but I will say it. Uh, in this day and age, uh, is he, is Irvin, a, a, an op- is he openly a Republican? Oh, yes. Oh and yes. How does he square to, that with how does he square that with the community? Um he he doesn't mention it in most of these races, the uh mayoral races and races like mine are officially nonpartisan. But everybody knows who everybody is. And although there was a there was quite a few Democrats who didn't realize that Irvin was uh, a Republican, and uh, that's why it was so important we go door to door and tell them what his actually actual policies are, because most people do not pay attention to uh, local races, and things happened and they're not quite sure how these decisions got made. But uh, the first order. So uh, all the mayors have done the same thing. And I've known all the mayors personally in Aurora since I moved here almost 30 years ago. Um, And they all do the same thing. They all court big money, big businesses with tax breaks, tips, and so on, which is um, basically shifting the tax burden for a number of years from these businesses to the property owners, to just the regular homeowners. And in, in the whole, the, in the theory that uh, this wealth will trickle down to the rest of us, will trickle down to the, uh, the community at large. And of course, it doesn't happen always that way. You know, you get the 19, 1929 crash back in 2008, things disappear. You get the plague last year, all of those fancy businesses and restaurants, half of them are not staying. It's uh, so John's vision is much different because uh, he envisions uh, Aurora being a green energy, self-sufficient city. And very, and practically speaking, he can do this because there is legislation in Springfield, Illinois, coming through called the Clean Jobs Act. That's going to be a significant infrastructure, infrastructure bill that Pritzker is going to sign. And he's the governor and he's a Democrat. He's the governor uh, of Illinois. He's billionaire. billionaire. He's a billionaire. He's a billionaire Democrat that replaced the previous billionaire Republican. Um, but he's, you know, pretty much he's under pressure to do stuff at the moment right now, because I think he would have. I don't think this infrastructure, clean energy jobs still would have been going anywhere unless there was a, a raging need with all these unemployed people. So he's under tremendous pressure. He's going to, it's going to be passed and signed. Plus, whatever Biden form, Biden bill take, Biden's bill take by the time, you know, it goes through Congress and Manchin. But the bottom line is the city with definite plans, with definitive plans, will be the first to benefit from this money. 
And John will show people how to spend this money. What does that mean, a Green New Deal? What does that mean, you know, getting a, a 21st century energy infrastructure? And uh, along with a whole host of other social, economic, and justice-type issues, which I'm sure your previous guests, Sherman and John, would have a great time talking. And I think John... I've always said, if John wins tomorrow, he becomes the most important politician in Illinois because he's going to be a leader. He is going to show people how this can get done. He's going to instruct anybody who wants to run for Congress to primary, uh, primary, primary corporate Dems or maybe primary Dems who call themselves progressives but uh, haven't delivered. He's going to show them. What it's you know what you really need to do, what you really need to commit to, and that it's doable. He's going to uh, see to it that people have fewer and fewer excuses for not doing the right thing when they actually have power to do it. Well, so. let me ask you about taxes, if you don't mind, as a local official. Not at all. Uh, Shervin was just saying that the city of Los Angeles, when the police emptied Echo Park of the homeless. It cost the city $1 million that, <laughs> that he knows of. Three days with helicopters and mm-hmm. 60 police officers, it cost a million dollars. What could the city of Aurora do with a million dollars to fight homelessness? What does it cost? Oh. To, to oh, ready. we could take over empty uh, empty hotels that have been sitting in the outskirts of the city that were victims of you know sort of an economic downturn even before the plague hit. Now you're a parks commissioner, so yes. you know the nuts and bolts literally. Mm-hmm. What how, for how long? What does a million dollars get you? For how long? In other words, in a hotel. Well, I can tell you, it gets you a lot more in Aurora, Illinois, than it gets you in the L.A. area, that's for sure. Sure, but so a million dollars a year's, could you work out a deal with several hotels that are struggling and say... Well, we've already... We've already gotten, I do not have the numbers for that, but we've already taken over a couple of hotels, not we, the park district, but uh, the county, working with the park district because we had homeless in our in our park um, that got kicked out of Hesed House, which is a big homeless shelter, and that's not a very good place. As a matter of fact, that place, you know, when you, uh, when you have just generations of politicians that have just become accustomed to doing the photo op route. They want a photo, they want a, a homeless shelter to have a photo op in. You know, they want, it's like they always want a welfare state. They want to continue a problem so they can continue to be seen as helping alleviate the problem or the suffering from the problem. They never want to get rid of the problem. Yeah. So we you just know what rice and, be- rice and beans and a little uh, texturized protein. That's my diet. Yeah, uh, that, that you can <laughs> live on. You can literally live on that. Uh, and half the, the world does. And it will be the best thing. You'll live forever on that. <laughs> it seems to me, instead of the police uh, paying the police a million dollars to move the homeless, not give them a home, just move them a million dollars. You could walk around 
have little trucks, food trucks, that feed mm-hmm. the homeless. Well, there's all kinds of, uh, of plans. For a year, a million dollars, trucks could pull up and feed right. them a nutritious meal around the clock. A million dollars, you can have a planned like little trailer, mini house trailer park on land that's completely empty, that's near the city, that's even walking distance of the city. Yeah, I, I'm just um, talking about in terms well, of, Ma- is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs? or right? yeah. Start with food before we worry about shelter. Let's make sure mm-hmm. that they have, they have strength and energy. Million dollars. I know people would volunteer to do that. Give everybody a warm meal, three warm meals a day. And it's this should, this should be non-negotiable. A million dollars to send these fascists in to uproot their vegetable gardens? These right. sadists? I mean, it's, it's always when the politicians are owned by big donors, it's the big donors who get what they want. I mean, an example would be in the latest COVID bill, $52 billion, most of that going to COBRA payments. Again, just like you said, $52 billion, you could just put millions and millions of people on Medicare. You could buy Aetna. You could buy Aetna. Seriously. You, buy out. <laughs> you, you literally could buy all the stock in Aetna and then have a public option. And then all these people who work for Aetna are just uh, government contractors and they can just be processing. No, you could just expand. You could just expand Medicare to cover everybody, tens of millions of people, for what you're doing with that $52 billion. But no, I mean, they're, who owns the Biden administration? Well, you know, it's, it's big pharma, it's the insurance companies, it's the fossil fuel industry, the military industrial complex. You know, you can sing the choir, sing yeah. the chorus, right? I mean, it's. The, uh, the problem it's is, simple. it is simple. There are simple solutions. Yes. But the people who. Ridiculously simple solutions. But that. Uh, but that involves certain people around here not being able to control things anymore. I mean, every time you hear a politician, it's anywhere from the mayor of, of Aurora to Nancy Pelosi saying this can't be done. They leave out the other half of the sentence. This can't be done, comma, and I still have my power, period. I'm, I'm going to look up. Basic- let me just look up the market capitalization of Humana, what it would cost to buy all the stock of uh, Humana. Uh, uh, it can't be uh, seven hundred. It's seven hundred twenty-eight billion dollars equity. No, no, I'm sorry. Total equity. Uh, I'm sorry. This is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, $13.728 billion. That, that can't be. Total assets are $34 billion. So let's yeah. round it off and say $100 billion. Yeah. So you could buy, and you don't have to buy. Uh, and you could have bought it when the, t- when the stock market was at its peak or at its trough. You uh, 
But by passing the first CARES Act, you know, you pumped it right back up. And by the way, you don't have to spend, you you know, you can take over a company just by owning a majority of the shares or just or being the largest shareholder. That's what these these sharks do, the venture capitalists. They don't buy the whole company. The United States could spend, I think I'm getting this right, for $40 billion dollars. They can buy a majority ownership, just buy up the shares mm-hmm. on the on the market. They could own Humana for about $40 billion. Mm-hmm. Sounds a lot, you know, and spread it out over 10 years. $4 billion a year. Nobody loses their job. You turn Humana into a, yes, the no, public you option. Turn Humana, you turn all of them into government contractors, uh, the very top tier will lose their million dollar salaries, but they'll be comfortable, you know, they'll be fine. And this uh, is the problem, the, the problem, you're, you're, you teach physics. This mm-hmm. is the most difficult subject to learn. No, it isn't. Well, it is for people like me, but money, understanding not how the stock, not how to make money in the stock market, but understanding what the stock market is, what equity means, what stocks mean. If we, it's so simple for for the state to own 25% of a corporation and then dictate, yeah. you know, pensions. You like those commie countries. Unions, <laughs> if, 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 if workers understood, if, if union members understood that their pension was being turned over to venture capitalists who then invest their pension in companies that create the destruction of unions, they would mm-hmm. rise up. All these pension funds, they're not mad. The AFL-CIO doesn't invest its pension fund. It must be a trillion dollars, at least, that's handled by private equity that is buying stock in companies that are anti-union. If if people understood finance, Mm -hmm. there'd be... uh, Pitchforks. But then people are self-interested. People near retirement are going, ah, you know, I've got mine. <laughs> right. Know, hands off of my pension. Hands off of my 401k. Hands off. And yeah, we've been, uh, we've allowed ourselves to, you know, be tied up to a system that is going to sink us all if we don't start restoring our public spaces, our commons, our, you know, our, our common spaces, our our basic patrimony, you know, from all the generations that have worked before to give us the stuff we have. I oh, would hell, love. I, I just saw something. Go I ahead. was out and about today, but I saw something interesting. You just reminded me of. Apparently, um, Justice Thomas wrote something. I didn't have a chance to read it, but the headline was interesting. That uh, because it, his argument was his argument against uh, Twitter banning Trump from, you know, from tweeting because this is effectively the public square. So he's calling for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to be considered public utilities. And this is what Clarence Thomas said. Yeah. And I was checking to see if it was an Onion article and I didn't, uh, it wasn't, but I didn't get get the chance to read it further. But I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting. 
Uh, you know, that's our ironic development. But yes, I, I mean, when you think about it, everything that we have, everything, what we're doing right now, this sits on an enormous pile of public investment. Mm-hmm. I mean, this used to be DARPANET and then the internet when DARPANET went to universities and national labs. And yeah, you know, Al Gore never said he invented the internet, but I will give Al Gore credit for really saving it because it was just falling into disuse and he lobbied hard to refund it. So you had money going to Massachusetts, I think MIT, and you had money going to the University of Illinois. So instead of uh, building the HAL, to the, the, the HAL 9000 computer, you know, they built, uh, what was it, Mozilla or the first browser. <laughs> so Explain to the audience what a utility is. My understanding of a utility is it's a public-private partnership on something that we can't do without water, yeah. electricity, power. It's right. and it is openly traded as a stock, a dependable stock with a high dividend yield because you have a, a customer base that can never disappear. So there was well, a time when you would buy stock in an electric company because the city was pro- it was the only they had a monopoly. Mm-hmm. But but it was heavily regulated by yeah, the, the city. market was heavily regulated and the market was heavily, uh, you know, circumscribed. So what happened near the when you say the market, the market for electricity or the market well, for the water market for just about anything. But, right. But, you know, but we'll specifically for utilities. OK. And, you know, so and by the way, uh like government uh, pensions, like the SARS, which is the, I've got a little bit of uh, retirement money because I taught at NIU and I was an NIU employee directly for years. Um, That can't be just invested anywhere. And part of the reason why states took hits because they were only allowed to invest in quote unquote safe things like utilities, like real estate, like residential real estate. Oops. yeah, so when we all think of this as just, uh, you know, th- these are the commons that we have inherited. Um, unless you want people to just pave their own roads in front of their house, you know, just how well would that work out? Um, here in Aurora, you know, we're talking, when we were talking earlier about homeless, we've got a great asset because we've got, a, we've got the river, we've got the Fox River, and we've got this modern water treatment plant. So we get river water from the Fox River. That's the best, one of the highest quality waters of any municipality in the United States. Until right. some mayor comes along and you know, decides that his buddies you know, uh, could, make a, could make a profit off of water, sort of very similar to what happened in, in Michigan. There was it, there was lake water that the Detroit used. You know the the whole story with Flint. You know, yes. basically in a nutshell, Flint used Detroit water from Lake St. Clair, and uh, the Rick Snyder thought you know that well we need to modernize this water system. Uh, he sell his his to hand it over to his buddies to make cash being being supplying water from a river from. I think one of the main rivers that go through that one of them flows through Midland, Michigan, which is Dow Chemical. So anyway, and you know the whole story there. But what I'm saying is that um, I, I think everyone, I think 
we have gone way, way too far in the direction of uh, laissez-faire, neoliberalism, capitalism, and we see the result. We're seeing endgame capitalism. There's one more step, which anyone who watched, was it The Next Generation, Star Trek, where they went back to the 21st century, and there was a whole bunch of people, I think, outside of where Starfleet would make its headquarters in the Bay Area, and it's like, you know, well, what's wrong with these people? Well, they, they were people who simply did not have the right to be anywhere at all because everything was owned. So you're born and you have no right to be anywhere unless you own something. <laughs> we have to wrap it up. I don't think we're witnessing end stage capitalism. I think we're witnessing neo-feudalism. And I think capitalism they, what they, the way capitalism survives, I think, is by destroying itself. Every, you know, the, the boom and bust cycles. Mm-hmm. I and just read that some, some guy out. just lost $6 billion. Some hedge fund manager in America just lost, just saw his $6 billion fortune wiped out. I think capitalism destroys capitalists and then it rebuilds well, it they rebuild it they, they keep rebuilding it although the the rich most of the rich are immune to the vicissitudes you'd have to talk to somebody in somebody in in our sphere with a real education but you know i think when they uh, started enshrining finance which up to that point was like a utility like your bank because in general, you wanted about as many surprises out of your bank as you wanted out of your plumbing, right? You want something reliable that you can always have. When, when the instrument of finance itself, you know, became the commodity, and that happened in um, the 1920s, I, I recommend a book for those of us who aren't economists uh, that was written by, I think, John Maynard Keynes wrote a book called 1929, the Great Crash, and it's a thin book. I judge a book by its thickness. So if it's like a half an inch thick or thinner, you know, I'll read it. And it's, because the the writer has something to say, yes, or has something to say, he has something very succinct to say. Yeah. And uh, you know, he described how this kind of backwater little bank, you know, that never raised its head for attention, uh, Goldman Sachs, suddenly was in the business of bundling paper and setting up these shell companies, these holding companies, and Shenandoah was a big one. So, you know, it was echoed years later when Michael Milken was considered a genius for uh, constructing Drexel Lambert, which essentially did the same thing. The original, his original observation was a lot of these junk bonds were actually companies that had a potential value, like Revlon or something. And then he just enshrined the financial instruments. So the companies were of little relevance. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, so when you do these, when you're allowed to play these games, you know, you just have a complete collapse of the system because you completely destroyed the integrity of the system. Um, as someone once said, I think somebody found the author of this. I read it as a kid, uh, but it was a column in the Detroit Free Press where he said, economics isn't a science it isn't it is not physics as much as they want it to be it's actually should be considered a branch of ethics i agree and because what you there's the idea of an exchange 
and there's an idea of value. And if there's an exchange in value, what's implicit is a kind of trust that this is honest, that this is like the gold is real gold, or you have real grain, or you have real things of value to exchange. And when you undermine that, that's when, you know, the confidence, and even it's in grade school, the nuns taught us about the economy. It, it goes on confidence. It goes, and she would take out a dollar bill and say, see this thing? If I dropped it on the floor, a bunch of you would run and get it. Why is this valuable and not this piece of paper? It's because you believe this piece of paper is valuable. An economist is somebody who is paid by a special interest to promote a level of taxation, basically. That's what an economist is. They push uh, either a wealth plan for one industry or another, and they're paid. Doesn't they, There's no science. We have to wrap it up. Yes. Uh, very quickly, speaking of taxes, the embattled governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, was forced to sign a new tax on people earning over a million dollars a year. Oh, the humanity. New York City, this means New York City residents who make more than a million dollars a year will pay the largest taxes in the nation. And Cuomo has been against taxing people who make more than a million dollars a year because he says they're going to take their ball and leave. And I yeah, say, and I crap. say, get out of here. <laughs> Go. Let's Get the hell out of here. Make it more affordable, for God's sakes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I'm uh, hoping Cuomo the real estate. political life, so he's, you know, having to do things that actually help more than his little circle of billionaire Republican buddies. So before you go, the, uh, Biden is supposedly planning to raise taxes on multinational corporations so that they can't move their headquarters overseas. They're trying to, like Janet Yellen used to be head of the Federal Reserve. Now she's mm -hmm. Treasury Secretary. She's pushing this idea that an American corporation would be ordered to pay an international tax. No matter where you are, there's a baseline that you have to pay. So countries can't compete with other countries to lure American corporations there as tax dodges. What do you think about cities in America all being forced, all corporations not being allowed to have cities compete against one another for tax breaks? Let, and the idea would be in America, if Omaha wants to lure Amazon with a tax break, knock yourself out, but the federal government is going to make up for that so that it's mm -hmm. a, a level playing field that you yeah. can't have give tax breaks to to corporations to lure them into your city it's it look what they do well, with I've stadiums seen, as I said, i've seen 30 years worth of mayors almost 30 years of mayors doing essentially that trying to lure companies with tax breaks um that would be good if and I think that uh, part of what can help make that happen is if somebody gets in there as mayor and has a completely different model of developing a real economy. Cupertino, but, Cupertino High gave us the apple. 
because that's where Steve Wozniak graduated mm. from. Cupertino is also where app you're not you're what Professor Hussein? It was called Homestead High School. I went to Homestead High School, and Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs were our two famous alums, and I had Steve Jobs' senior high school English textbook. And it is in Cupertino, but it's called Homestead High School. I'm sorry, oh. well, but Professor Hussein, now, Cupertino is not the headquarters of Apple. It's where Tim Cook works. It's where everybody who works for Apple pretty much works. It's Cupertino. Is, am I getting this right? But for tax reasons, Apple is headquartered in Reno in a little mailbox. And they are at what's the name of the high school you went to? Homestead High School. Homestead High School. The Mustangs. The Mustangs have cut their computer department. They can't afford. Did you know about this? I had heard something about this, yeah. That they've had it because Apple doesn't pay local taxes. They cannot produce in Cupertino another Steve Wozniak or Steve Jobs. Because Apple, which cares so much about us, won't even give back to the city that made them. Well, I think that if anything gets passed along the lines of taxing mega corporations for like uh, sheltering their wealth, it'll be another like you know, competition among elites. In other words, it's not just hurting us peasants. It's, it's hurting people who think they matter <laughs> in the world. And that'll something will probably get done, like a gentleman's agreement, because, you know, the peasants are getting too restive down here. And, you know, we'll they see. want to enjoy their wealth. Professor Marianne Cummings, next week we will celebrate your reelection. And mm-hmm. maybe. Oh, well, actually, uh, when's uh, Thursday? Yeah, we'll know by. Oh, that's we'll right. That's right. Thursday for the professors and Marianne, we will celebrate okay. uh, your, your reelection. Very exciting. Thank you. Good luck on Election Day. It'd be really <laughs> embarrassing if you lose. No, well, I will really, man, this, I think this is one of the most important elections in the country right now for John. Right. Great news. Good. Well, let us go to Denton, Texas, where Doc Severinsen once played. And uh, we now see Professor Mike Steinell on the set of The Old Tonight Show. He, he bought the set. There's a bit of a buzz, a bit of a buzz, but it's okay. A buzz? Really? Eh, a little, but it's okay. Uh, okay. Hey. Well, let me try something. While you're talking. Did it go away now? Let's yes. invest 15 seconds into getting rid of the buzz. If not, it's doable. Okay. I can't imagine what it would be. I'm not doing anything different. One, two, one, two. Is it All right, it might hot? be near. Are you near uh, an electric device? Is your phone near you? Is it? No. Okay. It's okay. It's a little buzz. Hey. Hey, what? There I is... have a bone to pick. Oh, go ahead. I have a, I've got a couple bones to pick. First of all, my bad. Pete Seeger's father did go to Harvard. You had it right. Sorry. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. I said Pete Seeger went to Harvard. 
He did, but he but he was he, for two years, and then he hated it, and he dropped out. Right. That, no, but you, you corrected me on Pete Seeger going to Harvard. Yeah, he hated you, it. You, you were so. right. I said he was a graduate of Harvard, and, right? And he is not. No, I don't think he graduated from anywhere. Right. So you're the right. other thing is, is you know the the professors in Marianne. I feel a little. You're welcome. Could I come on like and, and just kind of, you could go to me like the jazz guy and I'll just go like, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. You'd ask all these great questions about politics. I said, now I said, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, say stuff like that. We could have used. Exactly. We could have used you for the professors in Marianne last week because we didn't have Marianne. She was <laughs> she was busy campaigning. That's right. I, I, I listened and I, I wondered where she was. Yeah. So the other thing is on on that show, Professor John, I'm a little miffed that he brought up the non fungible tokens that I had brought up 10 days earlier Mm -hmm. and that you didn't correct him and say, well, Mike Steinell told us all about this. But uh, that's all right. That's okay. Well, well, I, I understand you've addressed this. I have a song about it. I have a song about it. And it's loaded. Oh, and did uh, somebody has a correction about uh, I'm on my way. Somebody did the math on I'm on my way. Yeah. Did you get the note? Yeah, I didn't quite understand it. He did the math. It's it's 20,000 years, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Well, that's what it says in the song. I'll, I'll go back and listen to the, it. I'll the, read the, the note again. Yeah, he's, he's claiming, I don't know. He, What's with these people and their facts? I know. Sorry. They're like coiled snakes. It's, waiting. it's a song. It's just a little song. It's, 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 it's not that important. Yeah. <clears throat> hey, um, you know, that video, I watched it today. I hadn't seen it. We missed it on uh, PBS. What a great tribute to him. What a great guy well, he is. Well, first of all, he's still alive. Amazing. He's playing at 92. Nine, and, last, and he played Dent in Texas. In the do- oh, There's a been, doc on doc. Um, th- you know, that band that he's in the first part of that, that's the one o'clock band from North Texas. And most of those students, half of them I had in class. Really? Two of them, two of the trumpet players were uh, not only students, but my assistants when that was going on. They were great guys. Pete, um, um, Daniel and uh, Nick, they, uh, the lead player, the great, you know, he did, leans around and goes, could you send some of those chops down here? Well, that was, that was Nick. He was, he was ready to go when Doc was there. Everybody, you know, but Doc's had a big history with Denton. He came through in the 60s and would pick up musicians. When I was in school, 70s, it was still happening that the school was Monday through Thursday and there were no Friday classes because the bands, Tommy Dorsey, you know, they weren't real traveling bands, but those bands still had gigs. And if they were coming this way, like I did one where a band came through and I drove all the way to Deschler, Texas and played at a country club. And uh, but, um, you know, Les Brown would come through and, and he'd pick up musicians. And his band of um, renown. Yeah. And I played with... Um, I played with Larry Elgart, Lesson Larry Elgart. I played with Larry Elgart on one of those. You know, you just do a run out. But Doc ha- basically. Well, first of all, is, we're, we're talking. We're talking. About Doc Severinsen. We're talking about. Tell. I know this is hard to believe. But yes. tell everybody who Doc Severinsen is. Well, for 30 years, he was the band leader on The Tonight Show and The Johnny Carson Show. 
But he started before that. He was hired by Skitch Henderson. You know the real story. Yes, I do know it. It, it, the Skitch Henderson stuff is really interesting. He'd like to show his baton, as I understood it, right? <laughs> Didn't he like to whip out his baton? They had to get rid of him for morals clause, right? I think he was sleeping with the 14-year-old daughter of, uh, of the uh, head of NBC. I think everybody, maybe except the daughter, is, is gone, so we can say that. That's allegedly. Well, I, I had heard, I don't know about Mitch, Skitch. Skitch, Skitch and Mitch. Sing along with Mitch. And uh, by the way, I, I got this today and I left the tag on because I'm taking it back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> mini Pearl is rolling over in her grave right now. You got the, so, it's kind of a mini Pearl thing. So Doc Severinsen was the band leader for Johnny Carson. And there's this new documentary that American Masters is playing. And I don't know how much longer... We're going to have a show called American Masters. I think that's going to be renamed. Why, uh, why do you say that? Well, am I missing the, something? Yeah, the term masters is. Oh, oh well, yeah, 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 yeah. It's offensive. Yeah. Uh, but uh, by the way, I have a Doc Severinsen mouthpiece. Can you see the name there? Yeah. they, they sh So there's a documentary about Doc yeah. Severinsen. If you want 90 minutes of undiluted joy. I promise you, watch this documentary. From and maybe it's because I love you and I thought of you because he's this great trumpet player, Doc Severinsen. But there, there, I realized watching this documentary that trumpet players are a bit—they're different. Jack and they and they're. He said the same thing Jack Sheldon said. I'm a work in progress. When people say, yeah. when people say, how is it possible that Mike Steinell is so prolific? He, it's the, there's something about trumpet players. They just keep going. And he says it does something to your head. What does it do to your head? Well, I, you know, I, I love Doc Samson, but I'll say that he's probably a, an addictive personality. Right. For, for one thing, he has to play all the time. When he came here, he his contract said uh, he requested a, a personal access to a stairwell that was brick, and he wanted to practice. There's a scene in the yes. thing where he's sitting yeah. in the stairwell. That's at our yeah. school. That's just right down from my office where I used to be, and uh, he loved to play in that reverb. Um, when I was a student, he came to our my undergraduate school. When we came an hour early. He was down in the basement warming up. We did his things. He went down to the basement, warmed up some more. He played in the hotel room. They say he played all. He has literally played that trumpet all his life. And, you know, he's very fit and he works out. And uh, I remember him talking with Johnny Carson that he was he was into power walking way back when, you know, that wasn't a thing, you know. And I remember there was a scene of him. The one time they showed a video of him power walking, fast walking, you know. Right. He's very, he's very healthy for 92. For any age, he's very yeah. healthy. And he does the but core. I think, I think that the, the addictive personality, you know, like to have to play and have to keep going. You does know? that make you a better trumpet player? Having to play. I think, well, you can't do it unless you play it all the time. That's my problem. I don't play it enough. You know, I'm not addicted to it. 
you know. Why do you like have to re- Why do you have to practice for it's like it's athletic. It's athletic. You have to have the strength and the endurance. You have to have it's it's an it's it's an athletic endeavor, you know, and you have to have the air. You have to have uh, good lungs. So but, does he decline with age? Oh he- yeah, you can hear it. You can hear it. Right. I mean, they played those earlier things. By the way, I saw him when I was maybe fifth grade. My dad took me. You know, he has a he has a quite a interesting relationship to my home state. I was good. I talked to a guy today who's a good friend, C. L. Snodgrass. This is kind of this goes to a couple of different places. I love that last but it, name. But it, sh- <laughs> but it shows you what a mensch Doc Severinsen is. Um, C.L. Snodgrass is the son of Wayne Snodgrass, who was this legendary band director in this little bitty town near that ball of twine town that I lived in. And um, my dad took me at two to a concert of Rayfield Mendez at that little school. You know who Rayfield Mendez was? No. Greatest Mexican-American trumpet, Colonel of the Venice, like technique, in in the history of trumpet, he is like um, legendary. But I he, they they took me when I was two in 1953. I guess I I created a ruckus. It's family lore. I would had to be taken to the lobby because I was uh, cranky. Well, I I had uh, I got chicken pox that night. So anyway, but that you should have ordered the t- fish. You should have gone with the fish. <laughs> that little town they used to have a guest artist with their ba- high school band every and. At one point, they got to know Doc Severinsen, and they had him in numerous times before he was, when he was just on The Tonight Show, and uh, he loved that, he loved the family so much that uh, he kept coming back, like uh, CL's dad had a heart attack in 67, Doc was playing a concert in three hours away. He saw CL, how's your dad? And they, they left right then and they drove three hours just so he could visit uh, Wayne. Wow. Uh, when Wayne passed away, Doc kept coming back. Um, when Wayne's wife turned 99, Doc came back on his own dime and played at her party. Wow. And, and it was a great party. Four years ago at the the 100th anniversary of the, the Clay Center Town Band, Doc came on his own, just to be there, and of course they, they you know, he to, to play. He always plays, but that's a, he. And I have a feeling that he has relationships like that all over, where he's and and and, and CL said he came and he stayed four days in that little town. Well, there are that's a that's a road warrior. Yes, he likes to be on the road. He yeah. likes to keep moving. He, yeah. That, so he says trumpet play, it, it, playing the trumpet does something to your head. Well, I think playing any instrument, you know. But is the, what is it about the trumpet? Because it is a call to arms. You, you, I have my grandfather's trumpet that he used during World War I. That it does rally the to kill Germans, yeah, well, yeah. just by his playing, and uh, so the the it's martial, it's martial, you know they, but it's when, also used. The ancient priests of Israel used a a, a ram's shofar. horn to call. So it mu- it must have some spiritual 
it must be, do you feel in all seriousness that you're connecting with a higher power? I tell you blow what, Gabriel blow, right? It has, it has the sort of the same, Oh, what's the term? There's a term for it. Like, you know, smoking. A lot of people say they smoke. Oral so fixation? Yeah, it has the same sort of oral satisfaction. You know, well, like, that's assuming you play it through your lips and not your <laughs> ass. Then it's your anal fixation. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I think it, like it, you know, I noticed when I was trying to quit smoking that if I would play, it relieves some of that. This is, I haven't smoked for years, but when I was 30 and trying to quit smoking, um, that, it was, yeah, it was. Someone it was in the chat like a, room asked about uh, Satchmo. What about him? Well, he was a big user of laxatives. He loved laxatives. And marijuana every and day marijuana. of his life. Yeah. What about the, why laxatives? Was he afraid that he was going to blow out his shorts? Why, why, what was his obsession with laxatives? Well, he probably didn't have a good diet. Right. There's a funny story about him. He's coming back from South America in the, in the, uh, in the in LA airport and so was Dick Nixon at the same time mm. and they knew each other and he had marijuana in his bags and Dick Nixon greets him hey Louie and they they do this big reunion thing and he sees the bags hey guys he has secret service to carry his bags full of dope wow well, <laughs> yeah, believe me it's not the story. first time probably not the first time secret service <laughs> carried dope through the airport uh, hey, here's I have a trivia co- a question. Yes, sir. So Skitch Henderson started with with Steve Allen, and the stuff he has to say about Steve Allen is really interesting. And then he was with Jack Parr, and then he got fired. No, then he went. He he was with Carson, and you can tell in the interview with Skitch that Carson and he they just didn't work. You know, they didn't get along at all. And uh, so eventually, he, he doesn't have anything nice to say about Carson. I think. I think Doc Severinsen's a little more generous about Johnny Carson. Oh, my God. You haven't seen the doc yet, right? About Carson? Oh, my God. He talks about Johnny like... Oh, I know. I know. Like, he he wraps his mustache. But everybody else says, you know, a lot of people say that Johnny Carson was just one thing on the show. And then afterwards, he never talked to anybody. And yeah, they said a, he had ice cold running through his veins. Yeah. But that, you know... Skitch said that... Almost everything was scripted. All that, that off, all those jokes that looked like they were ad lib, it's all scripted because they had writers, you know. But, yeah, um, I mean, like there was one line in the doc, in the doc about Doc, Doc Severinsen is wearing this multicolored jumpsuit. Yeah. And Johnny goes, You look like Walt Disney just threw up all over you. And yeah, I thought that the writers must have come up with that. Of That's, course. Yeah. They probably had, they had 10 jokes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. he picked that one. Yeah. My favorite one, you, you remember J- uh, Jackie Vernon? Of course. I've told this on, but he, his bit was he would come out with this beat up trumpet. He'd tell jokes and then he would just make horrible noises on this beat up trumpet. Right. Cornet, and he had his voice, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember the bit, he goes, when he's about done, he goes, hey, doc. What do you say you come up to my room later and we blow our brains out? <laughs> and Doc goes, if I'm late, start without me. <laughs> That's like, what a bit. Of course, yeah. that was set up. You know, really? I don't know. I mean, so, oh, I there's, some, know. there's some things that there, there's some. I think when you get really relaxed and, and, and comfortable. Maybe so. You Maybe excel. So. There's a, I was reading about Jackie Robinson and... 
when he was just starting out, Branch Ritke uh, really supported him. He was the general manager. And Jackie was in a slump. And there was a guy on the team. I think Jackie, I apologize, was playing second base. I don't can't remember a third base. And as a show of support, Branch uh, traded the guy who was competing with Jackie for playing second or third. And the day this guy got traded, because of that show of support, Jackie hit like two home runs and 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 was and then finished the season incredibly yeah because when you're comfortable at your job and you don't feel yeah, you you're about be, to fire yeah. if you don't feel you're about to get fired you loosen up and you play the game and i think that when Doc i watch seven seems loose on those clips yeah he looked johnny loved him and so his mind worked better yeah yeah. Boy, that band, there's a couple of things where that band was, man, that's great. And, you know, they did show, <clears throat> excuse me, the name of those, the band. And I was glad they did that because a lot of people don't realize <clears throat> how great those guys were, like Clark Terry and, and Conte Condoli and his brother Pete. Um, it's a great are, gig to be in a big band on television, but, but he, he cracked some skulls, Doc, right? He was tough. Well, that's what they said, you know, but yeah, and I I heard him uh, when he was here, I heard him, he he doesn't mince words, you know, but he says it, he's, he's, I mean, he says it without malice, you know, but uh, I was, you know, just, it's really, um, it's a beautiful story that he's able to do what he can, it's very hopeful I guess right. if we just keep going and doing stuff, you know, it gets better. Now, is he the best? Is there a best? Okay, there, let me tell you this. The guy, Arturo Sandoval, said said the, the best description. First of all, Doc is a swing era, comes out of the swing era. So his style is a swing era style, but he's adapted it. And part of it is the sound. You know, in the swing era, they didn't, if you had a solo in a big band, you stood at the back of the band and you had to play out. You had to fill the hall. By the way, the first time I heard him when I was in sixth grade, I was like 10, 10 rows back and I'd, this little guy comes out. He's short. He comes out and it takes a big breath and it, he just uh, filled up. I'd never heard anything like that, you know. But anyway, in the swing year, you say in the back of the band, you had to project in the hall. They didn't have microphones on everything by the time miles davis comes along everybody's playing in a club and and um you know the the patron might be like um two feet from your bell so you got to do the miles davis sound is what i call diffused or or foo-foo i call it foo-foo trumpet so it's like By the way, that's the way I normally play a lot of those things. The thing I made for you tonight, I was kind of inspired by Doc Samson. I found myself playing, you know, like more, you know, like through the horn and, mm -hmm. you know, you got to, um, I can't begin to play as loud as he, he does. And um, he's just so strong, even at, at 92. So he's coming out of that. So he's in a way, he's not a jazz, certainly not a jazz innovator. Uh, 
he's a fine jazz player, but he isn't like um, that. Isn't his thing? He's a trumpet artist. Okay, I want to ask you about tr- big band music. In the yes. documentary, he's with these college kids. I think it was at Denton. And yeah, that was that was in our in our school. Yeah, and they, before COVID. they just start. I think it's just you hear the clarinets. You just hear this one extended note before the it kicks in. And I remember thinking. That is the greatest music. Big band is, in my estimation, the greatest music there is. When was big band? When, who would like? Where did it come okay. from? All right. So, so early jazz was small groups, and they were contrapuntal. You had a trumpet, you had a clarinet, you had a trombone, you had a, um, um, you know, in a rhythm section. Sometimes just a, a, a tuba. And and everybody was kind of doing their own thing. Trumpet would play the melody, clarinet would fill in. It was contrapuntal. So <clears throat> bands started growing in the twenties. Fletcher Henderson was the first black band uh, that that was big. So you had three trumpets, three saxes, a couple of trombones. So everybody, you have to have arrangements, or you got to work out arrangements. And so people started playing a different way it isn't dixieland the early thing is what you might call dixieland swing trumpet swing playing is more riff oriented because short riffs that people could identify with and pick out like the the basie band didn't have charts didn't have uh, arrangements until 1937 they just made it up on uh, they just rehearsed and they would well. you know like they'd come up with a thing and they could play you know like 40 choruses for the dancers Big band music is mainly for dancers, so the tempers weren't super fast. But in the 30s was the hate. There's there's statistics about like 120,000 touring jazz musicians in big bands in the 30s, and uh, it was a tough time. But a lot of those guys, you know, uh, it was better just to go on the road than stay at home and not have a job. Right. And then. Things happen in the 40s. Bebop comes in, and a lot of the clubs in New York, they instituted this uh, cabaret tax, so you couldn't have dancing. So they put tables in, and now you have, you know, like combos. And so bebop and modern jazz is more combo-oriented, and big band jazz... You know, it still exists. You know, I still play gigs, big band. It's the best. Still wanna... It's the best. Well, you know, it's debatable. It's 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 not the most fun. It's not the most fun for a, an improviser. You know, uh, an improviser. Uh, I mean, playing fourth trumpet in a big band is a little boring at times. You know. You hey, know uh, beauty bait. We got. I got. We got to go. Probably. Huh? Yeah, we've got Colleen here. I, uh, let me, let, so me, let me mute you for one quick second, Colleen. Hang on for one second. Sure. Hang on. Uh, why don't we play your song? Okay, this is a non-fungible token song about crypto assets. All right, hang on for one second. I have to find it. Uh, hang on. I'm hanging. I've got my... Hey, do you know the, the joke that ends with heard it, I wrote it? Do you know that joke? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> okay. I'll have to I'm not going to tell it. I'll have to tell it. What, what is, is it? The, is it NFT song? Is that... Yeah, that's an NFT song. Okay, so hang on. Uh, oh, do you know so-and-so shits in his pants? Is that <laughs> the joke? I wrote it. Right, what I don't remember. That's all I... Uh, I don't know what the, the setup is, though. 
Well, the setup is the guys auditioning for uh, the, the Waldorf Astoria uh, solo pianist, and he plays these beautiful pieces, and they keep asking him, well, what's the title of that? And, you know, your boobs are so big, I could suck them dry. <laughs> it's, like right. the, it's, it's like the uh, aristocrats. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, d- you just make up the most horrible things. And he gets the gig, but he's he's... You cannot talk to anybody. So years go by, he never talks to anybody. He just does his gig. One day he walks out of the bathroom with his, uh, his fly down, and then the guy says, uh, do you know your uh, zipper's down and your dick is hanging out? <laughs> no, I wrote it. <laughs> I can't believe I said dick I know, Jackie, Jackie will be on next Monday, a week from today, and I'll run those jokes past him. I have never stumped him. Never. All right. That's let's a pretty play. great joke. Okay. All right. Non fungible. T- this this is the non fungible token. Crypto token asset. Song. Okay. I'm going to mute everybody. The brilliant Professor Mike Steinell. Token sitting on my rear ain't worth much now, but wait till next year. Someday, maybe I'll be worth some dough. When that day comes, you'll be the first to know. Cause I'm Feldman's first tweet, a few words less than ten. Here's what he said How does this work again? Token sitting on the shelf in many ways. I'm ashamed of myself. I got no intrinsic value, I'm a pigment of speculation. Be careful, my friends, we might get some bad deflation. Someday, if I'm lucky, I might be worth some cash. But if things go bad and the market falls, I'm nothing but digital trash. Yes, digital trash. was a free country and I could have my way. I'd be a plain old JPEG or maybe an MP3. Wouldn't be anything special. I'd be just little old me. But they got us on blockchain. They got us all locked down. Look out before you know it. We'll be the only game in town. That's right. Ethereum and Tether. 
polka dot, Cardinal, VJ, Stellar, Cosmos, Avalanche, the Kusamama, Chillers, and Pancake Swap. Crypto assets, all of crypto assets. 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 Professor Mike Steinel, I love you. I do. Thank you for that. You're welcome. You want to come? You know, those uh, are all names of crypto assets at the end. There's like 200 of them. To be discussed. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Have well, a good uh, maybe show. we'll see you Thursday. Uh, can I come to this, the professors of Marianne and yeah. just kind of chill? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Hey, uh, Colleen Worthman is about to join us. She is a brilliant actress, comedy writer. She's written for The Daily Show, the Academy Awards, the Emmys, the Mark Twain Prize. She is an amazing comedy writer. And before I bring her in, I want to recommend a piece in Vanity Fair that was written by one of my favorite writers, Joyce Maynard, who I'm going to try to get on the show because this is a woman who wrote a one of the first books that I ever read from start to finish. Uh, it was sitting in my sister's bedroom and I borrowed it. And uh, she's a great writer who had an affair with, with J.D. Salinger when she was 18 years old. Uh, and because of that, she dropped out of Yale and her life changed. She's still a great writer. She has a piece in Vanity Fair entitled Predatory Men with a Taste for Teenagers, Joyce Maynard on the Chilling Parallels Between Woody Allen and J.D. Salinger. And I was reading this over the weekend, and she wrote two paragraphs that uh, somewhat haunted me. Obviously, she uh, does not like Woody Allen, and she saw the HBO documentary. And a lot of people have said to me, well, you know, why are you talking about Alan V. Farrow, the HBO doc? And I, th I think it's kind of important because, uh, anyway, this is what she wrote. The story in Alan V. Farrow is haunting on two levels. First, for Dylan Farrow's consistent and credible account that Woody Allen did in fact place his fingers in the privates of his seven-year-old daughter, as she has always alleged, telling her as he did so that if she kept still, he would cast her in his movies and take her to Paris. Equally horrifying, this is Joyce Maynard in Vanity Fair, equally Equally horrifying is what Allen and his team of high-priced lawyers, publicists, image controllers, and celebrity friends chose to do about the allegations against him. What chilled me most 
was the level of something close to violence and almost toxic rage in the way many Allen loyalists spoke about Pharaoh. It goes on and on and on. Uh, anyway, please welcome Colleen Worthman. You have to unmute yourself. Am uh, I unmuted now? Now you're... Very good. You were on the show six months ago. Mm -hmm. I had just read, apropos of nothing, Woody's book. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I owe you an apology. And you, and you and by the way, you just said change the subject. Who cares about Woody Allen? And uh, you took the high ground, and I gave a full-throated defense of Woody Allen. Uh, and Jeremiah is yes more yes. I accused you of not accurate, knowing perhaps yes. I accused you of not knowing the whole story. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and then you muted me. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. You no, know, for a very liberal guy, it was a very fascistic move. I. You, to your credit, you, you, and you wanted to have me on tonight so you could publicly apologize and get credit right. for being that guy who owns his mistakes. Right. I got to get something out of it. I said. Yeah, I, with an agenda. Right. And I said, you give me a cookie afterwards. Yeah, no, you're, you're not getting a cookie from me. <laughs> As long, I, I felt I owed you an apology, but why not have a public display so it makes me look... But right, I have so a, it's actually worthwhile. <laughs> so it's I, worth... Right. Burnish my image. Right. Yeah. But to your credit, you had emailed me privately afterwards and apologized, and we had a little back and forth, and then... You know, I popped onto the show yeah. a while ago. But when I read the Joyce Maynard piece, mm -hmm. I thought, uh, this is what, well, anyway, I'm sorry. And I want to catch up with you. Uh, I am very sorry, not just to you, but I'm very sorry for... Uh, being so adamant, not just with you, but on the show about Woody Allen's innocence, and it was filtered through worship. Just, I c could not, mm -hmm. could not see past how brilliant he was and how much he meant to me. And uh, uh, there were, you know, obviously there are other components to that <laughs> contributed to my wanting to defend him and. Uh, you know, I know Kirby Dick. He's been on the show, and he's the best documentarian out there. And the uh, it's incontrovertible. Why does it matter? People have said to me, "Why are you discussing it?" Uh, because the world has to change, and uh, it, it it cannot continue the way it's been if it anyway uh it's important it's absolutely disgraceful after watching did, did you even bother to watch the document no i'm also guilty no because i i just don't care that much yeah the yeah. whole thing is just so sad and depressing and awful there are certain things that are just so unimaginable 
one of the things, and then we'll change the subject. Please. Yeah. There are some <laughs> things that are so unimaginable that you, you go, it's a lie. That cannot be true. Right? Do, do you? Don't do the chat room, please. Well, somebody says, Colleen reminds me of a, someone who is reluctant to believe her partner's sincerity. Yeah, I, my my advice to you about these chin waggers is, is not true. Okay, the, here's the problem with the chat room. Okay. Oh, oh. Here, there's a problem with the, the, these <clears throat> quote unquote people. I, some people they they uh, I love them, but they will distract you from the show and take you down a path from no return, and and they will they will suck you in and then attack you. So be careful with them. Oh, I, I'm aware of the dynamic. I'm not afraid. They, 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 I, I'm a very good multitasker, so don't you worry. Oh, I'm telling you, they, <laughs> I'm telling you, the chat room is like Twitter. There's some honest interlocutors, but some of them come here. Interlocutors, I, nice. I'm, they are animals, they, and they have turned. They will turn on me. They cannot wait to turn. Piranhas. So, yes, yes. Um, so Fresh are there? Uh, so anyway, you've been teaching, right? Uh, I do a little bit of teaching with Sundance Institute. Um, I do these like uh, two and a half, three hour workshops. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of like speed prompts and sort of getting people out of their like writer anxiety heads and sort of into the things that are juicy to them and that they may have been like afraid to say to themselves or, you know, say out loud, just how that can be a, a really valuable tool for when you're writing and you feel like it's missing something and you want to go further. A lot of the time, the thing that you need to look at is your own self uh, and figure out what you think and feel and what is making you mad about it or scared and go from there. Right. So it's a lot of fun and the yeah. kids are great. I say kids, they're, they're grownups. Right. But, um, and I also do uh, writing workshops with uh, wounded warriors project with uh, veterans who, you know, have been injured and also their caregivers. We do those workshops separately. Is that through the writers guild? Needs. Yeah. 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 That, that's that's a, really fun. Yeah. So writing when when people write for money, it's been said uh, only like only if Alexander Pope or somebody said only a fool doesn't write for money. Well, that's great if somebody ever paid you to write. But there are a lot. Most people don't get paid for writing. That doesn't mean you shouldn't write. What What is the virtue? Why? Why? Like, why should we write whether or not it's an occupation? I think it's a life enricher. I think that the art of noticing without and within only makes life more interesting and valuable. That's all. It or and for, does it organize? Does it help organize your thoughts? Not you, but writing a, a writing an email to somebody mm -hmm. clarifies. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I um, I think that the act of thinking about what you're going to say before saying it is super um, important. Yeah, yeah. The problem with uh, <laughs> writing... I feel like I should say more, but kind of that that's the heart right, of it. Right, right. I've helped people write. Uh, yeah. And one of the things I've enjoyed is it's like dream interpretation where, where they show it's yes. basically sketches or uh, like screenplay. Don't give me your screenplay. I don't. But uh, but uh, they're all unwieldy. Every screenplay anybody ever gives me is like, <laughs> oh, my God, you're asking me to it's going to take me. Two hours to read 110 it. 110 pages. Two hours to read it. Yeah. Then three hours for you to explain to me what I just read. <laughs> and then for me to say, well, listen, it, you know, if, if, you know, go ahead, finish it. You know, I can't. What do I know? But it is dream interpret. Like, I like to see something that somebody, if, as long as it's short. Mm -hmm. something that somebody wrote and ask them why why did you write this or this is good is there's some dream interpretation like this paragraph really kicks it you know kicks mm -hmm. why does the why do you think this kicks and, and then help them uh you know expand on it and then i put my name on it and then submit it as my own which yeah. is very profitable. <laughs> and sneaky. Yeah. Yeah. What are you reading? What am I reading right now? Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm reading this really fascinating history of the Mossad, which is like the Israeli CIA. It's called Rise and Kill First. It's by this uh, uh, writer named uh, Ronan Bergman. I think he's a Times reporter or either is or was um it's really long it's really juicy in terms of intense just like crazy operations that they've done like the original people who were like soldiers who were just super hardcore like maniacs um and how each new thing that happened would make them more uh, bold or more uh, uh, clandestine, all kinds of stuff like that. Right. It's a really fascinating read. Yeah, there's a, there's a, I'm just not arguing with you. There's a dangerous trope about the Mossad that they're better than the CIA and they're the best. It, it plays into that narrative of the Jews controlling the world. So, you know, mm. the Mossad was behind this. The, I, I hear that a lot about how the Mossad, believe me, if, the, if they wanted that to happen, the Mossad would take care of it immediately. It's, a, it's, a, it's used by uh, conspiracy theorists who traffic in uh, cert, certain type of thinking that, that, that can be dangerous. Uh, what else are you reading? Well, I, I'm, I'm not reading it for conspiracy theorist reasons. I just find the Mossad like a really fascinating idea. I, I read stuff about the CIA and the KGB and the GRU and all stuff like that. Are they can can the intelligence services? I often wonder 
if the CIA is one of the biggest scams going. That, How so? Well, they just say, we, you know, we're, we can't tell you what we do. Yeah, we can't tell you all the good stuff that we're doing right. Yeah. But you will hear about all the mess ups that we do. Right. But we do, we're doing a lot and we need more money and right. we need cash. But trust me, we're, you have no idea what, what we've prevented. And that's a nice scam that they have going. It's, you know, it's a, it, it seems to be an argument that uh, the government buys. Right. Do you think America has enemies overseas or yes. int- or interests, financial interests that need protecting or, or actual enemies who are intent on attacking us? Both. But what do you think if you, if you just had a what, what do you think outweighs the other? Do you think it's do you think the State Department financial interests? Yeah, I think the State Department and the CIA and the NSA are protecting the trade routes and oh, investments. Yeah. I mean, the, the fucking Iraq war. I mean, there was this big article where it was like, a, I remember like at the time during Operation Desert Storm, there was like a, some guy who was from like a, not the Heritage Foundation, but a, a kind of conservative think tank who was saying like, this is great. We should keep having wars in, in like Iraq and Kuwait because then we can lock down the waterways. And I was like, wow. They believe that. Aside from the oil. Yeah. And they could sit down. There are people like Cheney and people from PNAC who can sit down and very calmly explain to you why you're naive. And Mm -hmm. if you don't think controlling the cinnamon trade uh, doesn't have ramifications uh, for your own personal security. You're 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 foolishly naive. Not to mention my oatmeal. <laughs> right, right. You know you take your you take your nutmeg for granted, but one day it disappears, mm-hmm. and next thing you know, you're out on the no street. No more snickerdoodles. You're and beg- there's a revolt. You're turning to warlords to protect mm-hmm. you from the marauding bandits who want your yep. nutmeg. Yep. There are people who genuinely believe them. They do a pretty good job convincing us that it's true. What are you watching on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime? Oh, boy. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, hold on. <laughs> I'm just coughing randomly. The, um, how's your COVID? You know, I just got on Thursday my first uh, vaccine dose. Me, I got mine yesterday. Oh, very good. Congratulations. I, ha- I got Pfizer. Me too. Ooh, they're hard to get in New York City. Isn't it funky? (laughs) (laughs) Pfizer's hard to get in uh, New York City. I rolled on down to that Javits Center. It was like swing, swing, swing. I was in and out of there, all told, including sitting for 15 minutes in case something happened. More like the Jab It Center, huh? You like that? Mm-hmm. I still don't have it. You got it. You got I it. got it. No. So you, you got it on Thursday. Yep. Yeah, My I got, arm was sore the next day. I'll take it happily. I was now sore. The, I was yeah. sore the next day because I went out and. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 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 I didn't know they made glory holes that big. <laughs> Ha <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, did you did you experience elation? There are reports that people who get the vaccine feel uh, like they they feel like a cloud has lifted. Did you get that feeling? I felt a big feeling of relief, even though it was only you know one of two shots. But so did I. Uh, but I, I felt pooped my a pants. Calmness in my heart. Oh, at the Javits Center. What? Wait, where did you get your shot? I was doing my joke that I felt a. Uh, Oh, <laughs> relief because I poop poop my pants. <laughs> Aren't you glad? <laughs> See what you've been missing. I mean, so long. No, so I long. had to go. <clears throat> I couldn't get the Javits Center. I had to go uh, 150 miles out to Delaware County, no New way. York State. Oui. I talked about this at the beginning of the show. I I could not get the vaccine. So, no, I mean, I definitely was looking on all kinds of like Twitter accounts that follow like, oh, Walgreens just dropped 400 appointments, you know, in in like upper Manhattan. And then everyone, of course, is on there. And yeah. like, you can't get through. You can't get through and whatever. But I got through eventually. So what Somebody I did on Facebook posted, they just dropped 8000 appointments at Javits Center and someplace in Brooklyn. I went out, oh, bing, bang, boom. And all, all of a sudden it was like, whoa, I got wow. my appointment. Yeah. And it must have felt like you were winning the, the lottery. Yeah. I mean, in a way, digitally speaking, I sort of did. Yeah. What I did, I, I, I came up with a brilliant idea. I realized Easter Sunday. Ah. The, uh, the religious right wingers. Mm -hmm. are not going to want their shot. So I went to the electoral map and I said, what, what, what place in New York state? Cause I can only get my Has shot. A lot of Goyim. A lot of Trump supporters mm -hmm. who, who celebrate Easter. And mm -hmm. I went in Delaware County went big for Trump. <laughs> so I type in that zip code brrr, wide open, but I had nice. And so I drove up, I spent Easter Sunday in, in Trump country. But I got oh, my wow. shot. Yeah. Did you poop on anyone's lawn while you were there? Of Just course. <laughs> How many? Uh, I was good to go. I had a lot of. Uh, it you had some coleslaw and some nice. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think of Biden? I think he's doing a good job. But what about and the about, and that? And what about this? And what about that? Why are you forgetting about because he promised and now it's. Wait, what? I'm just talking like everything I hear on the show. But what about his promise to and what? Listen, after the last four years, which was like drinking from a fire hose of diarrhea every day. <laughs> this feels like a nice warm bath. Yeah. Do you miss? And I am not sweating the small stuff. I am not one of these like hard left. Hang on, um, hang on. Oh, there we go. Sorry, somebody was uh, left their microphone on. What do you miss oh. most about Trump? Nothing. Nothing. Did you ever meet him? No, I Have did meet uh, Ivanka once at a wedding of uh, like a, a family friend of my husband's. They're all like in finance. Uh, it was out in the Hamptons. It was like a country chic wedding, which was hilarious because it was like 800 people there. And it was like super fancy, but like all the drinks were in mason jars, like that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, 
was know, this and before had, like, lap tablecloth was this before class. she was first daughter uh yes just before oh so she this was when he was a candidate mm-hmm hmm did you yeah, feel it was like the summer before did like you like in june or whatever did you were you offended by her presence or did you think you know what she'll be a moderating influence she isn't so bad because if you met Jared and Ivanka before, you would think, how bad can they be? Right? I mean, I literally just said, hey, I'm Colleen. She was like, hi, I'm Ivanka. Like, and that was it. What do you wish you said? Looking back. Uh, kill your dad. <laughs> <laughs> what are, before you go. Uh, what are you, what else are you watching on Netflix? And Oh man, uh, I'm in a little bit of a dry spell right now. I'm watching my RuPaul's Drag Race. I'm watching SNL every week when it's on. Mm-hmm. Um, what have I said? I started watching that thing on HBO Max. Uh, what is it called? Where Kristen Milioti plays like the wife of a creepy tech billionaire and she has like a chip planted in her brain. I can't even remember. Oh, and I watched this very intense uh, slash preposterous sort of crime thriller on Amazon called Tell Me Your Secrets. It's got Hamish Linklater and Lily Rabe and some other really good people. It's the most insanely plotted, uh, like sort of eight part series or whatever, uh, sold with the most exquisite acting. Hmm. It's it's very dark and kind of uh, like psychological suspense. That kind of deal. I enjoyed that. It, it really goes off the rails in like the last three episodes. But by then I was kind of in, in for it. Right. For you know what, in for what we used to have on the show before Trump was president, we used to have film critics and TV people yeah. talking and it, recommending stuff. Yeah, it, that it was would, fun. Yeah, we, we should you should do. I should have you and somebody else. Uh, come on and just argue. Uh, Can it be called programs? <laughs> what what to watch yeah what because i love to watch my programs yeah my programs like i don't know how again rupaul's drag race never seen it oh you should it's really fun I, and it was always playing when i had kids mm-hmm. in the house it was always playing in the background and i'd give it three minutes and i go okay that's good and, 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 but uh without trying to what what do you get from something like that uh, you know, drag puns, which are delightful. Mm-hmm. Some dirty jokes and entendres. Uh, uh, I love the runway part. And some of the some of the challenges are super fun. Like they do this thing called Snatch Game, which is a parody of the match game mm. where the drag queens all come as like a celebrity. Um, you know, and they have to do like funny banter with RuPaul and do funny answers. I love that. And do you I mean, watch? I just the, love Match Game anyway. Do you uh, watch Real Housewives? No, I don't like that stuff. Is Andy Cohen Co- okay? I I resent Real Housewives because they're taking away jobs from actually talented actors. Because you know? it is it's over the top bad acting with the camera rolling. Yeah, it's community theater, right? From crazy people. Andy Cohn, is he evil? Uh, yeah, I think of him sort of as like a task Soviet news agency hack. 
because, okay, here, here's a little known secret. I did some blogging for Bravo. I got the job randomly in like 2010 through like a friend of a friend because he couldn't do it anymore, whatever. So I, I did little like bloggy posts for their fucking website. And you had to have this, you had to have a completely uncritical tone. Like I was always getting in trouble because my tone was too acidic. Or You're not allowed to pass judgment on anybody who's on Bravo, in other words. Yeah, like I wasn't allowed to use the word like skanks or uh, delusional or, you know, stuff like that. Um, or like... Uh, 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 fame whore. Fame whore right. is fame that? Fame whore is one of my favorite phrases. Um, Douchebag. You know, I couldn't make fun of their... <laughs> I wish. Uh, yeah. So, so eventually I was like, why am I even doing this? It doesn't even pay that much. So I just like let it go. Um, and it, it I, at that time, like, Oh, one of the real housewives husbands committed suicide or something awful. Like somehow because of the show, they had gotten into some bad financial thing and they like the guy hit it. And like, basically the, the 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 dirt was that the show was to blame because they didn't step in and be like, well, you know, this is just, we can help you with this or we will do this off camera or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was like this creepy hush hush thing. It's like like when somebody gets killed on the set of a movie. Right. You know, they like lock down and everyone like has to sign some NDA. It just all felt very sinister. Seemed, I, I'd be surprised that Andy Cohn was angry because they didn't get it on tape. Somebody yeah. killed themselves and. Uh, hey, yeah, it's ghoulish. Yeah. Am I wrong for wanting the entire Manhattan, New York City real estate to tank? I've been reading. I hope it does, because then I will move into a bigger, better apartment. Is it, is it wrong for me to just wish bankruptcy upon every real estate developer in the no. city? No, right? they're corporations. Who cares? Right, right. But we won't lose that much of a, a, a tax base if they all disappear, right? Oh, that I don't know. Oh. I think that might be a problem. But who can say? Someone someone far more qualified than I okay. could probably weigh in on that. And and last question. Yes. Andrew Cuomo is innocent, right? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know, I wish I wish that thing were juicier. That scandal. Like when the Matt Gates scandal happened, I was like, finally, because I have been missing a good old fashioned hypocritical sex scandal. Yeah, but the Andrew Cuomo thing is a very positive one because it's truly about protocol and behavior in the workplace. What is what was once I mean, there were things he did that are off the charts, but then there are the these other things that two years, three years ago, people would say, oh, come on, really? Yeah, really. That's Mm -hmm. unacceptable. Yeah. And that's why I think it's important. There were a couple of uh, he did subtle things that a couple of women I know said to me, oh, come on, walk it off. And I go, really? You know, uh, no, it's unacceptable 
now. He said as the FBI walked in and seized his hard drive. Well, I mean, I find the whole thing fascinating because like the fact that now it's all coming out of the woodwork also indicates to me that something is behind it. Some kind of like power play inside like the New York state government machinations, which are so dirty. I'm amazed. Sexually dirty, but like just like there's a lot of shenanigans and corruption. I'm amazed that it is that it went on. So long, unchecked. The Matt Gates story, Howie Klein was on earlier mm-hmm. with the the gay stuff and the 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 adopted son who's real that, that he's been gay with. And I'm thinking, how does a secret like that? How did how was that kept from us for so long? I don't know. It's incredible, especially because Matt Gates is such a douchebag, and so like thinking that he's like Mister Pussyhound or whatever. Yeah. It's so funny to me. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And his face is just goes with it so perfectly. Yes. It, it's one of those faces that he reminds me. It's a, it's a, I call it a Brett Bear face. Like, I think <laughs> Brett Bear, I'm convinced Brett Bear wakes up every morning and spends an hour looking in the mirror, trying to figure out, am I handsome or, or ugly? <laughs> Yes. Am I a handsome guy or an ugly guy? And I think Matt Gates just stares at him. I'm, I'm, he's like, he's like Fonzie. He's like, hey. <laughs> no, I think he's trying to figure out if he's incredibly ugly or handsome. Well, if you take the bolts out of his neck. <laughs> <laughs> Colleen Worthman, follow her on Twitter at Colleen Worthman, correct? Uh, at C Worthman. With C two Worthman. Ends on the end. C Worthman. That's how yeah, you can W-E-R-T-H-M-A-N-N. reach her. W-E-R-T-H-M-A-N-N. It's good to have you. It's good to see you. I hope this good is Good to the, see you, too. Yes. Oh, please come back. Congrats on vaccine number one. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I hope we'll all be feeling happy <laughs> once we are finished with our vaccine protocols. <laughs> and uh, shout out to all the basement masturbators. The basement masturbators. The basement masturbators. Yes. We love you here. Thank right. you. Please come mm-hmm. back real soon. Thank you. Okay, you take care now. All right. Dan Franken, bye. bye. Is she still here? Pretend she's... Uh, oh, she left? Oh, I was going to do a bit. Okay. Um, if she were here, I'd say, you think she bought the Woody Allen thing? But uh, no, it was... Hey, Dan, you here? All right. We'll wrap it up. Thank you all for joining me. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Sign up for office hours every Friday night. If you would like to join the Zoom room and get underneath my guest's skin and ask questions, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the attend a live taping button. And while you're over there, please sign up for my newsletter. And we don't have anything this weekend. It's going to be a quiet weekend. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back.
He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. As long as I stay healthy and I never 